Greetings, and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here this Saturday afternoon for Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, The Two Planetary and Galactic History, History, and True History, History of Nasara. Infinite blessings to all. We are going to call in the violet ray and the blue ray that always work together as we begin. So please take this time to join us in our opening meditation, going into the heart center now. Going into your sacred heart portal. Join me in calling forth the full emergence and integration with your soul, with your higher self, with your monad, with your mighty I am presence, and all of your multidimensional being through to your God presence and goddess presence. See yourself in your pillar of light fully anchored to source and fully anchored to the heart of Mother Earth. As the blue ray, that first ray of God's perfection, God's will, God's power, strength, truth, protection, and the violet ray of mercy and compassion and transmutation and transformation flow through you, through every fiber of your being. As we recommit ourselves to being the bridge between heaven and earth, the anchor for the new golden age, and the open door that no one can shut. So we welcome everyone across the planet to join us. We do that by saying, please affirm with me, I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with every man, woman, and child. I am one with all my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. And see everyone joining us in their pillar of light as well. And unity consciousness working with us for ascension and the anchoring of heaven on earth. So we invite in for one and all, all soul extensions, planetary and galactic. All of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage, our ancestral lineage, all the generations past, all the generations forward, our spiritual lineage, our soul family, and soul pots. We welcome for one and all, all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council, our mission council. We welcome the assistance of all the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the diva kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, all magical kingdoms, 
We welcome all of the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim and all angelic healing teams. We welcome all the ascended masters, the brotherhood of light, the sisterhood of the rays and rose, the order of Melchizedek, the radiant ones, all of the enlightened masters, all divine mother emissaries, divine father emissaries, all of the planetary and cosmic hierarchy of light, all ascended master healers and healing teams. We welcome all of our friends from the Galactic Federation of Light, and most especially the healing teams that we work so closely with, from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, and from Venus, and all cosmic galactic universal healers that can be of service. We welcome the assistance of the entire company of heaven, asking our Mother, Father, God to magnify, magnify, magnify all that we do 10 billion times, 10 billion fold in alignment with divine will and divine law. We call forth all the rays, all the flames, all the universal laws and ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation. We ask that it be received for one and all through every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of our orc field multidimensionally on a conscious, subconscious, and superconscious level as well. We ask to easily digest and assimilate, ground and anchor, integrate and embody all that we receive with the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy, serenity and tranquility, balance and equilibrium, without resistance on any level, without discomfort on any level, without fear on any level, in love and light and laughter. We invite in all in our circle of support, which is everyone ultimately, from the very first name that created it to every man, woman, and child, every family member and loved one, every animal and pet, every group, every organization, every meeting, every summit, every business and corporation, each and every institution, each nation, each government, each military, each weather situation, each aspect of climate change, each and every situation, including those that are not based on love, any violence, any destruction going on throughout the world. We have that all in the circle of support. And everything that you hold in your heart through your intention, know that it's added in. And we ask everyone again to join us in all that we receive. We call in all of the energy of this sacred month, including the energy around the harmonic convergence, the anniversary of which was just this week. And we call it into our collective cup of consciousness to transform the planet and truly manifest heaven on earth. 
we ask Gaia to receive all that we receive through her chakras and meridians and layers of her orc field multidimensionally. Through every molecule of soil, molecule of air, molecule of water, molecule of fire. Through her ley lines and soul lines, through the grid system, through the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all of the multidimensional grid system, through every portal and vortex and monument and sacred site, every place of power, every stargate, every city of light. As we continue up the spiral of evolution, along with Mother Gaia, as she takes her rightful place as Freedom Star. And so we are working with the blue ray and the violet ray. We ask for the highest of transmutation as we begin. In the name of the great I am, I call for the light of a thousand suns from the great central sun. Angels of violet fire, beloved Saint Germain, beloved Zadkiel and holy amethyst, Amritas, ruler of the violet planet. In the name of God, Goddess, I am that I am. Saturate the earth and all of her evolution with limitless, limitless waves of violet fire. I call for the action of the violet transmuting flame and the action of the will of God, Goddess, to manifest on earth now and forever. An ever-increasing spiral of divine perfection. I call for all discord and activities on earth that are not reflecting the highest light and love of our Mother, Father, God. And God's holy purpose is to be miraculously swept and transformed by the power of the violet flame into divine love and harmony for the restoration of earth and her people into the original blueprint of perfection that was originally intended. Violet flame. Violet flame, O oh violet flame. In the name of God, Goddess, flood the earth, her people, and all her kingdoms with oceans and oceans and oceans of violet fire until every particle of life is restored to divine perfection. May peace and love be spread throughout the earth. May the earth abide in the aura of perfect love. May the earth abide in an aura of peace, love, and freedom. I give thanks that it is done now according to God's most holy will. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We focus now on the energy of the blue ray. Beloved, I am presence, light of my soul. Beloved Amoria, beloved Archangel Michael and your legions of blue flame angels. Infused within my soul and all around me a river of blue flame love. By the power of three times three, sustain and expand this love without limit. Let your protection take dominion over the earth and over every man, woman, and child on the planet. Protect the youth, 
the elderly and the innocents. Consume within me and within the earth all that does not portray the divine will of our Mother, Father, God. Let love, freedom, and true knowledge of the divine be reestablished on earth now and forever. I am that I am. By all God's love, I know I am the power and authority on earth to command life free and the return to wholeness of everything on it. I call the power of blue flame love to establish the new golden age of enlightenment and true brotherhood and sisterhood on earth. Let the victory of the will of God prevail on earth. Let the flame of cosmic love and wisdom prevail on earth. May peace prevail on earth, and so be it, and so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. And so it is. We call forth peace and harmony and balance for all. Beloved presence of God, Goddess, I am. O beloved, I am immortal, victorious, threefold flame of life. Expand within us and in the fullness of your divine power, raise us into your mighty perfection. Blaze forth visible to the side of all life and enfold all within your dazzling presence of harmony and balance. May all humanity hear and obey your mighty command for perfection to now manifest upon the earth. Reveal your eternal law of life, the mighty truth and reality of your own being. Set all life free and hold your dominion within us and all humanity forever. The beloved, immortal, victorious, threefold flame of Almighty God is within each holy temple. Let all the life on earth adore its mighty power and be at peace. In humble, willing, adoring, illumined obedience to this, our one supreme source of life. <clears throat> Through the harmony of my true being, I perceive and externalize every minute perfect health in every cell, organ, and electron of my four lower bodies. Through the harmony of my true being, I receive and externalize every minute God's supply in limitless abundance, filling my every need. Through the harmony of my true being, I create and externalize every minute an aura of perfect peace, harmony, and balance, which acts as a natural conductor of God's will to all life wherever I am. Through the harmony of my true being, I perceive and externalize every minute the will of our Mother, Father, God in understanding, illumination, and freedom. And so it is.
And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We breathe in the energy of cosmic peace and call forth the ray, the golden ray of eternal peace and infinite abundance to flood this planet now. In the name of the infinite presence of God, Goddess, I am. I call to my own God, Goddess, presence. Enfold me now in your mighty presence of peace until I truly radiate that essence to all with whom I come in contact. Please join me in saying, I am peace. I am peace. I am peace. Envision with me as we say. I now behold the entire planet enfolded in the golden essence of peace. And I behold the pink essence of love joyously crowning every electron of that peace. I decree that from this day and this moment forward, every expression I make shall be qualified with divine peace. The cosmic flame of peace through me is now blessing all humanity. All the forces of the elements, the kingdom of nature, the angelic kingdom, and every living thing in every realm according to their various needs. The earth is a sea of peace. Peace reigns in every heart evolving upon this planet. Freedom's holy star. I accept this call fulfilled as God Goddess's most holy name. And so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. And now for each of us and for all humanity, we ask to activate the flame of happiness as we affirm, I am happiness. Through the power of God, Goddess, blazing in my heart, I offer myself as a conductor of God's limitless happiness and joy into the world of form. I invoke every part of life which has ever contributed to the cosmic fount of happiness and joy since the beginning of time to come now and pour the flame of happiness through me to bless all life evolving on this sweet earth. Blaze the flame of happiness and joy through all physical, etheric, mental, and emotional substance on earth until all is raised into the embrace of God's heart. Illumine each part of life with the wisdom and understanding that according to their acceptance of this precious gift, 
will it manifest daily in their life experiences. I dedicate myself now to be the perpetual open portal to reach the full gathered momentum of God's happiness and joy will flow to bless all life eternally. It is done. So be it, and so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Take a nice deep breath. We call forth Sandalphon and Gaia to assist us to easily and effortlessly assimilate, digest, ground and anchor, integrate and embody all that we have called forth here individually and collectively for all life, for both personal and planetary and cosmic ascension, ever expanding into perfection moment to moment. And we give thanks, we give thanks, we give thanks for this all. So I want to take this moment to thank you for your divine service here with me today. And of course, we always thank Tarn Rama for their divine service and Rainbird for hers. But I'd like you to join us, if you can, every Sunday and Monday for further divine service for the Ascension Meditation and Activation Calls. We begin at 8.45 each evening, Eastern Time, 8.45 p.m., 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time, with some greetings. And then, about 10 after, Tarn Rama come in for a brief update. By 9.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Pacific Time, we start our work in earnest of bringing heaven to earth, anchoring the highest ascension energies, again, personal and planetary, as well as cosmic ascension energies for ourselves, for all the planet, through our meditations, through our invocations, through our visualizations, through our updates, So please join us every Sunday and Monday. If you haven't joined us, here's the phone number right now. The main number for the call, it's all a teleconference call. The main number is area code 425-436-6260. Again, that's area code 425-436-6260. And the access code is 946-7441-POUND. 946-7441-POUND. We'd love to have you join us. Let us know that you found out about the calls from the Saturday program. We are working diligently, and we would love to have you as part of our family of life. So infinite blessings to this family of light. Love to all of you. Have a magical week filled with wondrous blessings and miracles as 
once again, we thank Torn Rama for their service and Rainbird for her service as well. I'm going to pass the talking stick to you, Rainbird. It's filled with the violet and the blue, filled with the threefold flame, the blue, pink, and yellow, the golden energy of divine peace, and all the symbols of happiness. There's bluebirds, there's fairies, there is some elves. There's all kinds of um, beings that are supporting this talking stick and this energy of our transmutation, our blue flame love and divine will, our harmony, our balance, our peace, and our happiness. I wish that all for you and for everyone as I pass this talking stick to you, Ring Bear. Thank you, Cheryl. I'll take that talking stick. Thank you for your divine service as well. And it's a beautiful talking stick with all that love and happiness and <laughs> and peace. So thank you. So I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are a listener-supported radio program. It's each of us that makes it happen. And uh, we need $300 each week for our fees with PBS Radio, and this week we need 406 still. So um, here's how we make it happen. We go to, well, I'll first specify that we'd like to have that 106 that we're over as soon as possible, and the rest is, the other 300 is due on Monday. So if we could get that happening in a good way, it'd be wonderful. Here's how we do it. We go to bbsradio.com, and what we're looking for is the schedule or the menu for the different programs. As you click on that schedule, then you'll want to scroll down to Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and at the 6 o'clock hour on Thursday, on the radio station 2, is a night at the round table with Tara and Rama, I mean, with the panel, excuse me, and... uh you can click on that icon, that will take you directly to your account. And then also on Radio Station 2, this program, The True History History of Misera, like Galactic Origins, there's that icon with Tara and Rama. You'll see that icon at the 1.30 hour. And um, you can click on that icon, that will take you to our account with CBS and make that donation there. For the Friday program, that's on Radio Station 1, so you just click to the Radio Station 1, look for 6 o'clock hour on Friday night. That icon is there for the hard news on Friday nights with Tara and Lala. And uh, that, that, as you click on that, that'll take you to our account as well. So that's how we do it. And uh, so lots of gratitude for your participation and keeping us on the air in a good way and and keeping our family together in this way, as we, we we gather each week to meet this way it's, and do the work that we do, is very meaningful. So, so much gratitude for your input. So, also, we're assisting Tara and Rama with their needs, and they don't have much for bills, but they have lots of personal needs. They really need some funds for going to town and getting gas and getting the things that they need for their their animal cartel, <laughs> the cat herd, <laughs> and with the bunny and the magic rabbit. 
So all that takes money, and um, yeah, they that's what they need this week. So, um, as for t- sending a donation to Tara and Rama, what you want to do is you go to the website rainbowroundtable.net, and there on the home page you'll see that menu grid. Just click on that, and that menu will drop down near the bottom of that menu is the donate link that takes you directly to Rama's PayPal account. So click on that link, go to Rama's PayPal account, and make that donation there for Tara and Rama. And thank you for your generosity. Now, if you have your own PayPal account, you would want to go directly into your own PayPal account to access the friends option by putting in Rama's email there for who you're gifting it to. And that email address for Rama is Koran nine. I'm not the yeah. The email for the PayPal is Koran K O R A N nine 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 four nine at hotmail.com. And that way you access that friends option, and it just eliminates the commercial charges. Either way, it's perfect. We are so grateful for all of your contributions, and uh, so much gratitude. So here's. Here's what we do after we sent some money. We want to let Rama know. So shoot him an email at Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999, at Comcast.net. And let him know when what you sent and when you sent it. And uh, that works perfectly. So as you need it, and, and Rama does need it. Tonight he needs to have some money to go put in the car so that they can do stuff get the toilet paper they need, get the laundry done that they need to do, and just just a lot of things they need to do. So if someone could, could send like 50, 100 bucks tonight, that would be awesome. The mailing address, if you need it, Rom D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D. Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z. And that's at Post Office Box 280-280. And that's Santa Cruz, New Mexico, in the zip code 87567. So Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. That's the the zip. So if anybody could just send them some emergency funds tonight, that would just be totally awesome. So much gratitude. They do need it right away. (laughs) And... uh, yeah, so 13 thank yous and honey in the heart. Long life, no evil. And I'm passing this talking stick, but I'll first give you the address and, and, and a small update for Shop Fremark. It's no longer called Shop Fremark, and this is where we've been going and starting up and getting things for um, good, really high-quality supplements. But they've changed it to be... Compliant with new gen, and so it has a new address, and it's https colon forward slash forward slash www.newgenmark, M-U-G-E-N-M-A-R-T, forward slash P-A-R-R-A-M. And as far as I know, they're not doing any commissions anymore. They're making sure that they're completely compliant at New Gen to, with the uh, any regulations on that sort of um, downline activity that they um, 
we're used to participating in. So that's that's kind of history, and you can go to that address and find out more about it. And I'm sure the old address will work for a while as you use that, so either way. And so the other one is if you're interested in engaging with the new gen option, that address, https colon forward slash forward slash www.newgencoin.com. And then I'm not even sure, to, to tell you the truth, whether it still applies forward slash M-A-R-N-O-R is uh, one address that we can use, and the other one, T-A-R-R-A-M, is the other sponsor. So either one of those were sponsors. And I'm not sure exactly how that changes, too. Anything that's on the public exchange will not be, won't be any commissions applied, is what I'm understanding. And I don't know about the other coin exchange. I'm just not quite up on it. Maybe somebody else might know more than me. So with that, I'm going to pass this talking stick, and Michelle said it best. It's just full of all those flames and rays and um, all that good happiness, love, and peace energy. And I love those birds that's, that are there. So with all that, greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes the talking stick. Greetings, all you commanders, eagles, and angels. Thank you, Rainbird. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, Rainbird. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, everyone, for being here. And there is uh, hope in the air. Yes. Everywhere. Even though... Healing on planet Earth. (laughs) Healing of planet Earth. Cheryl says something different words. Do you remember, Rainbird, what Cheryl says for hope? Okay. Um, Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, um, All we are saying is that we have won. And Rama didn't get a message today, but he's got a little bit to share. Yeah, Um, Living on the edge today, I heard Dennis Kucinich and Ray McGovern talking about the uh, midterms and the fiascos going on. And, you know, there, there's a lot of underhandedness going on because of something called dark money. And Citizens United, and we have a kangaroo court or a Supreme Court. And um, they brought up all the little incidents that have occurred since 9-11 connected with this empire, including the current story going on in Ukraine, where we have a puppet president that is playing with the deep state and the real threat of nukes is in the news and we all know Captain Astar will not allow that. Yet the saber rattling is enough to cause anyone to lose it. Oh. <laughs> and that is the fear. 
Lelouch. That is what we must reject and blaze the violet fire, send more light, the white fire core of being, along with the violet flame, into that energy. Don't worry, be happy. That's right. Who is that again? Oh, um. Let's sing that song. Playing for change. They do, uh, he does it, Plank for Change does it, there's another character that does it. Okay. Yeah. Um, what else? Um, I can see the waves of energy as this eclipse has passed. <coughs> and the waves are getting bigger. And the political social, political, economic energies that have to do with the waves of the eclipse and the different alignments are making a huge impact on us. And as you're aware, you can see the different frequencies of light pouring through the chemtrails and whatever else is out there in the atmosphere that is very awesome to behold. Um, I, I know this is over and at the same time that well, we won't know who controls the house but I would hold the thought that the Democrats continue to hold the house. Yes. That would make it a little bit better. And then Kevin McCarthy could be the Speaker of the House. That sounds a little strange at the moment. He's not a very nice person. And it's all up in the air right now. I would just say what Dennis Kucinich and Ray McGovern talked about is that's quite a combo. It's about the dark money and the pressure behind the candidates who, you know, whether they're election deniers or whatever the case may be, it is all about the money, honey. It goes back to that. And it's all empty air because it's Well, Elon stripped. must must must. must is about to go completely broke. He is, and mm -hmm. there are folks saying he should get in one of his rockets and be on his way. Oh, come on. <laughs> Let's not go there. I, yeah. We send more love we send more to those love. characters. Otherwise, we just keep this thing, oh my goodness, going. What else? Anything else? Nobody? Not that I can think of other than keep radiating this light pouring in. I mean, that is the biggest thing that I see that can change physical matter, space, time, reality. It's magic to some of us, and it's quantum physics to others, but it is about the multiverses coming in right now, and there are beings showing up. 
from so many dimensions because it is this time where she, Gaia, Vaiwamas, has called and all of the galaxy is responding. And this is big because ascension is not a small thing. But um, also uh, Mark Kelly won in Arizona. So now we need just, I mean, if we were going to skinny by, we just need one of the two leftover counting stations, Nevada and Georgia. And it looks like it's a shoe-in for Raphael Warnock in Georgia. Race to Violet Fire. The, the thing in Nevada is crazy close. It's just insane. Like a point-something difference between the two. 49... No, that's Raphael Warnock. Um, hmm... 48 point percent point something, 48.4 and 48.5 percent between the Democratic and the Republican uh, candidates. So let's just jump in. What do you want to do first, Mama? Oh, um, this uh, story about this stone. Okay, yes. Uh, it, this is called the quest for the Chintamani stone. I still hear some background stuff. If everybody could be muted out and well, there's something going on that's bring the background noise. Command on if you could hear myself or something. If there would be a way to make that not happen. Thank you, thank you. Uh, so the quest for the China Chintamani stone, one of the most powerful off-world relics known to mankind. It's akin to the philosopher's stone. So this is 15 minutes. Uh, I just wanted to say in the combination of these different kinds of minerals and stones that are being discovered Wakanda forever is out there now and That's the next one right the next story of King King T'Challa who's on the other side of his of the rainbow and princess I forgot how to pronounce her name is now the king queen of the people of Wakanda and so he's not in the story anymore. He is in... I, I gotta see the movie to tell you. I don't know enough. But he is there like as an um, spirit guide, ascended master to help the civilization of Wakanda. And it's about the vibranium and how people want these precious, exotic, off-world minerals to control civilizations and planets and at this time it, it is about working with love not power and force and violence I'm passing the talking stick here so much of the world today is ill-informed 
about symbols and signs. I try and help people to understand the symbolism, the hidden indicators of where we are in the period of time and where we're going. That's what I do. when a visionary president and a cult-minded vice president and a Russian mystic get together to search for one of the most powerful relics known to humankind. Today on Arcanum, Nicholas Warwick and the Chintamonized Stone. Imagine a stone sent from another world that could magically fulfill all your wishes. And we're not talking about a diamond ring here. We're talking about the Chintamani stone, the stone of Shambhala. In Buddhism, the Chintamani is said to be one of four relics that came in a chest that fell from the sky. Though the king who discovered them did not understand the purpose of the objects, he kept them and revered them prominent element of Buddhist lore, this magical object was typically conceived as a fiery or luminous pearl, and traditions concerning it spread from India to Tibet to Central Asia, China, Japan, Korea, and even to America. As the name indicates, the defining characteristic of this legendary talismatic wishing stone is its alleged ability to fulfill all its owner's desires, no matter how fantastic and be they spiritual or material in nature. It can create wealth, drive away evil, cure illness, purify water, and perform other marvels. Where is it now, we may ask? In William's feature investigation, he will show you how the modern trail and search for the Chintimanai leads to President Franklin D. Roosevelt, his Vice President Henry A. Wallace, and painter Nicholas Rurick. It was March 1933. The Great Depression was suffocating the American spirit. Enter Franklin D. Roosevelt, a wounded king who, like King Arthur, rose from his throne and promised a new deal to transform this wasteland into a flourishing garden once more. Hmm. Meet Henry A. Wallace, corn geneticist, genius, FDR's Secretary of Agriculture and hand-picked successor. What most don't realize is that he was also a disciple of a Russian master and artist named Nicholas Rurik. Mm. Wallace sent Rurik on an expedition to Mongolia that lasted six years, ostensibly to collect seeds of plants that could resist drought. But behind the scenes, most knew there was another agenda. In fact, what insiders knew is that Rurik was sent to Mongolia to search for signs of the second coming of Jesus and also the secrets of the Holy Grail. But beyond that, an even greater secret. Born in St. Petersburg, Russia, he was trained as an artist and a lawyer, and his interests included literature, geography, philosophy, archaeology, but especially art, 
a true modern Renaissance man. Wallace had been a disciple of Rurik since the 1920s, and both men were deeply steeped in ancient occult lore and also deeply inspired by the promise of a new world order, a new deal, a new order of the ages, if you will, Rurik claimed to possess the Chintamani stone, one of four relics that came to earth in a chest from heaven and is held by bodhisattvas, or enlightened being. Between 1923 and 1928, Rurik followed the path, the alleged path, of the so-called lost years of Jesus. We have representations here of Rurik's path as he traveled through India, on into Mongolia, through Tibet, to the land of the immortals in search of Shambhala. Ultimately, though, it was these three men, FDR, Nicholas Rurik, and Henry A. Wallace, who were to reenact the archetypal drama of the three wise men seeking the secrets of the Holy Grail, the Chintamani, and this land of the immortals. What did they discover? In Hinduism and Buddhism, the arcanum is called the Chintamani stone, or the wish-fulfilling jewel, and it's one of the subjects of Rurik's paintings, as we're seeing here, and we'll explore in more detail momentarily. The Chintamani is one of four relics that came to earth in a chest from the heavens and is said to be held by the bodhisattvas, or the enlightened being. And so now we know what Wallace and Rurik are speaking of when he says, we await the stone, and we welcome you again to this glorious land of destiny, America, clouded though it may be with strange fumbling fears. Who shall hold up the compelling vision to those who wander in darkness? In answer to this question, we again welcome you to drive out depression, to drive out fear. We think of the people of northern Shambhala and the hastening feet of the successor. What? Oh. My blood pressure kept climbing. Even though I readings were around 155 over 100 i was spiking out of successor of buddha and the lightning flashes and the breaking of the new day in march 1933 when this letter is written most americans are going to churches with white picket fences out front little did they know that the president fdr and his secretary of agriculture henry a wallace we're talking with a Russian mystic about the people of Shambhala, the land of the immortals, and the successor of Buddha, and the breaking of a new day. This is all alchemical language that they're using here. Wallace closes his letter saying, and so I await your convenience, prepared to do what I am here to do. He's a man on a mission. May peace, joy, and fire attend you as always, G, in the great haste of this strange maelstrom, which is Washington. This letter sets up our entire quest here. We know Rurik is going to Shambhala, seeking the Chintamani stone, and he wants to bring it back to America for FDR. Extraordinary, isn't it? Shambhala is a mythical kingdom that represents a golden age. Geographically, it's thought to be located in Central Asia. Psychically, however... It's within us, and Rurik and Wallace and FDR most certainly knew this. How did Nicholas Rurik learn about the Chintamani stone? Well, that's well documented, as a matter of fact. It happened when he was building the first Buddhist temple in St. Petersburg, Russia, which was completed in 1913. He found favor with Agron Dorgia, the Lama supervising this project. Trusting Rurik, he confided in him the whereabouts of the elusive Chintamani, 
which was last seen in the late 18th century by an Arab scholar. Agran told him that the stone, the Chintamanai, could be found in the king's tower, in the center of Shambhala, the portal of the gods. A story is told that when Rurik reached the flaming tower in Shambhala, that only his white pony was allowed to enter the portal of Shambhala because Rurik believed he wasn't pure enough to enter this realm. The white horse is then a repetitive subject in many of Rurik's paintings, including this one here, the white stone, also painted in 1933. And we see riding upon the horse in the flames is the triple dot symbol that represents the Chintamanai stone. So here's the white horse or white pony carrying the Chintamanai. This painting called The Treasure of the World shows uh, the Chintamanai placed on the white horse, now this time with a flame coming out of the crown of the sacred casket. This is the very same sacred casket that Wallace wrote to Rurik about saying, we await the casket, the sacred most precious casket, and we await the stone. After six years of hard and dangerous searching for the Chintamanai, in 1928, Rurik was given the stone, which is equated with the Philosopher's Stone, by the way, by the abbot of the Salumpu Lamasari in Tibet. Rurik had at last reached Shambhala, and in his paintings, he shows these Buddhist ceremonies that take place in these sacred locations, maybe even a recollection of what he might have seen in Shambhala. On returning to the monastery once again, just before World War I began, Rurik was given another stone by the abbot responsible for giving him the first stone. So Rurik has a direct and very compelling connection to Chintamanak stone. In his published writings, Rurik notes that the stone is in fact so powerful that it has to be stored between two lithium pillars. Very interesting. There's many legends about the Chintamanai. For example, one stone was said to have been sent to Tibet, to, from Tibet to Jerusalem to King Solomon, who actually fashioned it into a ring. Hmm. Now that's extraordinary because Solomon is said to have had all kinds of magical capabilities, including controlling the jinns or, or spirits that assisted in the construction of his magnificent temple. As I mentioned, the Chintamanai is symbolized by three triangulated dots in a pyramid formation, or triple dots. It's very interesting to follow the triple dot symbolism throughout time. For example, Ahura Mazda, the god of light of Zoroastrianism, the religion of ancient Iran, has the Chintamanai on his cloak that is also covered with stars. This indicates that this is a star cloak or a light body garment, and perhaps the Chintamanai is a key aspect of this light body teaching. As we follow the Chintamanai, we see it in the detail here on Ahura Mazda's cloak, the Chintamanai again accompanying the stars. We see it here on the cloak of Hermes, the Greek god of Arcanum, who also wields his caduceus wand. Hermes is known to have been an interdimensional traveler as well. So by having a Chintamanai on his cloak, it indicates another aspect of his teaching, that it's fundamental to traveling interdimensionally. Mary also has the Chintamanai on her typically star-covered cloak. Perhaps the most iconic image of Jesus is, that, is this image here from St. Catherine's Monastery in the Sinai. Jesus gives this astounding gaze or glance at us, but look at the book in his hand. 
What do we see on the book? We see the Chintamani. Is, in fact, the Chintamani the Grail Stone itself? We are part of a quantum process. This universe itself. Centuries later, the Prophet Muhammad, who was also named the Comforter, received other fragments of the Chintamani. In fact, Nicholas Rurik painted Muhammad on Mount Hira. As he stands here on Hira, he's standing before a radiant being, presumed to be Allah, but it could also be one of these other dimensional beings who maybe even has, has now delivered the Chintamani to Muhammad. Some believe, of course, that the Chintamani is the grail stone that was placed in the Ark of the Covenant, along with the other tools or implements that completed this kit, which included the rod of enlightenment, which belonged to Aaron and Moses, the flask of manna, that star food that we believe fed the light body, and the cruise of anointing oil. During his travels throughout Mongolia, Rurik is said to have followed the symbol of the Chintamani, which he saw painted on rocks. Here we see a photo of the Chintamani symbol, the triple dot symbol, representing the three treasures of Buddhism on Mongolian rock. The symbol of the three dots within a circle appears in about ten of Rurik's known works. This painting is the most official representation of the most widely known painting of Rurik's Banner of Peace. This, of course, is the logo of the Chintamani. Some believe that the three balls in a ring of eternity are said to represent the past, the present, and the future. In Madonna Oriflam from 1932, Rurik paints the Madonna holding the banner of peace, the flag with the Chintamani. She also wears it on her crown. The banner of peace, which was created in 1935, was a result of this effort. And here we see FDR and Henry A. Wallace signing the banner of peace. So what did Rurik find in Shambhala? I'm William Henry. Thank you for watching Arcanum. And I'm Claire Henry. See you next time. Okay, everybody. Very interesting. Okay, we're going to jump right in. This is accountability time. It's Bobby Kennedy Jr. Part two about the real Fauci. A humdinger. Oh, God. It really is. And it's time for this to happen. Accountability we're talking about. So here we go. Raise the violet fire. Yeah. as healthcare workers around the world on alert. The outbreak of a mystery virus in China. A new virus has been discovered that has pandemic potential. The biggest concern is that it could become airborne. The majority of the cases are in China, where the virus was first reported on December 31st. 
At least 45 people have contracted the virus. Animal is probably the source of this new virus. At some point, this virus jumped from animals to humans. It is now spreading across Asia. And while the risk of U.S. outbreak is still low, majority of Americans, the risk is very low. A SARS-like virus, which has infected hundreds in China, has now reached the United States. The first case of the deadly Chinese coronavirus making its way to the U.S. He came to Seattle January 15th, and within a day, he's diagnosed. It is a coronavirus. We don't know how contagious it is. Now called COVID-19. COVID-19. Over 100 cases in more than a dozen states. To unleash the full power of the federal government in this effort today, I am officially declaring a national emergency. Stay at home. That is the order tonight from four state governors. We've been asking people to stay at home during this pandemic. You were planning to see friends this weekend. Maybe don't. What you're talking about is our 15 days to stop the spread initiative. We should be acting as if we have the virus, as Tony Fauci said. Stay at home. The message was met with skepticism. Shoppers stocking up on necessities. Shelves that usually pull toilet paper wiped clean. Shoppers rush into a Los Angeles Costco this morning with this warning. Supplies are being rationed. Keep up the unprecedented coronavirus panic shopping. Many people are buying too much, leaving empty shelves. Over these last few weeks, stay-at-home orders have turned America's densest and most vibrant cities into virtual ghost towns. Strict lockdown laws have turned the global city into a ghost town. We turn to Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Anthony Fauci of the National Institutes of Health. The 15 days that we had of mitigation clearly have had an effect. When we extended the guidelines from the 15-day guidelines to now 30 days. COVID-19 lockdown has been extended indefinitely in China's Chengdu city. 26 million people confined to their homes and no end in sight. This whole kind of dynamic of profiteering and the divergence of, of vaccination and the regulatory process really arcing towards corruption, control, and private profit, the pharmaceutical industry, accelerator amplified dramatically after the meeting between Anthony Fauci and Bill Gates in 2000. Those two men had kind of a synergistic effect on each other. So you have the, the entire biomedical research and the medical cartel globally now controlled by a tiny handful of men with Gates and Fauci driving it. And you've had this giant diversion of foreign aid dollars away from the traditional interests and intentions of foreign aid. Now virtually a huge percentage of it going to vaccine only and with no accountability, with nobody actually saying, are more lives being saved? Is quality of life improving? Is public health improving? It's just an ideology. It's religion. And there are high priests of that religion, and you're not allowed to question them. Starting with AIDS and going through everything, uh, SARS and MERS and Zika and bird flu, they have one thing in common, Fauci at the center. We have the anthrax spore attacks 
We did SARS in 2002, MERS 2003, bird flu in 2005, H1N1 2009. This is the same playbook, different virus. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation put up $10 billion in 2010 to make the decades of vaccines to be from 2010 to 2020. Another day of germ warfare and still no sign. The worst case of bioterrorism in this country. America strikes back. Anthrax. Another infection. This time at NBC News and Rockefeller Plaza. In just a week's time, we have had four confirmed cases of anthrax, all with media connections and a number of anthrax scares as well. On October 5th, 2001, Almost a month after the September 11th terrorist attacks on New York City, the Pentagon, and Western Pennsylvania, terror of another type struck. President Bush tries reassuring the nation after anthrax is found at a facility that handles mail going to the White House. On a week after 9-11, there was an anthrax attack. The anthrax attacks precipitated a new interest in our intelligence community and the Pentagon in bioweapons development. Pentagon wanted to start developing bioweapons again, but it knew the only way it could legally do that is it told the public that it was developing vaccines, and it was nervous and nobody would believe them. And so instead of doing the studies themselves, they began funneling the money through Tony Fauci. Ultimately, if civilians are going to need protection against anthrax, the answer may be found in a new vaccine. Dr. Fauci thinks the events of September 11th will speed that process. In, in usual times, that, that's a process that takes years and years. But I can tell you the amount of time that it's going to take, given the urgency of the situation, is going to be markedly truncated. I was there at the time when that was really launched. I know a lot of the people. I know where a lot of the bodies are buried, the nuance of what happened there, of the various groups that ended up acting in corrupt ways over time. I saw the uh, initiation of the company that we now call Emergent Biosystems and its role in aggressively protecting its estate, exclusive estate in anthrax vaccines. At Dynport Vaccine Company, I took a position as the Associate Clinical Research Director. I played a role in almost all of the biodefense products. At that time, the Vice President of the United States, Dick Cheney, engaged in uh, enabling a whole new biodefense infrastructure, really a whole new segment of the medical industrial complex. Robert Cadillac, who's been steeping himself essentially in, in obsessions about anthrax, is added to be the top bioterrorist uh, consultant to Paul Wolfowitz and Donald Rumsfeld immediately after 9-11 in this critical period of just a few weeks uh, leading up to the 2001 anthrax attack. Saving lives in an emergency requires cutting-edge medical countermeasures, medications, vaccines, diagnostics, and more. In 2001, he was teaching at the U.S. National War College. 
during that year, he participated in something called Dark Winter, which was a emergency preparedness game that's controversial in some circles for several reasons, because it took place in June 2001, and there's several aspects of the script of that exercise that ended up being the running narrative of the 2001 anthrax attacks, so like the uh, anthrax being sent in letters had previously been gamed out at this Dark Winter exercise, and actually it's Robert Cadillac who gave the exercise Dark Winter its name. There was a simulation called Dark Winter that didn't come out very well. During June 22nd and 23rd, 2001, less than three months before the 9-11 attacks, the Pentagon launched a war game codename Operation Dark Winter at Andrews Air Force Base that emphasized the military's earnest commitment to bioweapons vaccines. Robert Cadillac was the lead organizer of this pandemic simulation. Dark Winter participants explored strategies for imposing coercive quarantine, censorship, mandatory masking, lockdowns, and forced vaccination, and expanded police powers as the only rational response to the pandemic. It's really important for people to understand the odd chronology of what happened and initiated the biosecurity agenda in our country, which is now the spear tip of American foreign policy. In June of 2001, you had the dark winter simulation scripted by the CIA, which predicted a smallpox attack mounted by somebody who was clearly a Saddam Hussein-like figure. At the same time, you have the Pentagon engaged in Operation Bacchus, which is developing a feasibility study for developing a garage anthrax mechanism by which terrorist groups could create anthrax. So it actually creates the model for a terrorist group to create an anthrax attack on our country. If you look at Anthony Fauci's tenure at NIAD, specifically after the 2001 anthrax attacks, he was responsible for the massive funding of numerous biosafety labs throughout the United States, several of which have engaged in gain-of-function experiments uh, during that period of time. Gain-of-function refers to experiments that intentionally modify a pathogen to create the ability to cause or worsen disease, enhance transmissibility, and or create novel strains with the potential to cause global spread in humans. The problem is we don't have enough vaccine to go around. Meaning we don't have enough vaccine for the United States? Well, I would like to think that, but we don't have sufficient uh, stockpiles for the people in Oklahoma, Georgia, or Pennsylvania, much less for the entire United States population. Well, that certainly doesn't sound encouraging. What do you mean exactly? It means it could be a very dark winter for America. When those attacks happened, it, the investigation quickly revealed that those strains were of a domestic source linked to the U.S. military, and there was no way that it was actually of a foreign origin, as was being suggested at the time. Operating North was a proposal that was put in front of my uncle by his UN chiefs of staff. It was a false flag event. He's the people like General Lemon served, members of Curtis LeMay, with one World War II. And um, there was no more respect to military leaders in our country. And they said to him, we should plant bombs and kill American citizens and blame it on the Cubans. 
and do a series of other events that would kill and cause mayhem and death in America to American citizens in order to justify an unprovoked attack on Cuba. These were the, the center of the American military. They were proposing murdering American citizens to create a provocation to invade another country. My uncle heard their proposal, said nothing to them, walked out of the meeting in the middle of the proposal, and said to one of his aides, and we call ourselves the human race. He was disgusted. These were the most respected military and intelligence officers alive at that time. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as people, inherently and historically, opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We cannot exclude the possibility that the anthrax was sent out by somebody within our own government to serve some larger agenda. And the FBI later determined that the anthrax had come from Fort Detrick or one of two other military labs that are operated by the U.S. intelligence agencies and by the United States military. The government agencies and the mainstream media initially pointed to Saddam Hussein as the culprit behind the anthrax attacks. We've seen the enemy. The terrorists cannot be reasoned with. The anthrax attacks were used as a provocation to ram through the Patriot Act with almost no debate and to initiate this war against Adam Hussein. There's always the potential for bioterror. And we have a major biodefense research and development effort that spans agencies from the NIH to do the basic research to be able to develop better vaccines. Having said that, the worst bioterrorist is nature itself. The chances of nature creating something really bad is much better than we mere mortal humans doing it. When no further bioterror attacks occurred over the next 10 years, Dr. Fauci skillfully maintained his annual $1.7 billion biosecurity budget by deftly recalibrating his rhetoric away from bioterrorism hype. Instead, he invoked the new panic of a natural but emerging infectious disease. And ever since 2001, Anthony Fauci has been running around the world like this kind of agitated chicken little, warning everybody about the advent of bird flu or the pandemic du jour, and none of them ever materializes until, of course, they hatch one themselves. Right now, if we had an explosion of an H5N1, we would not be prepared for that. I don't see it as an exercise because it could be the big one. It could be. And if it is, all rushing around, doing what we need to do, pushing the envelope is not for naught or in vain. The pandemic flu, there's no responsiveness and no background immunity of anyone. Another reason why we really have to rev up our preparedness. Nowhere in the world is completely safe when there's an epidemic raging in one part of the world. The 2005 PrEP Act 
was put into legislation at the time that they were running around screaming about bird flu. They came in and gave them complete liability protection for anything that was de- that was developed that was called a covered countermeasure for a pandemic. So they were laying the groundwork for this a long time ago. The Injury Compensation Act was set up. It was supposed to be a watchdog organization, but we've got the fox monitoring the hen house because we have the FDA monitoring complaints against vaccines that are primarily sold by the CDC. So it was never, ever set up the way that it should have been. It's absolutely horrific. It's completely unconstitutional because there is no separation of powers. This is not within the judiciary. It's even more liability protection for industry than under the 1986 National Childhood Vaccine Injury Program. If you can show by clear and convincing evidence, you might be able then to take your case to civil court. But the PREP Act is like, almost an insurmountable wall. Even with a vaccine, there still would be some suffering and death. We must protect the American people by stockpiling vaccine. In 2005, I was going to Washington, D.C. about every two to three months to go into the pandemic planning meetings, pandemics associated with bird flu. And it wasn't until a little bit later that we realized that these coronaviruses had been weaponized to illegal gain-of-function research to weaponize the spike proteins, and that that was what was falling underneath the EUA so that people could be injected with these shots with a weaponized spike protein. So it wasn't just garden variety coronaviruses that were causing flu. In 2005, a created a spike flu epidemic, which of course never happened. It was declared a pandemic where 40 million uh, vaccines distributed, and again, they caused uh, Bell's palsy and Guillain-Barre and a lot of other neurological injuries. The vaccine ultimately had to be pulled. 46 states are reporting H1N1 as widespread, with more than 1,000 deaths and 20,000 hospitalizations. And while an average case is usually no more dangerous than other flu, this strain has its unknowns. 30% of the deaths are in healthy people with no underlying problems. President Obama decided to declare the epidemic a national emergency of swine flu. And around the country, people were lining up waiting for hours to get vaccinations. But there are only 11 million doses available, far short of the 40 million expected by this time. We need hospitals and healthcare providers to continue preparing for an increased patient load and to take steps to protect healthcare workers. We need families and businesses to ensure that they have plans in place if a family member, a child, or a co-worker contracts the flu and needs to stay home. We're also making steady progress on developing a safe and effective H1N1 flu vaccine, and we expect a flu shot program will begin soon. This program will be completely voluntary, but it will be strongly recommended. This morning's Flu Watch, vaccine side effects. Government health officials say they have worked very hard to make sure the H1N1 vaccine is safe for everyone. However, one rare, and we should emphasize rare, side effect of flu vaccines is starting to show up around the country. This is 14-year-old Jordan McFarland. Weeks ago, he was an athletic young man playing sports. Now he needs a walker to move from room to room. It's an aching 
but it's 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 also a pain that I can't describe. Doctors told Jordan's parents he has Guillain-Barre syndrome, or GBS, a rare illness in which the immune system attacks the nervous system. Jordan's family believes the H1N1 vaccine is to blame. 24 hours after he received both the seasonal and swine flu vaccines, he was hospitalized. During the 1976 swine flu scare, officials vaccinated 45 million people. Of those, almost 1,100 developed GBS. If you really look at the scientific data, it is unclear why that happened. Clearly, the risk of the complication of the disease is greater than the risk of the vaccine. We hear from a physician in Durham, North Carolina. Good morning. Hi, good morning, Dr. Fauci. Good morning, um, Pedro. Um, You've been at the NIH a pretty long time, and it seems to me that during your tenure, our ability to control infectious diseases hasn't improved, but in fact, worse. And don't you think it's time that you step down and let someone else who has a more effective message? <laughs> Actually, no. <laughs> and then Ebola, which, although it was much smaller, uh, there was some luck involved in that. Because it wasn't spread through uh, respiratory contact, the reproductive rate was a lot lower. And you know, it was basically people who were sick or dead. Uh, we're doing most of the transmission. I wasn't involved in any of the evidence synthesis for around Ebola, but I am aware of a key document and, and a meeting that was held in September 2015 for sharing research and data during public health emergencies. These participants included Wellcome Trust, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, it included members of big pharma such as J&J, Glasgow Smith Klein, uh, Takeda Vaccine, Sanofi, and also um, the International Federation of Pharmaceutical Manufacturers Association. Remdesivir is a toxic drug. They tried it for Ebola, and they actually had to abandon the study because of the increased risk of death. We know that remdesivir increases the risk of renal failure, that's kidney failure, at least 20-fold. And this is based on the World Health Organization data. They were announcing a commitment over this next decade uh, which we think of as a, a decade of, of vaccines. They were ramping up the pediatric schedule. They were ramping up the requirements for schools. They started passing laws where you, they took away your exemption rights that you had a right to refuse because they wanted all those kids vaccinated. If all those kids are vaccinated, they become mostly customers for life with their asthma, allergies, eczema, ADD, ADHD, insulin-dependent diabetes. You don't see those illnesses in healthy, unvaccinated children. So we needed to push that forward to create a, a generational customers for life because the drug companies blockbuster drugs were running out of patents because patents are about 20 to 22 years. Somebody gave me a transcript of a secret meeting that had occurred between the leading public health officials and the pharmaceutical industry that had occurred in the year 2000. And the precursor of that meeting was an internal study that had been done in 1999 by CDC following this explosion in the vaccine schedule and began in 1989. We started seeing the beginning of the autism epidemic and an epidemic of other neurological and autoimmune diseases. And when the first data set came back, it was shocking. Children who had received that vaccine had an 1135% greater chance of getting a subsequent autism diagnosis than kids who did not. They spent most of the time talking about how 
hide these associations from the American public. And what their strategy will be for conducting studies ended up being very, very fraudulent studies. I get a hold of that transcript and I publish excerpts from it in Rolling Stone and Salon simultaneously. And immediately there was a storm of controversy pressuring Rolling Stone and Salon to take down the article. You know, I was initially shocked to see this level of censorship and the control of pharmaceutical industry exercises over the American media. I was doing at that time uh, probably 60 speeches a year for a significant part of my income, a lot of the universities and corporate events. Those speeches disappeared. I was writing every six months an op-ed for the New York Times, and they stopped publishing me not only on vaccine issues, but on any issue on environmental issues, etc. You get deplatformed if you tell the truth and or if you say anything that challenges government orthodoxies. Let me ask you about vaccines. There's obviously been a controversy with uh, children's vaccines about whether or not they might cause autism. Yeah. What is your view on that? There, there is, I, mean, I have a strong view on that. There's zero evidence that the vaccines that were in question, particularly measles and MMR, have anything at all to do with the development. In 2016, when I met with uh, with Tony Fauci, we had a very, very heated meeting. I was with Aaron Seary, who's another attorney, and El Bigtree, and Edward sat across from the table. Um, him and Francis Collins and the other public health leadership. And I said to him during that meeting, you've been publicly saying that there are safety studies on, on these vaccines prior to getting a license, they say that there are none. There was an observer from the White House at that meeting, so he was under some pressure to defend his record, and he said, well, there are studies, and I said, can you show us any? And they made a show of looking through a series of briefcases and files to try to find what they were looking for, and they said, we'll send them to you. And, of course, they never sent them. And at the end of that meeting... I was in the hallway, and Tony Fauci came up to me and took me aside and had a quiet conversation with me out of earshot of everything else. And he said, I want to commend you for what you're doing. Um, It's important work, and you keep us all on our toes. So thank you. And that was his message to me. You can be the judge of how earnest he was. Over Christmas vacation, I got a call from somebody in President-elect Donald Trump's office asking me to come meet with the President-elect the 1st of January. I went in to meet with him at Trump Tower. This was maybe two or three weeks before the inauguration. And he asked me to chair and to assemble a vaccine safety committee that would look at the safety of the various vaccinations. And I said that I would be happy to do that. So March 2017 in the White House, he asked me if vaccines weren't a bad thing because he was considering a commission to look into uh, ill effects of vaccines. And, and somebody, his name is Robert Kennedy Jr., was advising him that vaccines were causing things, and I said, no, that's a dead end, that would be a bad thing, don't do that. I don't know whether these things are connected, but 
the president soon after this announcement occurred took a million dollar contribution for his inaugural party from Pfizer and then chose two of Pfizer's handpicked candidates, Alex Azar and Utley, from the public health agencies, and those gentlemen killed the vaccine safety commission. There is no question that there will be a challenge to the coming administration in the arena of infectious diseases, both chronic infectious diseases, and you will understand why history, the history of the last 32 years that I've been the director of NIAID, will tell the next administration that there's no doubt in anyone's mind that they will be faced with the challenges that their predecessors were faced with. There will be a surprise outbreak. It was the market test. It was laying the groundwork for what they needed to do with the fear-based messages to put everybody on high alert, to actually have everybody start talking about this pandemic. SARS, MERS, bird flu, Zika virus, H1N1, SARS, MERS, Ebola outbreak, Zika, bird flu. So we really do have a problem of how the world perceives influenza, and it's going to be very difficult to change that unless you do it from within and say, I don't care what your perception is, we're going to address the problem in a disruptive way and in an iterative way, because you do need both. In terms of safety, we know that this is probably the most toxic medical intervention that has ever been released. Pfizer knew this, the FDA knew this. In the first two months after the release of the Pfizer vaccine, Pfizer were aware of over 1,200 deaths directly related to the vaccine and over 40,000 adverse events. A major milestone in the COVID-19 pandemic. The Pfizer vaccine is now fully FDA approved for people 16 and up. It's the first COVID-19 shot to move out of the emergency use phase. To get the emergency use authorization, they really don't have to release any information about their clinical trials to the public. But Pfizer uniquely got full approval for his Comirnaty vaccine. In order to get that, they had to make a submission to FDA describing their clinical trials. And that submission, although it's a bare-bones submission, there's a lot of interesting information in that submission. We want all the underlying data, and Pfizer and FDA have refused to release it. And in fact, and Aaron Siri, who is my colleague, sued Pfizer to get the data. FDA intervened on behalf of Pfizer. Pfizer has said it doesn't want to release that data for 75 years, and FDA is supporting that position. Here you have the government regulatory agency collaborating with a pharmaceutical company to keep secret the results of clinical trials on a drug that is now mandated to virtually everybody in America, for which the company has no liability, so no matter no matter how grievously you're injured, no matter how reckless or negligent your conduct, you can't sue them. When it comes to boosters, mixing and matching vaccines is likely safe and effective. The main vaccination is free, safe and convenient. If you're fully vaccinated, 
You're highly protected. You're as safe as possible. If you get vaccinated, you are protected. You know, the vaccine is safe and effective. Safe and effective. It's the narrative which has been perpetuated ad infinitum. And we know that's a complete and utter lie. Even though vaccines, because of the high degree of transmissibility of this virus, don't protect overly well, as it were, against infection. We know from the most recent data, the vaccine actually increases your risk of getting COVID. I mean, that is an astonishing fact. Back in the mid-1950s, Dr. Jonas Salk developed a killed injectable polio vaccine. At first, it was widely used, but now it has largely been replaced by the live saving vaccine. It has now come to light in the United States that the live virus vaccine for polio does cause the disease itself. We made an absolutely positive assertion that the live virus vaccine could be given without risk of paralysis. That statement was made by the American Medical Association in its June meeting of 1961 at a time when all of us knew that cases had been occurring. In the Federal Register, honest to God, 1984, um, there is a section that speaking about polio vaccines in which the federal government asserts that any information, whether true or not, which would cause vaccine hesitancy is to be suppressed. Because of the Freedom of Information Act filing, courts forced Pfizer and the FDA to disclose the full dossier of documents around the Pfizer BioNTech product. And there's a table in there, in that disclosed information, that lists many, 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 many adverse events of special interest that are now clearly shown to be associated with the RNA vaccine technologies. In the internal documents, the side effects that Pfizer identified are completely different from the side effects that the CDC discloses, for instance, on its website. It says you may have chills, you may have fatigue, you may have a headache. The Pfizer internal documents show massive thousands of joint pain, like rheumatoid arthritis type crippling joint pain. Another gigantic category is muscle pain, myalgia. Thousands of results are neurological disorders, Guillain-Barre, Bell's palsy, multiple sclerosis, encephalitis, thrombocytopenia, lung clots, leg clots, cardiac problems, heart damage, stroke. The internal documents show that the spike protein is toxic and also causing harm. Well, another round of Pfizer documents have dropped. Over 11,000 pages were released. Adverse reactions were more frequent and more severe in younger groups. In May of 2021, Pfizer knew that 35 minors, teenagers, had suffered heart damage within a week after being injected by the mRNA vaccines but they didn't tell the rest of us. And the FDA issued the emergency use authorization for teenagers in June, a month later, also knowing about the heart damage. But the government didn't tell us, didn't issue a press release about heart damage to minors or young adults till August of 2021, after thousands and thousands and thousands of teenagers and young adults 
went ahead and got injected and their parents allowed them to or brought them to their doctors to get injected, not knowing that this could damage their heart. Pfizer received the biggest criminal fine in U.S. history as a part of a $2.3 billion settlement with federal prosecutors for mispromoting medicines and for paying kickbacks to compliant doctors. In the 1990s, they were involved in defective heart valves that led to the deaths of more than 100 people. Amid widespread criticism of high pricing for poor countries, and in particular AIDS medications, Pfizer was sued in a U.S. federal court by Nigerian families who accused the company of testing a dangerous new antibiotic called Troban on children without parents' consent and using their children as human guinea pigs. In 2004, Pfizer subsidiary agreed to pay $430 million to resolve criminal charges that it paid physicians to prescribe its epilepsy drug, Neurontin, to patients with ailments which the medication was not approved. Pfizer also had a class action suit with a $60 million settlement over Resolin, diabetes medication that resulted in patients dying from acute liver failure. In 2010, a federal jury found that Pfizer committed racketeering fraud in its marketing of the drug. 2012, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission announced that it had reached a $45 million settlement with Pfizer to resolve charges that its subsidiaries had bribed overseas doctors and other healthcare professionals to increase foreign sales. In the U.K., they have been fined nearly 19 million pounds by the U.K.'s competition watchdog for unfair pricing to the NHS after hiking up the cost of an anti-epilepsy drug by two and a half thousand percent. Billion dollar profits and illegal activity at this country's biggest drug company. Is there anything to stop this company or other big drug, drug companies from doing it again? Pfizer says its vaccine for children ages 5 to 11 is 90% effective against symptomatic COVID. Members of the FDA committee agreed the benefits of the vaccine for younger children appear to outweigh the risk. So Moderna's chief medical officer says his company is also developing an Omicron specific booster that would take two to three months to get into testing and then production. You said Pfizer could do the same 100 days or less. Is that a window that can be narrowed depending on how the, the work goes? Around 60 days in the development, we will have clinical production of the vaccines so we can go and test humans. And then within 95 days, we will have the full results of, uh, of this uh, trial. Albert Borla, I really appreciate your work and, and your time tonight. Thank you. Anderson Cooper 360, brought to you by Pfizer. 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 Pfizer asked to be compensated for the cost of any future lawsuits. In case of any side effects, Pfizer be exempted from all civil liability. An advocacy group has thrown up more details on what Pfizer does. It has access to confidential contracts of Pfizer. Pfizer is silencing governments. How? Through contracts. These airtight contracts are at the center of everything. Pfizer also gets to decide who will get the shot. They won't be able to sue Pfizer at home. The matter will go to a secret panel of three private arbitrators in New York. This is vaccine terrorism. Until and unless somebody goes to prison, somebody high up goes to prison, and or the company is banned from selling drugs to Medicare or Medicaid, this activity will continue. What we do know, which is truly astonishing, is that if you look at the lot number of the vaccines, is that certain lots of the vaccine are associated with a thousand-fold increased risk of adverse events compared to other ones. Some of the material in the vaccines is completely inert and is a placebo. Some of these vaccines may contain really high concentrations of messenger RNA. We know that they manipulated 
the the RNA. They change the uridine residues. They change some of the nucleotides. They put caps on each end. So this is a synthetic mRNA. And when patients are injected with this, we have no idea if the same molecule is given to every single patient in the same quantity. So we have no idea what's in these files. I mean, it's truly unprecedented that a physician would inject a patient with the medication that they really don't understand what's in it. At the time, there was very little known about the adverse events. All the publicity was that it was safe and effective that there were no major adverse events. And there were no hospitalizations or deaths in the individuals who were vaccinated. We now have three highly efficacious vaccines, and there have been no hospitalizations or deaths in multiple countries. I knew that I wasn't going to be able to participate in these international research conferences if I wasn't vaccinated. Particularly after dose number two, I had life-threatening hypertension. My wife, Jill, heard about this website that listed adverse events by batch. So uh, she looked up the How Bad Is My Batch website and dialed in the batch numbers that I had received. And it turned out that my second dose was a batch that was known to have a very high number of adverse events and deaths based on the DARE system compared to other batches. These synthetic RNAs, they behave very differently. They're not a natural RNA. They don't degrade rapidly. They stick around for a very long period of time. We really don't even understand how long or where they go or if they can be taken up again by other cells and still produce protein. None of that was characterized. I speak about this being the largest experiment ever done on human beings at a very fundamental level. We have no understanding of what we've done, and yet we have taken this synthetic molecule that's not really RNA and administered it to the global population. Medical establishment facilitated both the lead-up to the Holocaust and the Holocaust. The medical establishment went in lockstep with the government. And the first medical murder victims in Nazi Germany were German infants and children. Their crime was that they were disabled, not perfect. Over a thousand children were medically murdered at hospitals that became murder institutions. It then spread to all children and adults with disabilities, to the mentally ill. There were two reasons that they used to justify. It was called T4. One was to cleanse the genetic pool of the imperfect. And the other was to get rid of the economic burden. People don't want to compare the Holocaust to anything else. Why? You've got to go with the truth. And no, we won't see gas chambers. We won't see crematoria. They don't need that. Now their weapons are technological. Australia has them already. Canada. If your test results come back positive, you'll need to immediately quarantine in designated government facilities. This is not optional. Now, when this happens in other countries, and it does, 
We call those facilities internment camps. The Nazis, by the way, didn't call it eugenics, they called it hygiene. It's always somehow with cleansing. But they're talking about murder. Governments today and totalitarian forces now have an arsenal of new technologies that give them the capacity to control human behavior that was unavailable to totalitarian regimes in the past. The intention of every totalitarian regime in history has been absolute control of human behavior, of descent, of human thought, of human movements. But today we have a bunch of new technological innovations that makes that more and more difficult. I don't know why they think I'm interested in knowing, you know, people's locations. That one I still have to laugh at. This man is also a prime investor in EarthNow LLC, a company promising to deploy a large constellation of advanced imaging satellites that will deliver real-time, continuous video of almost anywhere on Earth. I believe we should create what I call the GERM team. Uh, GERM stands for Global Epidemic Response and Mobilization. This group is full-time. The cost of this team is significant. It's over a billion a year. Uh, to support the 3,000 people who would be on this team. The work would be coordinated by the WHO. And a very important thing is that, like firefighters, a germ team would do drills. When you want to have quick response, practice is key. You need to know if, say, a lot of people were to show up with a, a new kind of cough, that's when germ needs to look into it and say, is this an outbreak? Is there a new pathogen here? Disease monitoring, that's germ. They'd have more in the lower income countries. You know, for example, we could have germ members, say an epidemiologist working out of the Africa CDC office uh, in Abuja. They want to think that Bill is a great guy. And he's over in Africa trying to save as many lives as possible. So propagandists have to know how to translate issues into language that will push people's buttons in a positive way. And we can see that Bill Gates has been schooled in how to come across as friendly and nice uh, when he's nothing of the kind. Well, it so happens that Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, and Mark Zuckerberg have invested in a startup called Biomilk, which uses mammary cells and donated breast milk to create lab-grown baby formula. This is yet one more example of an intervention to disrupt the way the human body used to be self-sufficient. You know, disrupt human immunity, disrupt human gestation, just disrupt human lactation, and make human beings dependent on outside forces, really for their immune system, or really for their ability to feed their children. Both uh, myself and Dr. Fauci have uh, featured in conspiracy theories. You know, like one says that Dr. Fauci is trying to make money off of these vaccines. One of the secrets that they've tried to keep hidden at NIH are these direct payments from the pharmaceutical industry, not only to the agency, but to hundreds, if not thousands of scientists and officials within those agencies for royalty payments for the drugs that that agency has partnered with the pharmaceutical company to develop and market. The agency has become a marketing arm for Big Pharma, and they don't want the American public to know that is the 
ultimate object of this terrible devolution. And, you know, one of the big emblems of that devolution are these payments that are being made to Tony Fauci, to his deputies, to his PIs, and to his scientists. We sent FOIL requests, we made inquiries, and NIH has stumbled us. The NIH is in the process, you know, in the midst, as you know, of you know, awarding grants for research. And the idea that scientists may be benefiting financially from work that they've done at NIH, that creates, to me, experience of a conflict of interest. We are following the Bayh-Dole Act when it comes to that. So you're saying it's federal law that allows the NIH to leaders of the organization to receive royalty payments. I think, Dr. Fauci, you've said that you've donated your royalties to charities, is my understanding. What strikes me is you're in a position where you're saying certain drugs don't work. They don't like ivermectin because they aren't benefiting from that royalty, or they don't like hydroxychloroquine. If the agency is awarding who the beneficiary of the grant who's doing the trial, and there are somehow finances involved, that there's a financial benefit that could be accrued if someone's, uh, you know, patent or invention is considered valid. Do you not see that as a conflict? Well, we came to understand that Fauci's financial records are buried deep in a government bunker. And they're so sensitive to the National Institutes of Health that they are defying the Freedom of Information Act. When we sued the National Institutes of Health on our Freedom of Information Act request from the Fauci financials, on discovery, we learned that the National Institutes of Health have declared war on transparency. They're past due on 633 Freedom of Information Act requests. They're being sued at least 35 times over those requests. On the production of third-party royalty payments subject to our lawsuit, NIH provided top-line numbers. So we can estimate over the last decade just how much money flowed from third-party payers, think pharmaceutical companies, back to NIH and its scientists. And that's nearly $350 million over the course of that decade. And we can see the scientists' names. There's 1,800 scientists that received payments. Here's what we can't see. We can't see the payment amount to the individual scientists. It's been erased, it's been blacked out and redacted. We can't see the name of the third party payer, think pharmaceutical company. That's been erased and redacted. And furthermore, they've redacted the patent number and the license number, so we don't know why the royalty is being paid. We don't know what the invention was. That information has not been made public. And I think sooner rather than later, you should make that information public because right now, I think the NIH has a credibility problem. Since the start of the pandemic, I wrote six columns out of 92 in regard to Dr. Anthony Fauci. When I wrote three in succession from December of 2021 through January of 2022, those are the last columns I ever wrote at Forbes. The National Institutes of Health, they came down hard on Forbes. Forbes came down hard on me. I told the truth, and Forbes terminated my column. 
there are so many countless witnesses who came out of that house of Fauci who speak to, all of a sudden I lost everything. All of a sudden I, I lost my job. Nobody would speak to me. I was blacklisted because of one quote I gave, one paper I wrote. The call Dr. Fauci, America's doctor, is such an outrageous misnomer. He's a shyster. He is a man without scruples of any kind. I've met uh, Dr. Fauci on many occasions, and I've seen him do damage to my industry through my entire professional career. He should be charged with the crimes that he's been responsible for, which go back to the HIV era. He did some terrible experiments in Africa. None of the rules seem to apply to him, and they never have. It's elements of totalitarian societies, and it also has the theme of mafioso velvetness to it. He's essentially a mafia don who runs all three agencies. He rules science and the practice of medicine. He's resulted in the death of hundreds of thousands of patients. When you hear something like this, to be honest, do you ever just think, you know, I'm out of here. This is <laughs> this is enough. I I don't need this. It's like in The Godfather, nothing personal, strictly business, you know? <laughs> in 2020, Dr. Fauci approved a $420,000 grant to do an experiment in which baby beagles were bitten to death by flies. They actually put a cage on the beagles' heads and filled the cage with flies so the beagle couldn't escape them and, and kill them. And whatever the scientific merits of that experiment, there are boundaries where we hope that government officials will say Americans don't do that. Abraham Lincoln said about our country, America is a great nation because we're a good nation. Throughout our history, our you know, most visionary and beloved leaders have said, we aren't going to do that. Washington said, we don't torture people, even if it would give us an advantage in war. Because that is inconsistent with our values. And we hope that our leaders, people who've been in office for 50 years, are regarded as templates for American government who would respect those kind of boundaries. The NIH and all of its satellites, people don't realize these organizations are part of the U.S. military. They function as military organizations. The NIH and every organization under the HHS umbrella. So these notions that we have, that there should be freedom of scientific expression and discourse and dialectic, that's our fantasy. American science really falls under the direct command of the U.S. military. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. Research has become central. It also becomes more formalized, complex, and costly. A steadily increasing share is conducted for, by, or at the direction of the federal government. Today, the solitary inventor, tinkering in his shop, has been overshadowed by task forces of scientists in laboratories and testing fields. Partly because of the huge costs involved, a government contract becomes virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity.
in holding scientific research and discovery in respect, as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific, technological elite. That speech was given on my birthday, and I remember that because it was right before my uncle's inauguration, and I would say it's the most important speech in American history because it was a warning against the domination and the loss of our democracy to a military-industrial complex, and he specifically cited the rise of the health bureaucracy as a threat to democracy and to American values. 23 countries and the World Health Organization have backed the idea of an international treaty to help deal with future health emergencies like COVID-19. In May of 2022, the World Health Organization announced a new initiative in which all of the major nations in the world would sign on to a treaty that would give the World Health Organization this kind of centralized control over all future pandemics. And the sovereign nations would relinquish at least some of their sovereign capacity to develop their own strategies for dealing with pandemics or for recognizing the existence of pandemics. So now you have the World Health Organization that wants to give itself the ultimate authority to declare a pandemic anytime it wants with very few objective criteria, and then to dictate mandates and protocols for that all the other nations have to obey. And I think that's really disconcerting. And the fact that all of these countries, including the American government, are taking this seriously and not ridiculing it, it's frightening for, for democracy. That is the goal, that's the power grab, to move all decision-making and all money to this One Health framework. There will be other pandemics and other major health emergencies. No single government or multilateral agency can address this threat alone. Together, we must be better prepared to predict, prevent, detect, assess, and effectively respond to pandemics in a highly coordinated fashion. The 194 member states of the World Health Organization resolve to work together towards a new international instrument for pandemic preparedness and response. This treaty involves um, some rather concerning propositions, and this includes that um, that WHO would have the authority in, in the event of another pandemic, uh, who would decide what the disease is called, how you would measure the disease, how you would test for the disease, the safety standards of the vaccines, whatever treatments they decide. It could be that these vaccines get developed in 100 days, which is totally ludicrous. Also, they could decide on who has to have them, whether they get mandated and so on, which is totally unacceptable. And, uh, and not to be tolerated. There's been lots of pushback against this by various groups in the United States, but that's not why the WHO failed to establish this treaty in its first go-around. It was because of the African countries who also feel their loss of independence. They see the WHO being funded by Bill Gates and you know, and you as a as a U.S. interest, and they don't want to be told by the U.S. what to do. So they're the ones that have pushed back on this, and basically they're the ones that are saving our national independence. 
I think we actually have some video of some of these African states standing up and making this point uh, during that assembly. Let's just take a look at this. The amendments need to be considered as a holistic package, and the process should be transparent, inclusive, credible, and consensual, and with full respect for the sovereignty of member states with, uh, while pursuing our collective action. The African region shares the view that the process should not be fast-tracked by the amendments of Article 59 or the Technical Adjustment Amendment of Articles 55, 61, 62, and 63 at this CAF Assembly. Namibia aligns with the statement delivered by Botswana. Republic of Tanzania aligns with the statement delivered by Botswana. But now the news is spreading like wildfire and people are saying it's time to take our power back. They know that the politicians are largely captured and corrupt. The conflicts of interest regarding WHO and Big Pharma couldn't be more clear. You know, the Wellcome Trust, uh, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, all of them in this one incestuous cesspool. Stop the Who campaign has really been to raise awareness of this power grab and provide resources for individuals um, to address it and to campaign to stop the WHO pandemic treaty, which would be confirmed in 2024. It's very important that communities become resilient because we're at a, a stage in our history and human evolution where we are at, at risk of catastrophes of a variety of, of natures that there's another infection coming. It could be that there's mass injury from the COVID-19 vaccinations. could be that there's financial collapse, uh, political or environmental upheaval that leads to a new emergency situation. We testified in Tennessee. Tennessee has prohibited doctors being reprimanded for prescribing off-label drugs. And remarkably, the governor in Tennessee has signed a bill which allows ivermectin to be dispensed over the counter. So that is a major breakthrough. There are similar bills in New Hampshire, similar bills in Missouri. So I think a number of states that are open-minded enough can actually see what's going on. Uh, So I think the damn war is breaking. There are honest people who have heart and humanity, who understand the science who will stand up against this tyranny. We founded Children's Health Defense in 2011. At that point, it was called World Mercury Project, and the mission of the organization was end toxic exposures to children and the chronic disease epidemic that was uh, associated with those exposures. Of course, the regulatory agencies do not want to look at this issue because the entities that are creating these toxic exposures are politically powerful. They're pharmaceutical companies, they're agricultural chemical companies, they're companies like Monsanto and Cargill and the big processed food companies like McDonald's, uh, the sugar industry, and many, many others. And they all have uh, almost insurmountable political clout with Congress and therefore with the regulatory agencies. And I'm accustomed to reading science. It's part of what I do for my job. I need to be able to read science critically. In other words, to find the problems and, and understand the 
methodologies that the statistical protocols that the researchers use in order to arrive at their conclusion. I brought hundreds and hundreds of lawsuits, almost all of them involve some kind of scientific controversy. In Children's Health Defense, we have brought lawsuits against the Food and Drug Administration. We've brought lawsuits against New York State. We've brought lawsuits against the state of California. During COVID, our mission has expanded because now it's not only children who are being compelled to get vaccines, it's the whole population. We have not yet sued the NIH, but time will tell. Dr. Anthony Fauci has just announced that he is stepping down. Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top uh, infectious disease expert for nearly a half century, has announced today that he will be retiring in December. The nation's top doctor is making his retirement official and arguably the most famous in America. Well, you know, Rachel, it's never really a good time to leave, but you have to leave some time. Going forward. You really want to choose to listen to those voices that do not have a conflict of interest. The implicit faith in these agencies has to be suspended. They've clearly given demonstrable evidence that they cannot be trusted to truly have the public interest as their primary purpose. Fortunately, a lot of people are starting to wake up. Many people have been double injected and those many others, of course, have been jabbed beyond that. But there's a large number of people who woke up and refuse to take the additional boosters. And every time you get a booster shot, you're going to set back your immune system. Your innate immunity is getting messed up by the vaccine. So every time you get a booster shot, it gets worse. To me, that's the most important message. And uh, I, I tell everybody, eat a certified organic diet. Stay away from the glyphosate. Get out in the sunlight. Make sure your vitamin D is high. Very simple things. So eat fruit so you'll have enough vitamin C. You know, Make sure you have foods that contain zinc because zinc and vitamin C... And then there's even supplements you can take, like N-acetylcysteine or liposomal glutathione. You want someone who is not only expert, but transparent, willing to show their data, willing to debate and discuss their data, not issue decrees that this is the way it is, and not listen to dissent, or be willing to entertain questions or debate. Our website, which is flccc.net, all we do is we give unconflicted expert assessments of the evolving data around multiple therapeutics of multiple phases. And so in COVID in particular, we're a legitimate and, and hopefully helpful resource to folks. Through the World Council for Health, we seek to bring together both science and wisdom and common sense and empower people to take responsibility for their health and to step away from this very fear-based approach to health and recognize that they have choices. And currently we have more than 150 partner organizations around the world, including Children's Health Defense, and across 50 countries, and we're growing every day. We've recently held the Better Way Conference, which has really consolidated what a better world looks like. This is not a time to be depressed. We don't have the option of depression. It's a kind of luxury and just sink into sadness. This is war, okay? We're under attack. We're under attack by globalist interests, and corporate powers that really mean business and that cannot afford to pull back. Got a tiger by the tail. That being the case, we, we cannot succumb to sadness or indeed to pessimism. I mean, I actually believe deeply that they can't succeed at this. It is too perverse. It is too grandiose, too ambitious, too unnatural. Bullies cannot be appeased.
It just encourages them to new forms of torture and torment. Every time you say yes, you're getting pushed back to a weaker position. Our job is to go out from here today and reach out to our brothers and sisters, the people who are still hypnotized, and tell them that we are going to fight for their freedom until they're able to fight for it themselves. available at bbsradio.com and I would just highly suggest you pass it around you know to everybody and make a suggestion that they come and listen to this uh, just say and put the violet flame around Bobby Kennedy Jr. because he's speaking truth to those people that we don't uh we don't need to control our freedom uh, with malintent. And, uh, whew. and I just wanted to say one more quick thing is that uh, I think Penny's all gone for the weekend, so we'll get it up on our website, but to help our my son, Christopher Banks. Uh, and Caroline put a little message out here and um, maybe Rama can send it to some more people until Penny gets back so that they can proceed because uh, Micah I mean Christopher (laughs) had a a, an accident where his chain on his bicycle uh, uh, did not engage and so he bumped into this automobile in front of him and he landed on his knees and he seriously injured one of his knees and uh, then uh, just uh, a man opened his car door a few months ago while Christopher's on his bicycle and uh and so the car door, um, he opened it right into Chris and as he was cycling and now his knee is badly injured again. So there's two months 
$400 a month. And uh, it's a requirement that he has this cared for. And in the meantime, we're looking for work that he can use his mind with, or his hands with, do some artwork or something. Uh, uh, and he, he lives in Chicago, so I'm just calling on everyone to uh, put this uh, whole situation so Christopher can make it through until the Sarah gets it acted into law, everyone. So the highest good of all concern to happen here. And again, $800 to be able to stay and not go out there in the homeless world. It's getting colder. And I love everyone and thank you, thank you for this. Uh, and just uh, send it to our PayPal. Uh, Rama. Coran999999 at hotmail.com. And then click on for family and friends. Yes. And then specify for, for Chris, Christopher. For Christopher. Uh, thank you so much, everyone. Please and thank you. Alright, we're going to get jumping right into this now. We're going to, after this we. This is Cry on it. It's an hour and 28 minutes. Right now, we and just so you can go watch it as we watch it, Ascension Gate number forty-four. Stop the aging of your body. Cry on late night series, and he's talking about immortality here, and the diamond gold dust. I was watching the sunset a few minutes ago. The sun is pouring out violet flame light. As I watched it go down the horizon, it was simply pouring out violet flame light. We are in a new reality. <laughs> Lay the violet fire. All right, let's get on with this. Uh -oh. Probably, maybe we can squeeze it all in. Here we go. It's coming. <laughs> There's still kind of a loud noise in the... That's good. I don't think it's coming from ours. I'm not sure. That's kind of still loading. <laughs> okay. Greetings, dear ones. I'm Prion of Magnetic Servants. It is the fourth channeling of the year. Numbers have energies, and we'll speak of that in a moment. Four is structure. And who wants structure? <laughs> Most humans would run from the idea unless they thrive on it. We'll speak of that. Dear ones, channeling is not what you think. In a three-dimensional way, 
You think I am opening a portal, in comes an entity that stands alone, strange, odd, from a place you cannot even describe, and give you messages, and then leaves. That is a very old paradigm. Let me ask you this. Do you believe in angels? Yes. Most do. <laughs> Who are they? Are they odd, unusual, strange, fearful? There was a time, dear ones, when what we would call the angelic realm, which literally was not, but a time when a multidimensionality of communication was given to humanity on a regular basis. It had to be, and the masters were here to glean it, and every single time an angel showed up, there was reverence. Falling on your knees in honor and love appreciation, for you would know what was coming. Not fear, not fear. And yet the angels always said to the human, fear not, because they know what it appeared to be looking like. I come cloaked in all of that through a human being, which is the new way of it, with free choice, which is the way of it, in a loving cocoon that would not frighten anyone if you could really see it. For I come as family. I know you, and you know me. And while you're on the planet, so much is hidden from you, so you can discover it or not. The free choice engine is the one that right now the galaxy counts on to enhance and develop it. And you are the ones with it. And the ones here who know this to be truth and feel the entourage that is here hugging you and looking at you, and honoring you are the ones we want to talk to. And the ones who are just deciding whether this could be real or they've already decided it isn't real are the ones we would love to touch and reach to say, it's okay. It is okay to see unseen things. It's okay to expand the bubble of your reality and your disbelief. It's okay. But if you don't want to, nothing here is going to judge you for it and nothing here is going to hit you on the head so you will. <laughs> you see, it must be your own volition. You have got to say, it is well with my soul that my family can speak to me. We are teaching you about a new energy. There'll come a day when all the forces around you you think you are not in control of will be yours to control. Among them will be the communication with spirit. For it will not be odd or strange. You don't have to weigh in whether it's real or not. You'll come in the planet understanding who you are. A piece of the creative source on the earth, in a biological body, doing work for the planet. And there will be no arguing. It's coming. Far away, but it's coming. And you're going to be here because that's the system, dear ones. Life after life after life got you to this place where there's going to be just the beginning of an involvement. <laughs> 
I want you to listen today to what is presented. Archival information, history, yes. But it's going to be about individuals who may just have known more than you do. <laughs> Structure? Did you know that multidimensionality has structure? Did you know there was a structure to randomness? Did you know there's a structure to synchronicity and even change? You just haven't given it the numbers yet. You haven't put it on paper and made it laws of physics yet, but you will. And when you have, that is the beginning of your knowledge on how to control the elements around you through consciousness. The masters did it. You should be able to. The teachers today may or may not tell you what I know. But those that they will teach about and give you the history of or masters. They knew how to live extreme long lifetimes that were average. Even the ones on the small island, average lifetime, 120 years. They grew their medicines in the volcano and knew what they were doing. Do you? Do you? Oh, technical one. Well, everything at your disposal. Or do you? And this is the point. That the study of the ancients may actually give you information you don't have. You're not studying old things. You're studying history where they knew things that you should know. Listen, folks, if we lose in Georgia, we could lose Senate control. And there's simply too much at stake for our children, for everybody, to let that happen. So please, yes, I'm asking, will you? We've given the lectures before, and we've told you before, such beautiful things. How many of you get up in the morning and greet your ancestors? Let me make a guess. There's three in here that probably do it every day. <laughs> your modern culture, maybe not that modern. Because you threw away some of the power with your modernization. Wouldn't you like to have it back? It's in there. It's in your Akash. It doesn't take much to find out. The honoring of the ancestors, dear ones, is the honoring of you in your past lives. Did you know that? You honor yourselves and your power and your greatness by taking a moment to greet the ancestors and saying thank you. Your family of old, some of whom are with you now. What a concept for you to awaken every day. And see them in whatever form you wish to in your mind and say thank you that I'm still here. Thank you that this planet is still here. Thank you that we're going somewhere. If you knew the process of the amount of lifetimes you have to go through to get to the one you are, an old soul, you ought to be able to say thank you for that to yourselves. We do. That's just one of many. What other things did these who were ancients do so they could live longer and have peaceful lives and be happier and never have a smartphone? <laughs> these are the things we want you to pay attention to. There's spirituality in everything that is going to be taught. 
this day. We call it year two. It's an unusual counting system, isn't it? So it's the second year. If you take a look at the two, it is duality. And that is what is being tested. Whatever the number means, that's where your tests are going to be. And we're going to talk about that tonight in our message. What's new on the planet that you really haven't thought about might be spiritual. What's in your news that might be spiritual? It might be everything I'm talking about. We'll look at that. The numbers are energies. and The ancient Tibetans knew it. Why did they know it intuitively and you don't? Again, I present to you a concept. What if the ancients knew more than you did? And what if they knew more about the things you should know now than you do? And that is why they're studying. Think of the beauty of the system. That it didn't go away. That they are still here because some of them are you. Dear ones, stand by. For the future can bring you what you ask for. Or not. Depending upon what you do next. You're always in free choice. And you always control the timetable. Sitting in front of me now. Mostly old souls. Who know exactly what I mean. Celebrating along with me who you are. Getting ready. For tomorrow. For those who have followed the cry on work. Who have heard the teachings of the scientists. They will see the similarities. 25 years ago I came and I said this to you. The magnetic grid of this planet is needed for life. It was echoed yet today. The magnetic grid of this planet profoundly affects your DNA. It even postures its efficiency. In so many words, you heard it today. Scientific puzzles abound. That which you do not understand is such an amazing opportunity to fill a void with magnificence. Not with knowledge, but more. With the wisdom And the source of the wisdom on this planet comes from those who are wise, who have lived before. There is a well for you to call upon. And science knows it. The wisest ones on the planet at the moment are the ancestors and the futurists. They both have something in common. They understand That things are changing on this planet. The ancestors, the indigenous and the elders stand before you ready to share. The futurists are the ones who are taking what is being shared and planning the future. And all of this leads to one thing. Change. 
One of the dear ones today in the group has asked, is there hope? Is there information of hope? If that dear one had been following the quiet work, you'd know that I have been labeled as the Pollyanna channel. <laughs> Not only hope. Based upon what we have seen, the potentials, and what you've done in the last 50 years, more than hope. More than More than hope. You are already accomplishing the impossible. In review, we have told you that the survival, the old energy, is starting to shift and change. There is an old pattern that is social of humanity, the way it behaves, the way it acts, the cycles of performance and non-performance. These cycles have actually been tracked and the ones who have tracked them have been the elders. If you want to know the esoterics of the Mayan calendar, it is not in days. It is not in calendar years. It is not in their math, which is not yours. It is in the cycles of human evolution. They have tracked the cycles of enlightenment, dark and light. And this is the basis of their calendar. Now listen to me. It ended at the precession of the equinoxes where the prophecies said there would be change. The beginning of the fifth cycle of humanity should mean something to some of you and nothing to some of you. Five means change in Tibetan numerology. Listen to this. The Tibetans knew it. The calendar ended because an old cycle of non-performance had ended. The long count represented a humanity in the dark. Repeating and repeating and repeating the survival consciousness of separation. We have told you this many times. More than hope. The new calendar of the Mayans talk about a humanity that will have the potential of an evolutionary change. An enlightenment factor, awareness that this planet had never seen before, if you made it. If you made it. And when some of you were born, there was no, no signal you were going to make it. Instead, there was a prophecy of destruction, Armageddon, religious beliefs of the masters returning, a wiping away of all that was. All of these metaphors may have happened. They didn't happen here. <laughs> In fact, you saw other things you did not expect. More than hope. There is a new paradigm before you. 
And it starts with awareness. And it's awareness of who you are and also what is around you. The question, who are you, is beginning to be answered. And the more you study it, the more you realize, who are you? You are family. And family's compassionate with family. What was the message I gave you not too long ago? Specifically designed and controversial for all those who would say they are esoterically minded and new age. What was the message? Do you remember? And it was this. It is time to stop being weird. Because it separates you from society. Don't be proud that you think differently. Instead, turn this around and become like the masters are that is compassionate, tolerant, wise, and forgiving. What was the message we gave you and told you? The two words that you could practice over and over that would be the key to the new age, and that is compassionate action. We've been telling you this now for two years. I want to review with you a little bit of what this means, and I want to tell you there is no puzzle here. I want you to separate that which you believe in, in an old energy in three dimensions completely from the future. What does the old energy say is going to happen on this planet? Number one, they're not mentioning what didn't happen. It's not in their paradigm. They don't understand it. They're ignoring it. Instead, they are holding on to a belief that it must change and come to an end. If you've noticed. There are some beliefs when it looks like humanity is in trouble, when there is problems in the Middle East, they're dancing. And they're saying, I told you so. You see, it's coming to an end. It's coming to an end. In other words, there are those dedicated to the old energy. Now, did I have to tell you that? The old energy will die hard. Because it represents those who need to control. Who need to hang on to that which they believe absolutely is so. And yet it's changing before your eyes and before their eyes. We told you what the biggest difference would be, and you've heard it today echoed in the science. The old energy would have you separate and be in the dark, not even be able to see one another, compete for resources. An inheritance advance is a great way to get your inheritance without having to wait for probate to finish. Inher- and war. Past 2012, we told you that there was a shift coming in human consciousness and a recalibration. Where you would start to figure out that 
combination and putting things together was the key and not separating. We gave you information even about corporate structure. We even told you about government. We told you that it was diametrically opposed to everything you see in nature and the body. We told you that the more complex nature becomes, the more complex the body becomes, the better it functions. But human beings in an old energy who are not elegant enough to see it, the more humans trying to do a single task, the stupider they become. And you prove it with government. You prove it with corporate. And sometimes it becomes totally and completely dysfunctional. Now let me give you common sense. Dear ones, that is about to change. You are going to start becoming wise. The wisdom factor that we have discussed is going to start to put together things in a different way. We even mentioned this. What about a corporation without managers? How could this be? It's a paradigm you haven't seen, and it'll work. But it requires a different consciousness of worker. This is yet to be seen. What about government that knows what it's doing? Compassionate. Doesn't separate. Puts together. You haven't seen it yet. But it's coming. Is there hope? More than hope. You turned the corner, dear ones. You have made it this far. We said to you, we changed the magnetic grid of the planet with an entourage that left in 2002. And we said that the magnetic grid would change more in 10 years than it had in 100, and it did. You can measure it with a compass. You can look it up. And the reason was so that your DNA would be postured for a new consciousness and something coming at you from the solar system. Yep. My partner will discuss that a little bit tomorrow. Huh. It all starts to fit, dear ones. It's the sun. Into what the scientists are seeing, into the puzzles that are being presented. Now, I want to give you some new information. We said to you that paradigm shifts are upon you. We also told you that you're going to see on your news and in other places that you would trust those who are still in the old energy telling you it's not getting better. Dear ones, do not fault them. Being in the old energy is not something you want to judge someone for. For at some level, all of you are. Getting out of it and coming into a new field of thought and belief and awareness takes courage. It takes time. I plant seeds even in this day for those who will start to analyze what we are saying and look for its validation and its truth for self-awareness. If you can judge these things by how my partner reacted to when I showed up, it's a miracle I'm here.
stubbornness of humanity is known. Dear ones, why wouldn't it be so? How many years have you wallowed in a certain paradigm? And that is what you've had life after life. The illusion is about the change. <laughs> Consciousness is recalibrating itself. The wisdom factor is at hand. There will be many humans who will start to come forward knowing that they've got to treat things differently. One week ago, I sat in this chair in another city. And I said things that were comparable to what I'm saying now. I said, you've seen the dark side and they all have names and initials. And if you watch the news, you're appalled by what they're doing and how hateful they are and how the actions are so abominable. It hurts your heart to think that there could be such a thing. And I said to you, where is the light? I said to you that humanity was going to have to put together their own coalition and give it names and initials, representing those who would stand together as a civilization against what they do not want to happen again. And at the moment that I was talking about it, there were a million people in France that were doing it. The few can affect the many if the few do nothing. And the old paradigm has the few controlling the many through fear. And that, my dear human, is going to change. It's already started. Civilization is going to turn a corner and decide what they want. That is a recalibration of human consciousness it has begun. It is all we've talked about. Now let's talk about some other systems that you would think are random. They're not. That will begin to shift because you're shifting. They are systems you believe you create and you run. Maybe not. This is different. What's happening to you when your eyes don't... This is difficult. The premise is this. The recalibration of humanity is the recalibration of all things. Now, the teacher and scientist Greg told you that there is proof of consciousness over physics. That means that consciousness has energy, force, power. And not just with humanity. It'll change the very fabric of the way things work on the planet, for consciousness is the key to everything. You must use the force. We told you within the grids of the planet that they are listening that they're a benevolent change, that they actually work for you. Is it possible that physics might change because consciousness will make it so? That's, that is a proposition. Economics. What do you know about it? And the answer is very little. 
You trust the experts, don't you? It's starting to change. Let me give you another premise. Unbalance and dysfunction has been an old energy staple. You expect it, don't you? You expect it everywhere. Based upon the news, it's not changed at all. What if I told you that very much the likely possibility is as you change your consciousness, all the things that you think are static, that don't have life, that don't have consciousness, are also going to change because you have changed the fabric of your reality. Difficult to explain. Have you ever heard from this chair me say to you, dear human being, what you think is what you get. Dear human being, change the reality of who you are and create something that you don't think you are. Would this not indicate to you that there is the possibility that your consciousness is grander than you think? With the human being beginning to change the consciousness of the earth very slightly, very slowly, other things will start to change. Things that are unbalanced and dysfunctional in any way will start to change by themselves because consciousness has deemed it. Economics. What do you know? Well, here's a couple of puzzling questions for you. Why is the price of oil so low? Have you ever seen it in your lifetime? <laughs> Honestly. Don't you understand the paradigm of economics is that oil always goes up. The pump price never really goes down much. And have you noticed that it goes up when you need it and down when you don't? Does that give you any indication that maybe, just maybe, it's a bit dysfunctional? Maybe it's being controlled. No. No, no. Why is it so low? And there will be those who would say, well, it's being controlled low. And let me ask you, and how does that help those who sell oil? It doesn't. Is there a possibility something has happened to show you that there is a change in the unbalance, the principles of economics are supposed to work with human need, desire, want. It is a free-flowing system based upon the consciousness of humans. And it hasn't been. All this to say... If it's out of balance, it will not tolerate it. This is part of the new premise. Can something as static, as dry as economics, start to recalibrate because you did? And the answer is yes. Those who wish to control as they have before will find it almost impossible to do so, and they won't know why. Control will cause dysfunction, double what you've ever seen. Those governments who try to control it the most will have the worst effect. Watch for it. 
You see, it wants to be balanced. Could economics have consciousness? These are puzzling questions. The answer is yes. It wants to be balanced. Everything does. You will see Gaia start to shift. Does it want to be balanced? Yes. We've talked about the oceans many times. Humans will tell you you're in a cycle and you've destroyed life. It's all your fault. There are no fish, no reefs. And we have told you something completely and totally different. That if you look at the ice cores and you look at the rings of the trees, you're going to find it's a cycle that's happened before. This one has been accelerated because you changed the paradigm. You're going to stay. The oceans must refresh themselves. We have said it before. That even the most elite of you who have the tropical fish know that every few years you've got to change the water. <laughs> And you can't do it on the planet, but what you can do is have temperature changes that will shift and change what grows, what doesn't grow, and renew it all. I challenge those scientists to find it in the ice core. You are in a renewal process on the weather and in the oceans. And it's for you. All of it. You may not see it in your lifetime. But then again, define lifetime for me. <laughs> You'll see it. An acknowledgement, the fish are coming back. It's a miracle. How could that happen when industry destroyed and there's still industry? Paradigm shifts will occur so that the cycles you've been told about are not necessarily true anymore. Number two, government. It's going to take a while. Dear ones, <laughs> it's going to get softer. It's going to have common sense. But I will tell you yet again, when the few try to affect the many, they can do it if the many do nothing. I want you to analyze this and see that an enlightened creature on this planet can make a difference, not from being strange, but from compassionate and forgiving and tolerant. You're going to go looking for leaders eventually who are compassionate, tolerant, forgiving. And you'll be right to do so. And right now, it's a new paradigm. You're hearing those on the news say you're in a war cycle. You heard it today. The war cycle is the description of an old energy cycle that reflects something mathematically which has been seen and designed where you're overdue for another war based on the past. You're overdue. What happened 50 years ago? Did you notice? You took Europe's greatest enemies 
the ones who had conquered each other over and over for a thousand years or more, and put them together in a trading coalition, and some say it's not going to work. For 50 years it's worked. Today the value of their currency is far beyond those who sit here in this country. Perhaps it is working. There are those who say it never will. It may have to be changed, but I want you to see the paradigm putting together things instead of tearing them apart has created something you never saw on this planet before. And in its infancy, dear ones, it's done a pretty good job. Did you ever look at that? What is next? Perhaps other coalitions between other countries, perhaps other trade organizations. It's catchy, you know, like a disease. Consciousness and wisdom will be seen and emulated. But there are still those who are going to say you're overdue for a war. They'll point to the bear and they say it's coming back. Look at what it's doing. It's coming back. Be afraid. I want to tell you something. They haven't got a chance. The old energy of governments who want to shield the truth from their people and control them in an old way and make you fearful will be seen for what they are more than ever before and the world will simply shut them out. They won't have the funding. They won't have the resources that they will need. They won't have the food if they can't grow it themselves. This planet needs a coalition of human beings who help one another. There's too many of you to shut the door and say, I am going to be that which is, uh, what you'd say, independent. You can't. Not anymore. You all need each other. And by putting things together and making common sense and working the hard puzzles of unequal Economies, making it work so that it's a win-win situation will create peace on earth. And there are a few holdouts who don't want it. And they're going to stick out like a sore thumb. <laughs> You're going to see what I'm talking about as things go forward. We've said, we've said it before. Watch the news if you wish. But it's going to frighten. They have an agenda to frighten you. And if they do, you buy their products. Isn't this interesting? This is an old paradigm, and it also will change. It will be those who find listenership, viewership will be based upon good news. Compassion, feeling good. Watch for it. It's coming. The Internet already has it. Videos that are going viral are not bad news, if you noticed. It reflects a human consciousness that's beginning to shift apart from the paradigm of marketing. You don't know what you don't know. Finally, biology. It is not going to remain the same. Biology is going to start building bridges from the conscious to the innate. And for those who are not in the room, this is going to be difficult because I'm going to tell you something that will not make sense. For tomorrow, 
Got a view on market volatility? SIBO's mini VIX futures are based on the VIX index, the world's premier gauge of expected U.S. equity market volatility. At one-tenth the size of this... Tomorrow, there will be an example of what we're talking about shown by the speaker and scientist and teacher Greg. The body is ready and waiting for modalities that you think are miraculous. And we have told you what they are, and we have explained it over and over. We have told you that the evolution of DNA creates a more efficient DNA that will start cooperating and working even better than it has before. There's going to be a sonority of frequencies difficult to explain that have always been there, ready to be seen and used for extended life. There's an elegance of your biology you've never seen. You sit in the dark, dear ones. You have no idea what is really lurking in there. Beautiful system of self-healing and balance. It wants to be balanced. And it hasn't been. Why should disease attack your body and your brain has no idea even what's in your bloodstream? Do you think there's a missing bridge here? And there is. I want you to stand by for things you didn't expect. There's going to be what we're going to call a coherence that has never been there before. And it's going to come naturally something else that is what the magnetic grid is going to be doing for you and it's time my partner will explain a little more tomorrow we've told you about it you are entering a kind of space in this solar system you've never seen before and it contains odd and unusual aspects of what you call energy some fear it You'll have an explanation. How many of you? How many of you have had the courage to look at everything and say, it's about time. We got this. <laughs> For it's going to change the magnetic field. It's going to change the quantum arrangement between the magnetics, which is a multidimensional field, and that from the Merkaba, which is also a multidimensional field around your DNA. Human beings create energy. You might even say they radiate. They're simply sitting there ready for the next step. And it's coming. You don't have to do it yourself. You just got to hang on <laughs> and accept the change and the paradigm shift, a way of thinking and getting out of the thousands of years of thinking survival. And instead of survival by being in the cave, it's going to be survival by peace on earth. Hmm? It's coming. That's the message. Can you celebrate it? Can you believe it? Cognizing 
the truth of it all is the hardest thing that the old soul is going to do this time around. The young people being born have an edge on you. They can feel a difference. They know it. And you're in a status of learning it. <laughs> Let the old souls of this planet relax. Don't be different. Be like the masters. Here is the judge. Are you doing a good job being an old soul on the planet? Are you getting it or not? And here is the litmus test. If people are running away from you and crossing the street when they see you, you're not. If they're knocking on your door because you're a compassionate person and they just want to be with you, you are. It is as simple as that. Who are you? You're the one that personifies compassion and tolerance and the beginning of a new consciousness. And you wonder why we love you. The message is short. profound the process that you see here is not accepted as real and so I speak to those right now who have a special dispensation of logic in their minds <laughs> or they have opened that which is a belief channel to include the potential of what you see and if we could draw a picture of it for you, it is simple. For eons of time, you're used to one kind of thing, and this is not one of them. You build bubbles of belief that we have talked about before that are so strong and so structured that not only is this not acceptable, it's often frightening. And that is a paradigm that is being shattered. What you see here this day in this chair was commonplace for the ancients. There were some circles of elders who each of them in their own way had shamanic energy who would pass a stick, which they called in many places the talking stick or the freedom stick sometimes. Sure, I've got dinner tonight for the whole family, but I've got Harry and David, so I'm not stressing. I'm slaying the holidays. Harry and David makes entertaining. Common to so many 
Oh, the tribes that have never even met each other. For as they passed the stick to the next elder, he would take a breath and go into trance and channel. (laughs) He would tell of the tribe of the things to come, of the potentials of the day sometimes. In the process, he would even weep. Not a, not a very good sign of strength, but acceptable in the circle. A connection with the earth that only an elder and a shamanic energy was allowed to have. This was their priests. The ones who could speak to God. In later years, they paid the price for that because even the tribes knew they could do this and they became outcasts, often living alone at the outskirts of the village. And I want to tell you, dear human being who sits in front of me, that's why you're a hermit. And you know who I'm talking to. Because that was your safe zone. You didn't have to do readings. You didn't have to do healings unless you were called upon. You didn't have to answer the hard questions. If you could be alone and remove yourself from the rest of society, even back then it was safe. Many did not have partners. Even that was too much. The partner would be attacked. You were different. You were odd. You were strange. And you were also the healer and the wise man. Does this ring a bell to any of you? Can you search your Akash and feel this? Because an old soul who sits in a chair has a high potential that you've been there and done that. Sometimes it actually affects the lifetime you have in negative ways. Do you know anybody who you are absolutely sure has shamanic energy and profound wisdom and they deny it? And they don't want anything to do with a meeting like this. They will never go to hear a channeler. And I will tell you the reason is because they've been through it. And there's a part of their psyche which is afraid of it. Because of what happened the last time they did it. Good people, compassionate people. They just don't want anything to do with spiritual things. These things start to make sense. And they're common. Channeling is correct and proper. When done with compassion, with integrity and understanding. What you see here in this chair is a very old style of channeling. And it's going to go away. The idea of coming to a place where you meet and listen to any human being in a chair, give you information, someday will be laughed at. Belongs with the buggy whips. Because you will have it internally. And you're not going to have it like you see it. You're going to have an intuition. Developed system-wide that is natural, that comes from your DNA, that allows the innate of your body 
to know everything. Who you are, where you came from, it opens your akash. When you're born, you will remember you're here again. My partner has shown evidence of this on the screen of children reading without lessons. Hand-eye coordination because you're remembering what your old system used to do, walking early. The children have already begun the process of what the animals on the field have always had, which you call instinct. We've told you before that you can have a beast on the field born running with the herd in hours and even knows what the enemy smells like, and a newborn human baby is helpless. There is a block that has always been there because your DNA is not operating at full capacity and now is the opportunity for change. What is coming in space, what is coming naturally, what is coming that the Mayans saw with their new calendar, what the ancients saw. We have a Hopi master here. He knows where it is ancient. Prophecy that a day would come where humanity would finally, finally start to have the wisdom of the ages. That's the prophecy that we speak of. Not new, but old. So it's the new old age, isn't it? A return to common sense. Spirituality that is independent of prophets, men, women. And they would be the first to agree if they could be on this stage. And if we said, what do you think? They would say, it's about time. That you understood that everything they did was to show you what was possible. Everything. And the channeling that you hear now, the idea of sitting in front of a master, is not the way of it. You'll be your own master and you will be comfortable with it. There have been those who would laugh at this and said it'll be chaos. Chaos. Everyone will have their own religion. (laughs) What an old biased paradigm this is of the way humans work. You know what's going to happen? If more and more humans have a DNA which is receptive to who you really are, the first thing that must happen and will happen over time, and not gracefully, I might add, peace on earth is not the goal. Peace on earth is not the goal. It's the beginning. (laughs) You have to have that to move forward, and you will. Hello, I'm Meryl Streep. As you probably already know, among the many brilliant ideas that Albert Einstein contributed to humanity, chief among them was his founding of the IRC, the International Rescue Committee. Truly. The cycles of humanity will be redefined. We said it before, there'll be a time when you look backwards and call it the barbarian age. When human beings looked at one another and killed each other for resources. How quaint. 
This is the potential that we see and we look for in its slow. And what makes you special, dear ones, is that you are here for the transition. In other words, the hard work. Are you up for it? Information is going to be presented today that is beyond your expectations of the paradigm that you've come from. You may not be ready to hear what is presented or to accept what you see. I'm going to make a request, old soul, of everyone in the room. A request that I make over and over. It's been recorded and written for 20 years or more. What harm does it, what harm does it do to you to open your heart? And that part of your mind which has the intellectual trap on it. And drop them for a few hours. Drop them. So that what goes in can be accepted without bias. Without you trying to analyze it. Without that part of you deciding whether it's right or wrong. Let it go in so it can be judged if you need to at a later time. Through your heart. If you don't like it, you can put your parameters right back, put the trap back, put the bubble back and walk out of the room just like you came. That's your free choice. Or not. For if you allow for a few hours an expansion of your belief, you'll walk out of this room changed forever. That's what we ask. Why not? What have you got to lose to absorb something that is grand, unbelievable, and is the new reality? There is a tradition of more than 20 years when it comes to my partner and channeling. The tradition is that on a two-day event, the last channeling would be heartwarming, loving, short, and simple. We're going to break the tradition.
<laughs> and that makes my partner nervous. <laughs> he is comfortable with emotion. He is able to translate so easily the energy of the heart. His compassionate countenance marries with the other side of the veil and agrees with it before he even speaks. And then there's a channel like this one. I'm giving him pictures he doesn't know where to begin. And what to say. For two days, this particular group has been given some of the highest-minded principles that exist. Yes, there are other teachers who will give just as high-minded. But the group has been exposed to so much, so many ideas, so much potential, and so much confusion. It is interesting, is it not, in humanity, when a truly brilliant man or woman on a stage, because they are brilliant, because of what they have taught and what they can do, because of the maturity and elegance of their consciousness, when they are asked a question, they answer it brilliantly. And they know they have. And they smile and they're satisfied. And when the audience leaves the room, they say, we have no idea what they said. <laughs> Often there must be a marriage of communication. And often the most brilliant humanity had matured to a level that is difficult to understand. They have gone beyond three dimensions, even four. I want to review with you, not science, but reality. Ghirardelli chocolate chips makes baking a bite better. In order to do that, we must speak of what you think is science, for we use scientific words. They're not. They're just descriptions of reality. And we have told you one of the most basic truths that exists today. And I want to simplify it even further. Humanity has been in survival. And in that state, they are only partially aware of a multi-dimensional reality. If the universe, the galaxy, your bodies, your reality was in an immense hue of colors, you are in black and white. 
And some of you are discovering shades of gray. <laughs> Could it be simpler than this? Is there more than you can perceive or think or see or imagine? The answer is yes. Now, let us carry it even further. The highest sciences on your planet, which you would call physical sciences, for many years have been dealing on the outskirts of what we will call multidimensional discovery. It's not new. One of the highest minded thinkers that you can imagine, you called Einstein. In all that he gave you and all that he could imagine and think, he had trouble with multidimensionality. It is indeed true what the teacher Greg said. That on his deathbed, he bemoaned the fact that through his brilliance, he could not ally the forces that he knew about. Could not conceive. And here is the irony. The scientists around him that he did not like had the answer. Today you call them quantum. When they started the discovery of multidimensionality, they started with looking at particles that were obviously different than your reality. They called them quantum particles. Just a name. A name of reality that was different from yours. It opened the door for questioning what was there. The name quantum stuck. The very idea that a particle could be multidimensional was labeled quantum. That became a buzzword, if you would like, for multidimensional things. And we're going to carry on that tradition. Make it simple. You live in a practical world that only includes a few of the dimensions. We even hesitate to count them because they're not countable. They're not really linear. You want them to be. So you gave them names and numbers. There are those that would say that means that we are broaching a new dimensionality. Oh, yes, you are. And then they will linearize it and number them. We're moving into five. Oh, some are really brilliant. They're at seven. And we've told you before, you're still in black and white if you think that way. It's bigger than this. There's a reason why I'm telling you this, and it's going to answer some of the questions in a simple way that were asked today of the brilliant ones. <laughs> Dimensionality is a soup of reality with many hues and many shades, and you're in the black and white portion moving into the shades of gray. There's no color yet. Not with a general humanity. 
There are a few brilliant ones who have the color. I've asked this before. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of a human being who faces a sightless person from birth. And the sightless person says, explain red. (laughs) They have never seen anything. And they want to see or have the explanation of a concept so much grander and greater than anything they have ever seen or known or experienced. You will not be able to answer. You know what red is, don't you? But you can't tell them, can you? Do you understand just a little of the barrier that might exist between the multidimensional quantum concepts that we are going to talk about and the one you're in? It is the same. So how do you get to the next stage and what is happening? Dear ones, I'm going to make a statement. When you cross the bridge, as you move through the precession of the equinoxes, as the calendar dropped away, as the cycles start to change, humanity is going to be introduced to quantumness. And it's going to be everywhere. For more Hey, Greg. It's me, your heart. Uh, hello? Good news, pal. For multidimensionality encompasses everything, not physics. Physics is simply the study of the way it works. That's all. But you're going to find it everywhere. And there would be those who say, what's the big deal? And I'll tell you what the big deal is. There is reality in so many levels. The man in the shroud. (laughs) What was his reality? Could he walk this planet with a different kind of consciousness that was so elevated and mature that he could manipulate physics, biology, life. Could he speak to nature and have it change? Could he speak to the spark of life itself within cells and rejuvenate instantly? Yes, Or no. Those of you who believe in the words of the ancients written clearly will know that that is history. And the answer from me is yes. Oh, he was not alone. Those who followed him, even into the current day, could manifest things out of nothing, control Over physics. I'm going to make a statement. Right now. 
on this planet, the highest inventions that are being worked on, that are being manifested, that are being thought of, developed, and used are quantum. There is no invention that is of four dimensions that is meaningful at all. Oh, there will be some. They'll be cute. <laughs> But nothing like what you're working on. Now, let us back up to a channel of a few weeks ago. And I started to describe and define what you're going to discover eventually about something you think is different. And it's called consciousness. Define it. In your mind, you'd say, it is the way we think. It might be, be identified as our vibratory rate of thinking. Oh, how 3D of you. <laughs> you know what consciousness is? It's the human being's quantum engine. And it's physical. We told you it has rules of physics. And when you started to apply, and when you started to understand, and when you started to know about how to work with your own consciousness, no one else's, but your own, the moment you begin, you inform every single cell in your body to start shifting into shades of gray. It is automatic because it is expected of an old soul. There have been hints of this, dear ones. We have given you a little physics. We're going to give you a little physics again. You're dealing with basically four laws, what you call laws of physics. We have defined them slightly differently to make it easier for you to understand. Two of them, we have said, are strong and weak electromagnetic force. You have relabeled those as gravity and electromagnetics. Not really. They're alive. I'm going to show you in a minute. The second two, the strong and the weak nuclear force, what scientists take a look at, at the core of the atom and examine. And then the two missing ones, which will give you a total of three, four, no, five maybe, <laughs> six, three pairs will complete it all. The strong and weak multidimensional force, when discovered, analyzed, defined, and when finally understood, will even explain what you would call dark matter. There is no such thing. It's simply invisible. Now, Let's talk about a brilliant one for a moment to give you just a hint of how science 
starts to relate to consciousness. His name was Tesla. And he loved magnetics. I told you about him. He came for a reason and left in frustration. Because he could only go so far. That was all he was allowed to do. Let me tell you what he saw in his laboratory through his eyes. And I've only mentioned it once before. Dealing only with designer magnetic fields that were coarse, without computers, without the electronics kind of elegance you have today, all he could do was flounder in general areas of designer magnetics. But three times or more, he touched on a formula that changed the mass of things on his workbench, and they flew off and hit the ceiling. The astute who examined his workshop, even the preserved archaeology of his workshop today will see pockmarks in the ceiling. <laughs> he didn't discover anti-gravity. There is no such thing. He discovered the relationship between designer magnetics and the mass of an object. You think mass is Stable. You think if something is bigger, it has a higher mass. Oh, how 3D. That's all you've seen. And it gives you something called gravity, which you also don't understand. You know why? Because it's quantum. Magnetics is quantum. You play with it. That's all you do. You play with it. You don't understand it. Yet. Okay, everybody, we've got a little bit more, but the time is of the now moment. Tell us. That was worth listening to. Thank you, uh, everybody. We'll do this together. And we're going to take a little break. And as we come back, we'll have some music from the stars and a look at the stars with our brother Richard and Kay Pacha and our sister Tanya Gabrielle. Until we meet again, I'll see you in about 10 or 15 and uh, have a good break. Namaste. See you for a little while. In a little while. How's the talking stick to you, Richard? Thank you, Rama. Good evening, everybody. Take a quick look at the conditions here on the 21st day of Scorpio. We still have Sun conjunct Mercury conjunct Venus, and they're at 21, 24, and 27 degrees of Scorpio. Now, going going counterclockwise, there's those three guys operating together, revealing the dark and secrets. You got a sextile to Pluto over there in twenty 
20, you know, we're there in uh, 27, Capricorn, and you got a square to Saturn, all right, in Aquarius, and Saturn's at ni- 19, Aquarius, then you got uh, a trine to Neptune, conjunct Jupiter, and Neptune is at, uh, Neptune's at 23 Pisces, still retrograde, and Jupiter is at, well, it's at 29 and 12 seconds, so it's retrograde, so it's at 30 degrees Pisces, but it'll be in 29 degrees Pisces in a in a few hours. All right, so that's a that's a major major trine there with uh, Neptune conjunct Jupiter. A trine that spellum in Scorpio, and uh, those two guys, Neptune and Jupiter, are square to Mars, still retrograde. At 25 Gemini, and Uranus is at 19. Uranus is at 17. So uh, a couple of days ago, that sun opposite Uranus was exact, and that made that nasty old T square challenging, 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 and. and then the last thing on this circle is the moon at 13 Cancer. So we've got a temporary grand trine with moon, moon, sun, and Neptune. And we got a finger of God Ooh. at uh, points at Mars. Because the midpoint between Pluto and Venus. And those other two guys is on the opposite Mars. So two in conjunction, Venus, uh, Venus in conjunct Mars, along with Mercury and the Sun, and Pluto in conjunct Mars. So uh, the opening. See, the opening of the finger of God is pointing into Sagittarius, at 25 degrees Sagittarius. So if you got anything in Sagittarius, there, the energies would be a little disturbing this uh, couple of days here. And that's it. Leo is empty. Virgo is empty. Libra is empty because we don't fool with asteroids. Because they're they're not really energetic bodies, you know. It's kind of like Mars, you know. Mars is Mars is very old and almost dead. I don't think it has much of an electrical signal at all. But anyway, it symbolize Mars symbolizes that uh, ambition and. All that kind of stuff. So Mars and Gemini. Mars and Gemini. Mars retrograde in Gemini 
which is ruled by Mercury, is screwing with communications. Uh-huh. And I experienced that directly this month. I didn't get my I didn't get my bank statement in the mail. I didn't get either of my phone bills in the mail. And I didn't get my credit card bill in the mail. Nice. And the and the bank the bank told me that it was returned <laughs> undeliverable, which is weird. Right, because I've been been here for years. But anyway, so you may experience some uh, problems with uh, shipping. Yeah, that's that. All right, I'm done for the moment. Let's see what Kaipacha was thinking about this week. Okay, here we go. This is Capacho with the Weekly Failure Report. I'm actually doing it on uh, Tuesday, uh, November 8th, instead of Wednesday, my usual day, because I think the Internet out here on the playa is so slow that I have to upload the sucker overnight. So the eclipse was this morning at 5 o'clock, my time. I just woke up to see it. Absolutely beautiful and amazing. And... Uh, yeah, she, uh, the, the moon is going to be moving into uh, Gemini, probably by the time you hear this report. And uh, but when she does so, of course, uh, she's going to come in and conjunct Mars uh, on Friday, square Jupiter and Neptune also on Friday before she goes into Cancer. And uh, she's going to stay in Cancer, opposing that... Uh, Beautiful, a uh, beautiful uh, Pluto, uh, right on uh, on Monday, trining, okay, Venus, Mercury, Jupiter, Neptune, the Sun. You got the beautiful water signs happening there. It's going to be absolutely. We got a real mix of energy going on here that I'll be talking to you about today. Um, starting with, of course, this eclipse is. The moon was conjunct Uranus, you know, for the eclipse in Taurus. And uh, the sun will oppose Uranus uh, Wednesday, today. Mercury, square Saturn, today. Sun, square Saturn, Friday. <laughs> Mercury, opposite Uranus, now. Uh, so we have this big T-square going on that was, you know, going on last week also. And uh, I talked about it a little bit. I'm going to talk about it some more now. But what we've got is this, you know, basically, the Sun, Mercury, Venus, all in Scorpio, in making a nice trine to Neptune and Jupiter over there in Pisces, while they are in conjunct Mars in Gemini. Yeah. So we've got this real mix of this T-square, Saturn squaring Uranus, you know, Sun, Mercury squaring Saturn, opposing Uranus, creating a lot of tension. And at the same time, then you've got 
you know, this other energy of the trine happening. So there's a great mixture, yeah, of the light and the dark, positive, negative, however you want to look at it. But uh, it is super intense. Venus trines Neptune tomorrow, Thursday, and, uh, you know, comes into a trine with Jupiter by next Tuesday. So uh, let me find a spot here out of the waves. I think I may need to climb up there a little bit. <laughs> if I'm going to get any peace and quiet, let's see. All right, everybody. Hola. <laughs> well, I'm a little bit in the shadow here, uh, but I need the shade because it is freaking hot. So I hope I'm not too much of a shadow. I know last week I scared a couple of people with those black eyes. Now I'm in the shadow. They must think, oh, Kaipacha's going down the drain. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious me. So, anyway, let's talk about the drain. Let's talk about Scorpio. Let's talk about this eclipse. Let's talk about that sun, Mercury, Venus, south node in Scorpio. What I did not say was actually by next Tuesday... Venus moves into Sagittarius. Phoenix rises from the ashes. Transitional time. But for now, we're still in the cauldron. We're still in the cauldron. And I want to talk about what's in the cauldron here. Because Scorpio deals with intensity. Because intensity, right, pressure intensifies and and therefore, it's like it really brings us into confrontation. It brings us, you know, face to face, okay, with emotions, with desires, with needs, and with fears that otherwise, you know what, if it wasn't intense, we would just go on our merry way, and we would pursue our distractions, and da da da, da and but this intensity really brings things into focus, of like, you know, what is the bottom line? What's underneath the mask and the surface and the distractions? And, you know, so, you know, this is a time period of this eclipse of really facing ourselves, of really confronting ourselves. And Scorpio helps us do that by having other people confront us. So... If we're not confronting ourselves enough, guess what? We'll have some other people confront us to do us a favor. <laughs> because you need to look at or you need to feel or you need to think about some stuff that you have not been looking at, thinking about, or feeling. So, you know, you can do it by yourself. So, you know, moon conjunct Uranus, north node in Taurus is like radically, yeah, you know, self-revelation. Uranus has to do with revelation, with that opening of that third eye going, aha, these are my true deepest values. These are my true 
deepest needs. I need this in order to survive. And if we're doing that, if we're doing our moon, north node, Uranus enough, then we will not attract or, you know, experience as much confrontation of other people telling us, look at your shit, <laughs> look at your stuff, you're not. But so it's a complementary axis. You see what I'm saying? So, and I, you know, in, in today's mantra, I talk about giving and taking. And what we want to understand here is that this lunar eclipse, okay, where the moon conjunct her north node is super powerful. Besides, she's exalted in Taurus. Moon loves Taurus. <laughs> Earth and water, you know, super feminine, powerful feeling energy that really comes into, okay, my physical, sensuous, sexual body. So issues around money, issues around sex, issues around relationships, issues around food, okay, issues around survival, the supply chain, inflation, you know, whatever you want to look at it, so many, you know, issues are really coming up here, really pushing each and every single one of us to step into self-sufficiency, self-love, self-care. What do I need to do for myself? This is the opposite of victim consciousness. Okay, this is the opposite of the martyr. This is stepping into I, me, my. I need, I want, I take care of myself. I am going to go where I want, do what I want, say what I want, according to my own unique personal truth and my own unique personal values. And you could say, oh, that's pretty narcissistic. Oh, that's pretty selfish. Oh, God, you know, like if everybody did that, you know, we wouldn't have any relationships. <laughs> Indeed, Taurus does best, you know, better than Taurus and Virgo I've seen as being the most comfortable alone. It's like I can, you know, Taurus, I can take care of myself. Thank you very much. Scorpio, go away. <laughs> I don't need the intensity. I don't need the soulmate, soul union, merging, uh, transformation. It's like, I just want to live simply and let others simply live. <laughs> That's Taurus, right? And what we want to say is don't forget, the North Node is in Taurus from January of 22 to July of 23. You can look back nine years ago. The North Node was in Scorpio. And I would have said the opposite. I would have said, guess what? Now is a time, nine years ago, and nine years in the future, in 2020, what? No, 2031, right? 
the North Node in Scorpio is going to say, uh, 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 you know, don't be so concerned about, you know, maintaining and holding and receiving and self-love. No, no. Now is a time when you need to stretch yourself and deal with, go to therapy, go to counseling, see what, you know, resistance or fears you have around trusting and vulnerability and opening. So, you know, this is all I can say is there's a time and a place for everything. And now during this time and this place is a time for self-care. And this learning how to receive is very important. And we could say if it's giving and taking, Taurus, Venus, the feminine is receptive. It's taking. Thank you very much. I'll take another. <laughs> Thank you. I would like seconds. <laughs> Thank you. I would like more. Please give me more. I am receiving. I am the moon eclipsed in Taurus. And, and with Uranus, I just realized that I also want that. And I need that. And I'm attracted to that. And I want more of that in my reality. Yeah. And the other flip side of that is Sun, Venus, Mercury moving through Scorpio, ruled by Mars and Pluto. I will take. Thank you very much, <laughs> my little red riding hood. <laughs> right? Scorpio says, you know, let us merge and mix. I am the sorcerer. I am the shaman. I am the spider woman. And I want to just like take, <clears throat> yeah, weave you into my web and transform you and change you and kill you that oh. you may resurrect into something completely new and different, deeper and wiser as a result of that alchemical fusion. Now we can go too far in either direction and that's what this mantra is about. We can give too much and we can take too much. So we can be in a situation and where I put it is, I put it is in, in the mantra, it's like my soul, is like my conscience, living with myself. I can feel guilty or ashamed if I take too much. Right? And in my relationships, my relationships, if there's a balance, if I'm giving and taking in with equanimity, my, I'm gonna, I'm gonna live, and I'm, my conscience is gonna be, I'm gonna be more at peace with myself, and in my relationships and partnerships, I'm gonna be more at peace with my lover, and with the outside world at large, and with the universe as a whole. The balance between giving and taking, the in breath and the out breath, the yin and the yang, 
but I really want to focus on giving and taking because let's look at the dark side, the shadow side here of Scorpio, where we take too much. That's exploitation. That's manipulation. That is a power grab. And we see that happening in the outside world with the politics, with the elections, with the billionaires and the, you know, uh, World Bank and whoever, right? You know, I mean, we're all experiencing this time period right now, okay, where there are multiple external sources and authorities, Saturn in Aquarius, political, corporate institutions and corporations just doing a massive power grab, right? To the point of even killing people, (laughs) reducing the population for the sake of the good in the future, right? So we get this, there's there's a super dark side here And what we may want to just look at is, what is my shadow? Where do I want to take too much? Where do I want to control too much? You know, who do I want to manipulate or use? You know, or, you know, abuse for, you know, my Taurus purposes. (laughs) So am I, you know... Am I exploiting? Am I taking? Am I using others financially, emotionally, sexually, idea-wise, however, whatever chakra, where there's this, you know, and, you know, and Mercury coming around now, particularly Venus and Mercury in conjunct Mars and Gemini, that's where the mantra also comes from, discuss. Right? Desire, discuss, and then reach. We need communication here, folks. Lots of communication. We need to to bring into clarity. Okay? And Scorpio is, you know, the eighth house is the house of secrets. So this is a time to talk about the taboo. This is a time to, you know, spill your guts. This is a time to, like, really have those intentional dialogues. And maybe you need a counselor. Maybe you need a therapist. Maybe you need a third party. You need a witness. If you feel afraid to speak or confront or face someone who is abusing or taking or dominating you too much. So maybe you need help doing your Taurus self-care. And this is the, you know, this is kind of the, you know, and I wanted to like bring in not just Taurus and Scorpio, but we need to talk about the whole fixed cross. Because there's also what? Boom. Leo and Aquarius. And when you've got a T-square happening like this, okay, with this Saturn up there in Aquarius, gazing down upon the full moon eclipse, along with Venus, Mercury, and Uranus involved, Saturn is really coming in very strong here. And the sign of Aquarius has to do with our personal future, 
the future of our relationships and the future of society. This is Aquarius. It's the future. And since December of 2020, when Jupiter and Saturn conjuncted at zero degrees of Aquarius, Saturn moving through Aquarius is restructuring and reforming our future. And obviously with the use of technology, uh -oh. I might have sat in a pile of fire ants here or something, man. <laughs> starting to eat me up. Uh, but what I really wanted to look at is, and a lot of people ask me, how long is this going to go on? When is this going to be over? You know, like, what is the big scoop? Right. And what, we, what I really want to point out is, like, this has been like, and I tried to think of different analogies for this. I think the, the you know, a, a good analogy that I can use is a bomb. I think of Hiroshima. Okay, or a huge bomb has been dropped. This 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 total lunar eclipse, boom. And first I thought of like you know you throw a huge rock into a still pond, and there's a big splash, and then there's the ripple effect, and those ripples may not hit shore for a long time, or a bomb drop. And it blows everything up. And it doesn't really all settle until later. So what we have here is Saturn. Saturn came all the way up to 25 degrees of Aquarius. And that was June 4th. So it moved, you know, it's been moving up all through 2022 up to 25, goes retrograde, right, until October 23rd, just a couple weeks ago. And now it's going to go direct. And it's not coming back to 25 until February 1st. Mark that. February 1st. What began last February 1st and has been restructured and reordered and reflected upon and the changes in your life and your relationships, okay, and your business and our, you know, our world is not going to be like really fully resolved or complete until February 1st when Saturn passes over that same degree. Along with Jupiter, Jupiter went forward, okay, up to eight degrees of Aries, okay, and that was... July 28th, Jupiter stationed and went retrograde. And it's not even going direct. Okay, it's still going retrograde. Back closer to Neptune, right? To give us a new dream. And it doesn't really go, it doesn't go direct until November 23rd. We got, we got a couple more weeks here. Okay, of Jupiter still going retrograde. It hasn't even turned around. So these results of elections and the results of what's going on in the Ukraine and the results of, you know, all the changes that have been going on this year and, you know, all the threats of, you know, a new virus and a new this and, you know, all the fears and all the mongering and all the, you know, bullshit that's going on around here. You know, Jupiter goes direct, okay, in a couple of weeks, but it doesn't come back to eight degrees 
you know, of Aries, it doesn't really hit any fresh territory, okay, until March 17th. No, I'm sorry, February 15th. So Saturn hits new territory February 1st. Jupiter hits new territory February 15th. I was also going to go into Mars, you know, because Mars is still retrograde, really. I mean, Mars doesn't, uh, you know, Mars doesn't go direct until uh, January 12th, okay? But just get this sense of these planets bring in, you know, they cover fresh ground, fresh territory, new ideas, new businesses, new relationships, okay, new ideas, new discoveries, new viruses, new science, whatever. Through June and July, Saturn and Jupiter then go retrograde, and we have to make adjustments. We have to, you know, we have to, like, really make decisions and choices inwardly and remodel, you know, and, you know, do our business and our relationships differently and take care of ourselves differently. And the results of our choices, the results of our decisions, the results of our study, you know, the results ye are yielded in February. So it's premature right now to be making commitments, decisions, uh, you know, breaking contracts, breaking up or getting married or whatever, you know, you know, this is, this is still a time where we are very much boom, like things are really up in the air. Let them be up in the air. It's okay. Expand your tolerance for chaos. And the longer you can stay in that state of unknowing without grasping prematurely, fearfully, onto something that you think is going to save you or hold you or secure you, the more choice, the more freedom, the more opportunity, the more expansion, the more of a, an expanded universe you will experience in the future. So I'm really encouraging people now to, yeah, it's hard. It's scary. There's nothing to hold on to. We need to really go into Taurus. We need to really go into ourselves. And we need to confront and hold back anything that wants to strap us down, limit us, uh, you know, take, you know, our money or our bodies or our time or our energy. You know, boom, we need to like really... Sun and Scorpio is like, you know, back off, buster. <laughs> Squaring Saturn, back off, you know, government, back off, mandate, back off. I mean, this is just like really... And, you know, it's like you got to really like, oh, God, am I really strong enough to do this? Am I really independent enough? Am I really self-sufficient enough? I mean, and then that's, of course, where I come back to nature, 
back to the playa, back to the beach, back to the mother. And the closer you are to Gaia, baby, the simpler and the better you're going to feel because she's just like, you know, seeing it all, supporting it all. Like I've said many times, you know, she could just shrug and we would be gone. So, you know, that feminine lunar Gaia energy could just shrug us off, but she doesn't. She doesn't. So, yeah, we're... We're in this time period and it will, you know, it will come to a close. It's like we're doing a, a study. We're gathering information. We're doing, you know, an experiment. We're doing a, a, a scholarly, uh, what do they call those things? You know, a dissertation or, you know, we're gathering everything that we need. And, you know, it will be, like I said, you know, the, a, a certain phase of it or the tests or the finals or the report card is going to be coming in February. So, yeah, don't jump prematurely or turn your paper in before the test is over. <laughs> go over your answers. <laughs> if you think you're done, what you should do is you should go back and review your test, <laughs> look at all your answers and go, now am I really sure about that? <laughs> it could be a danger in not questioning yourself enough. A. Ow! Alright, let's wrap it up here. That's enough for today. <laughs> when a balance of giving and taking is desired, discussed, and reached, my soul, my love, and the universe will have joy, harmony, and peace. I was going to say, my soul, my love, and the world at large. Just because we can be experiencing, you know, like, and getting so much, you know, crap. If you're online too much, or you're, you know, if you're not looking at the water or the waves or doing your yoga or swimming or whatever, doing your astrology, <laughs> you know, and you're, uh, you know, getting inundated with all this uh, social Saturn stuff, you know, uh, you'll be, you could be experiencing this outside yourself or inside yourself. And hopefully you're, you're experiencing it inside yourself so that you, so that it's not happening to you. It's happening in you. So it's your Saturn your inner authority, okay, you, you know, your, your elder within, okay, that is really overlooking, you know, your life experience. And you don't need that to be some president or some billionaire or some other, you know. So, I, you know, as usual, I encourage, like, getting off the screen and getting out to the beach. <laughs> Ow! Yeah, baby. One more time. One more time. When a balance of giving and taking 
is desired, discussed, and reached. My soul, my love, and the universe will have joy, harmony, and peace. May you, you, you have joy, harmony, and peace. Namaste. Aloha. So much love. All right, then. Well, he's real good at explaining the complexities of the energies. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, no, I was, I was thinking that uh, I was... Uh, I've been meditating on, on where... Can we relate the astrology layout to inflation? And I think we have to go, we have to go with Jupiter conjunct Neptune on that, uh, uh, Aquarius, uh, uh, Pisces, uh, Pisces thing here. Right, and uh, so I don't know if 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 our U.S. Federal Reserve can uh, manage it without throwing us into a recession. I don't think they can. With with Mars with Mars retrograde, I think uh, a recession is is uh, more than fifty percent likely. Mm-hmm. We've already we've already seen the rate the rise in interest rates affect certain parts of the economy, right? Like housing, right? And we know we know humanity has a housing problem. You know, even in even in the wealthy parts of the United States, right? Mm-hmm. Because of the because of the way that interest rates work with with timing. If you know, if you if you ever took that course on on, on interest rates and how it works, I, I was one of my favorite courses in, in college was engineering economy, and in that in that course they explained about the time value of money and and how interest rates work and and how how a thirty year mortgage is a total rip off. Yeah. Oh man, yes. Because they're 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 making you pay every every month on the unpaid balance, right? Yes. And that that brings up the, the whole issue of of living in debt. Yep. So uh, that's and once I once I grabbed that, I did my best not to 
not to take on any debt, you know. And if you are taking on debt, keep that keep that time period as, as short as you can. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's uh, we've already we've already seen some of the big corporations start to lay off people, right? Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg's laying off 11,000 people. Yes. And Elon Musk is going broke because he's firing all, all the Well, other yeah, he, 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 he went in there with his, his, big, his big cleaver yeah. and, and went after stuff that, you know, that, that he thought is uh, overblown and everything. It'll be, it'll be interesting to watch. Watch Musk and, and see whether he eat, whether he eats it into bankruptcy. But anyway, he may pull it out. You know, he may pull it out. You know, but he's getting, you know, he, right now uh, he's losing advertisers, and that that's kind of interesting. And I think it's a personality thing. See, they don't like Musk because he's unpredictable. And uh, that's a good thing, you know. He's storing. He's like, like he's like a, a wild card. Remember, Cryon said Trump was a wild card. Yeah. Musk is is a similar kind of wild card, but in the corporate world as opposed to the political world. So it's all it's all interesting. So uh, have a good week and. Uh, Stay out of trouble and uh, uh, be careful out there on the roads because people are driving erratic. Yeah. There's a lot of erratic energies around, and, and the 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 uh, the sloppy operators. I'll just put it that way. The sloppy operators are are going to remain sloppy. And distracted, you know, that's the, <coughs> so uh, be safe out there and have a great week. Are you going to join us with Tanya Gabrielle here, Commander? Are you going to bed? I am so sleepy. My, my, I'm sitting here with my eyes closed. <laughs> that's how sleepy I am. <laughs> Oh, no. Well, I was. Well, see, I was work. Well, I tried to do a little bit of work outside in the in the in the forty degree air. Right. I got a little exercise, bringing firewood up on the porch and raking a few leaves and things like that. So I got I got my exercise in for the day, <laughs> and now my body says take a take a sleep. Sleep yeah. well, Richard. Sleep, sleep well, yeah. I'll probably be awake by 3 a.m., you know. I'm lucky if I can sleep five hours. And then I get up at 3 a.m., and then I go back to bed at 7 and sleep okay. another four hours. Have a good nap. Uh, yeah. All right. Peace and love to everyone. Over and out. Namaste. Ditto. All right, everybody. Let's see what time. Hello there, it's Tanya Gabrielle here, Wealth Astrologist, and welcome to 
star codes. The forecast where we look at an important event in the astrology and numerology coming up. And in this case, it is the yearly event of 11-11 happening, of course, on November 11th. And this year, the portal that opens on that day is extra potent because we are in 2022 and 22 is a master number just like 11 is. So we are going to have a more intense awakening on that day and in November as a whole, because as you, I'm sure, realize, we have a powerful total lunar eclipse in Taurus with the sun in Scorpio, literally three days before 11-11, which really intensifies the energy, as does the recent change of direction for Mars, Mars stationing retrograde on October 30th, through January 12th, and Mars is a co-ruler of Scorpio. So there's so much additional intensity and awakening energy going on this year that the 1111 portal is going to really bring a major crest in that wave. And essentially, we've come to a point now, personally and collectively, where there really is the ultimate call to make conscious choices, to be utterly present, which is what the 11 actually means. So 11 represents our inner light. In fact, the word light, and every word has a code, a frequency, the word light adds up to 29, which reduces to 11. So When our inner light is shining, we are using our intuition to tune in, to intuit directly from source instead of using the mind, which is very limited. And the mind can't even comprehend, for example, multidimensionality, which is where we are moving into. We're moving from duality, polarity, consciousness into multidimensional consciousness. And the mind can't comprehend that. So this is very crucial this time around on 11.11 to really understand that the polarity consciousness is rapidly dissipating and will not be at all able to be activated in a way that it used to be. You know, anytime you're defensive, you're trying to justify something, for example, somebody just said something to you and it hit you somewhere, you know, you had a reaction, it triggered something and you want to defend yourself or you're turning to somebody else who is in the room and want their support, asking, you know, through eye contact or verbally through support, you're coming from fear. Any justification, any defensiveness is a place of fear. And that's your mind. That's not your heart. Your heart doesn't go there. The intuition is connected to source, and source is not afraid. Your soul is not afraid. It's your mind. It's really getting in control of the mind. That is the choice we have, especially this year, because 22 for 2022, 22 is the architect of peace number. And it literally means that when you have that 2-2 engagement with source, that receptivity, that listening, that observation happening, then you are at peace. You are literally not needing your mind to defend anything because you are just in 
truth in the light. So we have 11 the light, 22 peace, and they're coming together on 11 11 2022. And here's the other thing that date, 11 11 2022, adds up to the number 10, which is also considered the God number, the wheel of fortune number, the instant manifestation number, the number of love and light. Ones and zeros make up the computer code. Ones and zeros represent the straight line and the circle. So the number 10, the first double digit number is really the alpha and omega of numbers. And so the fact that this date, this year, the year of the activation of the master numbers adds up to 10, sheds an even greater light on the importance of this moment in this time in human history. So if you feel defensive, you are coming from fear. You're not in your heart. You're not in that God-centered, creator-centered, source-centered place. So the choice of the 11-11, so 11 is a portal. And there are two pylons, columns that you walk through. And it is the portal of the initiation, meaning you die to the past. You die to yourself. You literally are only present so that there's nothing. There's just listening. So that portal is your choice. It is a choice you make to either be present or to be in the past or the future, which is what the mind only can engage in. The mind cannot be present. So that is a choice that the 11 represents. And 1111, of course, makes it even more powerful. 1111, when you add that up, it adds up to four. Four is the number of grounding manifestation. It is the number of earth. We have four directions. We have four seasons. And the number four is representative of the cycle of life on our beautiful planet. So the choice is to be in your heart or to be in polarity where you're choosing the good or bad, the right or wrong. So if you're seeing others or a situation as positive or negative, then you're in your mind. You're not connected here because the heart, the soul sees the whole picture and asks, if I feel lost or confused or upset, what is it I need to be aware of? Not, oh my God, that's negative. Now I have to put some positive juju in to feel better. That's a reaction. As 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 much as that seems like it's the right thing to do, it is not engaging with whatever it is that felt negative to you. And asking, okay, so what is this? What do I need to feel? What do I need to see? So seeing, meaning your third eye. So when you see others or situations as positive or negative, your heart is not singing to you, is not speaking to you, because your heart does not see the separation. Your heart doesn't polarize. Your heart just feels with the intuition, the connection, the two, two, the one, one, right? They all represent that connection to source. So the collective right now is 
because of the intensification, the eclipses, the Mars retrograde, the 11-11, it's just so powerful right now. So the collective is reflecting a lot of beliefs that are trapping people in their mind. It's coming to a head. And this 11-22 combination this year is bringing stuff to the surface more than ever before let alone the incredible two eclipses in Scorpio and Taurus that are happening at the same time. You know, Scorpio is very connected to truth. That stinger of Scorpio goes directly to where nobody wants to go or few want to go, I should say, which is to the subconscious that fuels everything. You know, all our habits that are unconsciously driving our actions, our beliefs, so this Scorpio impact is powerful. And then Taurus is powerful because Taurus represents our values. And what is it we actually value? So what are we placing our energy into, in other words? Taurus becomes very particular and meticulous about where you are choosing to invest your life in. So... The way to do this during a time when there is so much polarity coming to the surface is not to judge others who you don't agree with on whatever spectrum you're talking about. To not judge others based on that good-bad paradigm, but just notice how it makes your heart feel. Just that noticing is the conscious engagement. That's all you need to do. So when you open up and look at your life with this objective self-awareness, you will see then how fear plays a role in your thought process. So what we do as a result is when we're in that fear, we try to unburden ourselves of it because who wants to be in fear, right? So any fear that we're not facing, we try to release and we tend to project it. And the other thing we do is we try to release the burden that we carry of the previous choices that we have made in our life too. And all of this is also being projected, projected onto others. And that 11, 11, that's, that's literally the mirror. So if you look at the number 11, there's the two ones, right? So it's you and the other. And it is you looking in the mirror and not looking at your reflection, but looking through the mirror at the, at the feedback that the universe is giving you because you create that feedback every moment. And it is every moment coming back to you as an experience. That experience that you are having today, tomorrow is from the past. You created that through how you focused your energy previously and so now it's showing up for you so whatever you're experiencing through people or, or anything situations in your life was created prior to now and is now coming back so if you are able to see clearly your life as almost like a simulation like you're you're watching a movie and you remove yourself emotionally from reacting to it then you can watch this process from the bird's eye view and literally start catching those 
crucial moments of awareness what it is that created those people coming into your life, situations appearing for you. You know, everything, it seems random, but it really is truly created by you. That's how powerful you are. So when we make choices from the point of being afraid, we will cover up the truth through self-deception in order to prove that our fears are correct. And we do that by making others wrong and by making, naming, defining situations as negative. So it's a, it's a pattern that we have been partaking in for a long time. So it, it takes a moment to like step back and really watch. Oh, I just felt really triggered by this situation or this person and sit back and say, well, what could that, what is the symbolism behind it? What is it I, I need to see? So this is what we need to get now. The times are so intense astronomologically. And so that means the astrology and numerology, the codes are coming together to really, you know, they're very potent. They're making a, they're making a really potent recipe. So that means at this time, whatever you put out is coming back exponentially faster than it did before. And if you are not tuning in to the heart and going here, which of course is habitual, so we have to watch it, it will create a much quicker disconnect from source than before. And remember, we're ending the Piscean Age and we're in the dawn of the Aquarian Age. We're in the shift. So the Piscean Age does reflect timelessness, unconditional love, and the shadow side is feeling like a victim, right? Like you're not part of the collective and you are to be pitied for what has happened to you as opposed to taking ownership of your life. So we're at the end of that. And anytime you're at the end of a cycle, just like right before your birthday, have you ever noticed that's a cycle, a 12-month cycle, right before your birthday, the six weeks before, the lessons that were not learned come up. So it gets more intense right before your birthday. And if you haven't paid attention to that, like, try and see if you can like pay attention because it's amazing at the end of a cycle how the clearing is much stronger just like at the end of signs in astrology we have critical degrees the 28th and 29th degree the final two degrees of a sign before we go back to zero are called critical because they're so intense so it's very very important to allow yourself to experience everything that is happening to allow your feelings to come up and not to judge them and not to judge other people's way of thinking and feeling and to also really pay attention to what you're investing your energy into is it are you investing in duality in separation or are you investing in self-awareness observation connection, 
always asking, always observing, taking that extra space, especially when you feel triggered. That's the most important time. What we want to do is move away from opinions, from assumptions. We want to move into a place where if we feel upset, we acknowledge that. We don't run away from it. We don't try to cover it up. And we also want to understand that it's okay to be frank and not to sugarcoat things and not beat around the bush, obviously in a way that is respectful and gentle, depending. It also means that anyone in your life that shows up for you does not have power over you. They don't have the power to manipulate your thought process. So don't give them that power. Stand your ground in your heart. Don't engage. It doesn't mean you abdicate from the communication with that person or from the situation where you're brought together. It just means you don't engage in the power play. That's the duality. So it's important to be frank, to be open, to be transparent, to not sugarcoat things, to not be embarrassed about sharing how you truly feel, and to not shy away from taboo topics such as astrology, numerology, life, death, sexuality, anything that is an underlying fear. It's okay to share. It's okay to partake and communicate and not feel embarrassed about it. And that's really the key because the embarrassment, again, shows that there's a fear of being found out somehow or exposed. So anytime that fear comes up, it can be very subtle and very often it is. Just turn to here. The 1111, if anything, is just a call to be completely, utterly present. There is no fear in the present moment, none whatsoever. And right now, being fearless and loving, because love itself does not take sides. Love does not have an opinion. Love just is. It's not definable. That's where we all are heading. That's where we're going. That's where earth is going to. Unity. Love. Peace. Light. That are not measured, not definable. They just are. Now we're going to really dive into these energetics in 2023, which is a seven universal year and a 23 is the royal star of the lion number, the most powerful number in numerology. This is a big year. Seven actually represents bringing heaven to earth. So not causing a separation. So the horizontal upper line is heaven and well, yes. And the diagonal line is bringing heaven into your heart. So it's a very, very important year and a year of just so much 
possibility and opportunities. So I'm hosting my ninth annual Ultimate Yearly Forecast, which is an incredible live stream with multiple handouts, amazing handouts, that you can join me on December 14th. And if you can't join me on December 14th, then there will be instant access for the whole year. It's a three-hour live stream, and then there's a Q&A as well. And it's all about discovering the energetics, the astro-numerology codes for 2023, including the forecast for your sun sign, moon sign, and ascendant, as well as your personal year. Those are all included as well. So there's so much we're going to cover. So if you're interested, just go to 2023forecast.com. That will take you to a free video, which will tell you a little bit more about the 2023 Ultimate Yearly Forecast. I highly recommend you join because this next year really is one of those pivotal years. And, you know, not that we haven't had them in this decade, but it's really building up now. And it's all moving towards 2024, 2025, where there's a culmination of energy as we move into the eight and nine in the numerology. So go to 2023forecast.com, watch the free video, enjoy that, and have an amazing 11-11. I just send you so much love and light and also a sense of really wanting to wake up and observe and be present. Sending you so much love. See you next week. Uh, well, we will uh, have a little break here uh, with our brothers here on BBS Radio, and Rama will give us the phone number. 720-716-7301. And the pin code. 353-863-POUND. Come and join us for a conversation, a little more intimate conversation for this next hour. And then we'll be right back here at our BBS radio station, two today, (laughs) for the next part three of our show. And so see you on the conference, everyone. And... uh, Namaste. BBS Radio is the best radio there is. Everything is right here. Namaste for now. Namaste. Two missing ones, which will give you a total of three, four, no, five maybe, (laughs) six, three pairs. We'll complete it all. The strong and weak multidimensional force, when discovered, analyzed, defined, and when finally understood, will even explain what you would call dark matter. There is no such thing.
it's simply invisible. Now, let's talk about a brilliant one for a moment to give you just a hint of how science starts to relate to consciousness. His name was Tesla. And he loved magnetics. I told you about him. He came for a reason and left in frustration. Because he could only go so far. That was all he was allowed to do. Let me tell you what he saw in his laboratory through his eyes. And I've only mentioned it once before. Dealing only with designer magnetic fields that were coarse, without computers, without the electronics kind of elegance you have today, all he could do was flounder in general areas of designer magnetics. But three times or more, he touched on a formula that changed the mass of things on his workbench, and they flew off and hit the ceiling. The astute, who examined his workshop, even the preserved archaeology of his workshop today, will see pockmarks in the ceiling. <laughs> he didn't discover anti-gravity. There is no such thing. He discovered the relationship between designer magnetics and the mass of an object. You think mass is Stable. You think if something is bigger, it has a higher mass. Oh, how 3D. That's all you've seen. And it gives you something called gravity, which you also don't understand. You know why? Because it's quantum. Magnetics is quantum. You play with it. That's all you do. You play with it. You don't understand it. Yet. Humanity is starting to work with consciousness. What did you see the good doctor do today? What did you see the teacher Greg settle on to bring back something he said was old and give it to you again? Do you see how the dots are starting to be connected because both of them centered on something that is critical and that is consciousness will change physics. <laughs> and part of physics is biology. The masters gave it to you first. They begged you to watch it. And what did you do? As unelegant humans, literally in survival mode, you worshipped them. You didn't get it. You didn't understand. This could be you. <laughs> And they came again and again and again. And by the way, they're coming again and again. Perhaps you'll listen this time and write it down. Consciousness is the key and is the answer to a very esoteric and quantum question. If quantum energy has no real time, if quantum energy can be projected through portions of entanglement so there's no distance 
What are the questions today? How about the law of the inverse square? You know what that is? That's a three-dimensional law that quantum physics ignores. You can send a signal from here right now today to the farthest part of the universe and they'll get it instantly because it's not part of black and white. Are you understanding this? The ones who are receiving shades of gray are starting to develop the receivers that are quantum in their brains. Do you know what spontaneous remission really is? It's the human being who has a triggering from whatever process you want to call it through his akash, through fear, through joy, through survival, who all of a sudden, for a moment, sees in color and has the ability of the masters and heals himself in minutes. Now, I want to relate to what you saw today, dear human beings in this room, and we're told. What did you see on the screen? Healing in minutes. How do you explain it? What did the doctor tell you about a new system that is purely and totally conscious thought? <laughs> Instant healing. Are you beginning to connect the dots? Here's a question. If you can create a quantum invention whether it's a laser or something else. When you turn it on, why doesn't it cure everyone around you? Here is a simple answer. Because it's quantum and you're not. But those of you who are working on quantum thought, meaning a higher vibrational consciousness, are then the antennas who will receive it. Is that simple enough? If all humanity had the shades of gray moving into color, you could turn the laser on and all of them would be affected. So it is keyed in to something we have told you from the beginning that you need and is the king of all things from the other side and it is called free choice. A human has the ability to ask themselves logical questions and develop their own answers. Here's a question, is there something more than you can see? The ones in this room would say yes. The ones outside this room may say no, and my partner was one of them who said, I will only believe what I can see. That's why he was so stubborn. You know where this leads you? Nowhere. If you are proud of this belief and you are listening to me now, or perhaps you're even in the room, and you'd say, that's logical, why should I change? I'm only going to believe what I can see. This makes total sense. And I could say, well, that means a hundred years ago they told you about germs, and what did you do? You laughed in their face. Probably caught their disease. Speaking of that, you want to know the power of the quantum consciousness of a human being? Look at a hypochondriac. 
who over and over speaks to his cells out loud, tells everybody what he's afraid of, and that's what he gets. That's power. Did you notice? Did you notice? You're working on shades of gray in the room. As you do, there is another rule that starts to take shape. Something is hidden in your body. Now, if I told you who hid it there, you're not going to like the answer. <laughs> there are processes that are quantum. All of you, all of you have mastery. All of you can be the man in the shroud. Your DNA is equipped fully. There's nothing that has to be given to you from somewhere else to activate it. The basic truth is this. Your free will starts a process that the cells have been listening for for eons. The energy was not right on the planet, and now it is. The part of space you were going into was not right, and now it is. There is a plan here, and it's benevolent, and it's loving, and it's gracious, and it honors free choice of the human being to see in color. I'm going to say it again. The most profound inventions and processes on this planet right now are the ones that totally involve consciousness, not physics. But consciousness is physics. The creep. Find 24,000 healthcare professionals caring for 17 million patients. A world of care is in store. creator of the universe is the master physicist. And when you start realizing what is in these forces, even the four basic ones, but especially in the six, you will include consciousness as a major player of physics. And that is why your mind and what you have can instantly speak to your biology and get a result and say to the mountain, move, and it will. What if all humanity had that power? The intellectual says, that's laughable. What if you did? And I say to you, congratulations, your earth just graduated. There's no confliction. Because it comes with wisdom to use it. Do you understand that as you mature and you become seeing the shades of gray, your palate changes, your wisdom changes. You figure out why things are what they are. You stop the problems of the earth that you think are unsolvable simply because you're in black and white and that's all you see. Every single holy man, shamanic energy, anyone that you know, who could manipulate reality, had something else, if you remember, and that is profound wisdom. Profound. It comes with the territory. Can you imagine a human race that is wise? It's happened before in other places in your galaxy 
And that is why we are comfortable to say today, we have seen it and you're doing it. The degree of speed at which you accomplish it is up to you. Slow, fast, but the snowball is rolling. It's going to be hard to stop. And in the process, as light and dark itself recalibrates itself, there will be conflict. And we told you there would be. Do you dare celebrate it? <laughs> Understand. So again we say, the ones who are studying their own selves and the consciousness of themselves and are trying to figure out the puzzle are going to trigger a cellular response that is going to help give you the answers. Your body is smart. Who hid all this information? What's the process? Why the illusion? Who hid it? You already know the answer, don't you? We told you, God within means you're eternal. God within means you're wise and you're smart. God within means that you were smart enough to hide this from you <laughs> until you became mature enough understand it and use it. I hope this starts to explain some of the oxymorons between quantumness and 3D. Dear ones, the message of Cryon from the beginning, from the beginning, has said that you are facing change. Don't despair at what you see on your planet because you created it within the change. Go back to your history and your prophecy and you will say there was every bit the opportunity for you to have destroyed yourself. You had the, the engine of destruction up and working when you were born. And you didn't. The naysayers will say the engine is still there. You're still going to do it. That's what humans do. And then there will be the ones who are thinking in shades of gray. And there's two kinds, and we told you who they were a little while ago. I'm going to add the third group. There's the ancients, there's the futurists, and there's the old souls. I can't tell you the celebration that's going on on my side of the veil about what you're doing to sit here and listen to the truth of the day to see the evidence of it to talk to those who are brilliant and who are dedicated their entire lives to spreading it we saw it before here it comes <laughs> don't let anybody talk you out of it don't let anybody talk you out of your magnificence don't let fear get you today. You're built to take it also from what you've been through. Leave this room differently than you came and get on with it. And so it is.
Oh, aho, Rava. And so it is. I'm just going to read this joke that Penny sent. She sent it way back in May, on the 10th of May. <laughs> I was just, you know, going through papers, but it starts off here. Um, I am the genie of the lamp. And there's this little kid, and he's got this this golden lamp, holding it in one of his hands, and a genie's coming out of the out of the lamp part, the, the spout, and he says, "I am the genie of the lamp. You have three weeks. Oh, excuse me, three wishes. <laughs> excuse me, and then." Uh, uh, the genie, uh, then the little boy says, I wish everyone against abortion wakes up seven weeks pregnant. Mm. <laughs> and then the genie says, he says, the F word, oh F, <laughs> that's a good one. Damn. <laughs> now, you still have three wishes. That one's on me. <laughs> Judy's still laughing, holding his stomach. <laughs> okay, Rama, you got this one now? Yeah. Okay, this is called, we're just going to take a grad. Uh, Cheryl was intimating that maybe Brother Marshall has his birthday today, too. I have a vague memory of it, but Happy birthday, Marshall, if that's the case. Yeah. We'll find out, but probably not till tomorrow. But, wow. Pathways of the Sky Gate, this is called. Superhuman Experience with Lee Holden. How can we reach the Sky Gate beyond our own minds? In this episode of Super human experience. I just want to make sure everybody can hear me. Mm -hmm. I just heard sometimes uh, Commander Doug was saying that we sound like we're little mice sometimes. So I'm pulling this little microphone closer. So here I am. Okay, so how can we reach the sky gate beyond our own minds? In this episode of Superhuman Experience, David Verdesi visits a Balinese master to cleanse his karma, while Lee Holden discovers a secret, a secretive Buddhist practice, traveling to an ancient temple to make sense of the Buddha's forgotten son. Okay, let's do this. This twenty. What is it? Thirty-five minutes. Thirty-five minutes. All right. Here we go. What you have seen, I believe, is real. Why? Because I did it myself. 
In these episodes, we've seen incredible energy masters activating their chi, their life force energy from all different cultures around the world. We've seen the powers of the mind. In this episode, we're going to focus on the spiritual path. After seeing all these different cultures and practices, instead of getting lost in the thousand different techniques that humanity has devised mm -hmm. to alter the brain, alter the consciousness, or expand it, communicating with the gods, developing special abilities, what are the common results? And what are the common elements of each of these practices? The, the thousand of methods that humanity has devised, they all try to do the same thing. Mm. So the first thing that we need to do, we need to disconnect. We are locked inside our head, yeah. constantly interacting with what we think, what we say, what we want, the past, present and future, our thoughts, our feelings, our emotion, me, me, me. So what humanity has devised is a series of practices to shock you out of the system. Mm -hmm. And so you go across the globe, Africa, South America, Siberia, mm -hmm. China, India, Indonesia, Nepal, doesn't matter. The beginning of the spiritual journey of the apprentice, the first initiation, it's snap out. The first step of every progress, first we need to get out of the cave. So in the moment that you disconnect, first of all, there is silence. Mm. That famous stillness. And then when there is the silence, there is that recognition that I am not in anymore. I am out. Mm. For the first time, I am here. The mind goes off. Uh -huh. So in the moment that I'm present, uh, then I more become aware of the silence and of the stillness. So those things are natural. But to be able to master them and to be able to replicate them, that's a skill. So that is a pivotal moment. And so there is a whole series of practices that humanity has developed to extend the state of silence or to extend the state of presence. After you become present, after you come out, these incredible emotions start to come through. Oh, right. okay. So the moments when an amazing piece of music or a sunrise or a sunset really carries you out of yourself, Touches your heart. Touches your heart. Mm -hmm. And there is an emotion. That emotion further brings you out of yourself. And so that's the next step. And so there are a whole number of practices that were aimed to develop that sustained state of emotional expansion. It feels like the all the energies of the body are coming alive. Mm -hmm. You feel potent. Mm -hmm. You feel powerful. So when the energies comes to life, that's then another step. We are able to enter in this sustained state of both receptivity and projection. We like a radio that can tune and we can start to receive information, connect to your higher self, you connect to the knowledge, the mind of God, to Buddha, whatever is it, the wisdom. And so you start to receive those one as verbal information, thoughts, images mm -hmm. okay and that's then the whole next step and so humanity has devised thousands of practices to decode this information right. to put them in order and the visions that come with it and the symbols that you see and the sound that you hear 
And so from there, the next point is you need to be able to see mm. and hear. Mm. Because you can't work with what you don't see. Mm-hmm. So the real next step in all this practice, there is something that happens so that you start to have a vision, mm-hmm. some kind of vision. Mm-hmm. And again, here there is a whole another layer of practice that's been created. Yeah. Okay. So when you start to finally see yourself, because what you see, it is always yourself. You think of you not as what's encased in this body, but you as that awareness within which everything appears. You, I, this Colosseum, and every other person that might be in here. So I like to say that your mind revealed itself to you. And that experience of light and luminosity, the vision that it's common to all spiritual, mystical, religious tradition. Mm-hmm. The seers, the visionary, they see. Mm-hmm. Now that finally you have seen, you either or move toward the object that you see, your beloved vision of God, right? A vision of yourself, of your enlightened nature, a vision of the, the other world. You learn to move toward it, or you learn to move that which appears toward you. When you can see and you become one with what you see, so that's the famous experience of union, of communion, mm-hmm. from where the word religion came from. Mm-hmm. Religion is in Latin, it means religo, to reunite, oh. which is the same as Sanskrit yoga, to yoke. Yeah. Uh, that literally means to yoke, to reunite. Amazing. Okay. Very so that's really the stage, and that's the stage of the mystical union, is what they call the samadhis. And that's a whole another series of practices that cultures, humanity, has developed there. Mm-hmm. And all of developed around that. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then there are still several steps. The last step that I show in the movie is the great transfer where you have seen and now you transfer yourself there. Of course, we do not really have the proper word to really describe it, but it's a very, very unique phenomenon because when you can really do that, uh, is that famous separation of the soul, if we mm-hmm. so want to call it, the spirit, from the case of the body. Oh, and so amazing. you can really transfer yourself, this little limited identity, David Lee, we can take it out of this case uh, and it can merge and become one and aware of that greater identity within which we exist. I want the world to see the map. Mm-hmm. I want oh, every one of you to see. Yeah. Because after you know what you really should look for, and you yeah. see it existing in all this culture, the map is very clear. And then what you really are practicing are not necessarily the disparate techniques and belief system mm-hmm. and religious cultural baggages. We are practicing the principle. Seems like what you're doing too is you're giving people the view from the top of the mountain to see the whole landscape rather than just one trail, one specific Absolutely. area. Spiritual path is different than most journeys. On most journeys, you pack a bag, you gather your belongings. But along the path of liberation to free our spirits, we're going to do the opposite. We're going to let go. We're going to release our baggage so that we can be free and travel lightly. In this episode, David meets Karma Yogi, an Indian master who helps David clear past conditioning, old trauma, emotional baggage, karma, if you will. Let's take a look. There are people that really can dissolve into light. Yeah. The apotheosis of Christianity, the resurrection, the, the light body of Mount Tabor, 
you know, the Ezi cast of Argos Mountain, the Christian yogis of, of Ethiopia, the great mystics of Tibet, we have some legends of the Taoists doing this. I've seen it, it's real. Mm. It's not just one man that did it. Right. Every person potentially can. Uh-huh. And so, and that one is the famous stage of dissolution. Okay. After you're transferred, you reunite, and then you dissolve. Mm. And this dissolution is very real. Now, I am not there, I, I have certain experiences. Right. Okay. So, I cannot answer what then. I need to take for face value the knowledge that is passed in the oral tradition. I think that one day quantum mechanics and quantum physics will give us intelligent, interesting models. I do not have. Uh, but I know that the principles are universal, that we do this uh, other ritual where I mm. lay down on this slab of stone. And that is what you need to do in order to go to the sky gate, to fly. What the hot air balloon needs in order to fly. You need to cut the weights that uh, hold you down. Right. And what are these weights? It's what you hold. Mm. It's your sorrows, your mm. pain, your guilt, your shame, mm. your anger. Uh-huh. Okay, you. What really holds you back is the narrative of your own mind, the past that you exist into with m- as many separated entities. This practice that is used uh, to cut, to dissolve, to let go uh, of all the things that you are holding to, which mm. is nothing but yourself, mm. okay, mm. the narrative that you give so much reality to, and in the moment that you can let them go, they let you go. So the ghost of your past lets you go as uh-huh. you let them go. Uh-huh. And this one is the quintessential teaching of the Buddha. Then the soul can emerge naturally from the shell of the body. We think yoga. Right. Everybody knows Shavasana, right. the corpse pose. Traditionally, this pose is the pose in which you practice the abandonment of the body. So, Shiva, in the Hindu culture, lays down, okay, and the Shakti, the spirit, the feminine, you see that triumphantly above him. So, in the moment that you have abandoned the identification Mm. with the body, with the narrative of identity, then finally, the mind, the spirit is free. Mm. So, that's what that We are still using, studying and discovering those core principles. And I completely let go of all my thoughts and chiefly of the very sense of ownership of this body. body, we are under this illusion. We don't know that we are infinite. Practice, they call it giving before receiving. You give up your limited self that is being in a shape, in a form of the body and you receive your infinite self. And that is what is free from the body. Your past, your action, learning to stop eh? myself, my body. All your karmic vector and creditor, they come back. Until 300 years ago, our ancestors were killing people. It's also here. Yeah. It's also here. Yeah. 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 And in our life, many times we willingly or unwillingly hurt people. You have hurt them. So they keep a tension, a negative tension towards you. They want something from you. So you need to be able to give it to them freely and say, I give you what you really want.
we had a very interesting story. We met at the airport in Thailand. He came out of uh, his retreat. His guru uh, just passed away, displaying the great miracles of, of what's called the lesser, the small rainbow body, where the body doesn't completely dissolve into the light, but it mm -hmm. shrinks. And so his master just passed away. He came out of many, many years of retreat. And uh, they invited him to some monastery in there in Thailand. And he loses his passport, his money. So he was stranded in the airport. You don't really see many lamas uh -huh. around there. So we sort of stumble into each other. Yeah, and he's an incredibly accomplished job. It's called the cemetery sadhana, uh -huh. the cremation grain sadhana. He spent nine years in these practices, disconnecting, cutting all the things that keep you inside so that you can finally come out. So you see... Each one of these people, there is a story. Yeah. There are many yeah. stories. The most important stories to tell is what they exemplify. Okay. So the culmination of the movie, really, Skygate, is really about this dissolution of who you identify with, who you think you are, into expanding into this yeah. higher mind yeah. as the great superhuman Yeah, yeah it's possible. Every person has the right to that. And yeah. it's also yeah. considered a great insurance to that. Because if you have learned, if you have opened the highway and you know how to go and where to go, at the moment of that, you're not afraid. Because uh -huh. you're going into another reality. Because you know it already and you know how to go. You know how to go there. Because through the practice, you've been there. Yeah. And then you come back with that experience. Yeah. Which is profoundly transformative. Right. Right. Because you know? then you're able to truly let go and relax yes. in this life and enjoy this life. Yes. Because you already died. You already came back. Mm -hmm. Many times. Not just once. Right. Well... Thanks for the explanation because this covers so many topics from the supernatural to the spiritual to the powers of the mind to healing powers mm. all in one yeah. journey. Yeah. Yeah. And this seems to be the journey of life. The journey of life, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, my friend. Karma cleansing is a way to let go of the old and come into the present moment refreshed and expanded. We can do this for ourselves. We don't have to always have a master 
and help us clean our karma. Are you ready to try a little karma cleansing and letting go of some stress or tension or tightness? In each and every moment, we can let go of the unnecessary. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a deep breath, hold your hands just by your face, and we're going to make a heart sound. This sound is ha. So you're just going to ha. And you're not doing it to make it sound pretty, but you're doing it for the vibration. And the vibration then helps to clear stress, tension, tightness, and harmonize your energy field. Think of your body as an instrument that we want tuned up so that it's harmonious rather than discordant. Are you ready? We're going to take the hands up. And we're going to make a sound. As you do this, you just glide your hands down and three or four times, you're going to feel this ah release of stress, tension, and tightness. Let's do it again. Ah. You want to feel this nice, warm sensation all the way down your body. And whenever you need a little clearing, releasing of stress, tension, old emotional energy, you can do that sound. We're going to explore spirit, our true sense of who we are. We've looked at the map. We've traveled. We've looked through the lens of energy and mind and consciousness and cleansing old energy to arrive into the present moment. And now, who are we at our essence? The Sky Gate is a secret practice, and it's about opening up and expanding our consciousness, about dislocating our mind and becoming one with the Buddha mind, with the grand mind, with the infinite field. So David opens this point, and through this ritual, when the point actually opens, the skull opens, and you could put a blade of grass right into this point. It's quite extraordinary. But think about how we come into this world. As babies, this point is open. Our consciousness and our spirit, our minds and bodies are fusing together. And as we get older, the skull closes. But through Skygate, they open that point back up again, and they allow the spirit, the consciousness, to travel and connect to the universal wisdom. Think of this as traveling to the top of the mountain and having a grand view, a vista, of seeing what life is all about. Then when we come back, we've got that experience of an expanded vision, and we can bring that into daily life. And what this allows us to do is to relax a little bit more, that we know where we come from, our true source, and we can travel the rest of the road with lightness and levity, a liberated spirit. Since we were sort of interested in the extreme ends of things. Yep. <laughs> Have you had experience with people with the grass in the head and this oh, yes. idea of Skygate? And- Again, being based as I was for over 20 years in the Kathmandu Valley, and I went to meet one of the great Bun masters, uh, this uh, Sangatenza Nima. And when I went to see him, uh, there was a a mother and a daughter who had just finished a 10-day retreat after having received the initiation into this poor practice, this transference of consciousness. And as I was having my conversation with uh, this lama, the women bowed over and he stuck grass into the tops of their heads. I mean, the straw about this long. I was like, what was all that about? So this was just real confirmation that these things are not just metaphors. So some of the miracles that you hear about in the text and which are recounted in oral tradition. I've learned a lot from David in that through, you know, he's investigated this not only in other Buddhist traditions as well, but also among the Sufis, for example, and 
Turkey, where again, you know, this opening up, as it were, of the central channel beyond the body. This is not something you just do at the end of life. It's actually to regain the human capacity to be able to move between the light realms and the physical realm. We really want to achieve this while we're alive to feel that we are not limited to one single dimension, but we can actually move between dimensions. And to me, that seems to parallel even what we hear in other early religious traditions, what's coded even within Christianity, this whole idea of being able to move between dimensions freely, which is sort of something we as human beings have somewhat lost the capacity for. The question of the sky gate, the transcendental yes. consciousness, that was last piece of the puzzle of my journey that superseded everything else that uh, that I researched before. Now, traditionally, this practice is done at the end of a three years retreat. Mm -hmm. That means that you have for three years, 12 to 15 hours of very intense practices. Every single day, there is no day off. Three years of that. And at the end, you unlock one by one vertically the famous chakras. And when the last one opens, there is this very physical opening, right? Mm -hmm. Where your skull sort of, you know, opens up. You co-share that mind for however briefly, because you have sort of an omniscient mind, right? If the practice is good, mm -hmm. The stock, which depends on the level of the practitioner, for yogis is actually it's a fairly thick, like uh, incense stick, okay, yeah. uh, and it can go in quite deep. The interesting part of the practice is twofold: one, that it is considered the great insurance of the death. You seal all the other gates of the body so that your consciousness sort of bypass the need of reincarnation, mm -hmm. bypass the need of going through purgatory, let's say, mm -hmm. of these transitory experiences uh -huh. when you are in between one life and another. So there is also this, this great confidence that practitioners have. They have a sign that is both internal, that is that there is a natural event at the level of their awareness yeah. of their consciousness, uh, which give them a knowledge, a direct knowledge, that there is somewhere else to go that is completely independent from the reality of this body. Very recently, we started to think of the possibility of uploading our mind, our self, our identity, into either a synthetic mean, uh, through the advent of artificial intelligence, to an actual robotic form, or through cloning, uh, to upload our consciousness into a, a cloned human being. Many people still laugh at these things as a fairy tales, but actually it's not. They are investing big time and big money. And this will be a reality very soon, just a few decades away, even less. So looking at these, there exists a knowledge and a tradition that is tried and true yeah. of people that have learned to upload their identity and their consciousness into very complex light forms, the famous idea of the body of light. As a society, if we start to look at these things a little more seriously and empirically, give people the chance to, to practice this, mm -hmm. um, we would have uh, very soon a generation of people that, first of all, arrives at the moment of death without fear or having a better understanding of what comes after, not having a fear of death in the sense that death is just simply passing through a door as a transition mm -hmm. of simply shedding a layer uh, and then dressing up in another one that we just simply cannot see or comprehend from here, mm -hmm. it would 
change greatly how we then perceive life and how we live. It's a really interesting blend, this idea of uploading your consciousness into AI or a virtual reality, or these ancient technologies of uploading it into the Buddha mind. How do we make this relevant? Let me teach you a little exercise to help you connect to the sky gate. What we're going to do is take our energy. We've generated some energy in our hands. We also learned how to move and guide or direct our minds. We're going to bring our minds and our energy to this point on the top of the head. It's straight up from your ears and straight back from your nose. This point here is the culmination of all the energy of the body. Put your middle finger on that point. Breathe into it and focus your mind here. Focus your mind as you breathe. This point is our divine connection to a higher power. It's where we get guidance. It helps us to feel our sense of purpose in life. So hold your attention there. Press in with your fingers a little bit. Take a deep breath. And then release your hands down to your sides. Keep your attention on the crown of your head. And have that sense that the whole sky opens up. You can even imagine the canopy of stars above your head. And all that divine light. The connection to the great mystery of the universe. Breathe into that. And feel that something touches you on that point. Call it light, spirit, a soulful connection, your personal connection to the divine wisdom of the universe. Let it flow through you. Breathe it in. And have that sense of connection to life's deeper mysteries as they flow through you. Becoming superhuman takes some practice. It's like watering a garden. You water those internal seeds until they start to take root, start to take shape. Now use these masters to help to nurture the seeds of potential that are within you. Now go back to these exercises that we've learned, how to activate energy, how to focus the mind, how to connect to the divine, and bring them into your life. Review those exercises. Practice them with your friends, your kids, your family, your spouse, your grandmother. Bring those into reality, your reality, because what you focus your mind on changes reality, as we've seen. And what the Skygate teaches us is to bring in loving kindness, compassion, so that we can be an agent of positive change in the world. Let's bring heaven here on earth. Well, we've been asking this very important inquiry, who am I? Now, this question isn't necessarily something to answer because life is mysterious. But an inquiry helps us to feel a sense of guidance. It's a guiding light into a direction that we want to take. Who am I? I am something much more than just this physical body with these emotions and these thoughts. You're a spirit in physical form. Now, let's go meet David as he meets up with Chung, a Tibetan Buddhist master who's going to teach him the sky gate. Before going to retreat for these six years, I will ask you to please try to get a pearl, a wisdom that will endure time. What, what would you leave? It was only through the grace of, of my guru in Korea who took me a lifetime to understand. 
I've always been searching for very um, technical to a certain extent and very uh, practical ways to enact the very first step. We need to disconnect. We are locked inside our head, constantly interacting with what we think, what we say, what we want, the past, present, the future, our thoughts, our feelings, our... Across the globe, Africa, South America, Siberia, China, India, Indonesia, Nepal. The first initiation, it's snap up. It's very traumatic, very extreme, to less. And then when there is the silence, there is that recognition that I am not in anymore. I am out. For the first time, I am here. The mind goes off. Finally understood this teaching of the Buddha. The very structure of the mandala uh, with the four gates uh, that lead right. toward the center of the mandala. So they are the very representation of one of the very core teaching that the Buddha gave to his own son, Rahula. The Buddha is remembered as a rebel who literally changed the, um, you know, the world in, sort of in his own way. But not many people think of him as uh, a terrible father mm-hmm. and a very unresponsible person. He was married, he had a child, small child, and he was the heir of a kingdom mm-hmm. with an old father. And he suddenly said, no, enough of this the overprivileged child that, you know, need to rebel against uh, his upbringing. And he said, I'm going to become a monk. And uh, he left his luxury life in the palace, concubines, wife, children, responsibility of the kingdom, and he went off to the jungle. logically grew up with resentment, yeah. anger toward a man who abandoned him. And when he met his father again, his father was not a man anymore. He was the awakened one. We can even picture or imagine what this meeting would be about. Mm. A very conflicted you know, young man meeting the father who abandoned him. And then in the moment that he meets him, he sees something in the eyes of this being that it's not of this world anymore, right? Well, unluckily, we don't know the details of the story, which I, I like to fill up my mind. But uh, what we know is that the Buddha gave to Raula a teaching, which became one of the pillars of, of Dharma. This teaching is called the Brahma Viharas, the abodes 
of creation. Brahma means the creator, the creation. Right? And those are the four entrances of the mandala. And what are the Brahma Viharas? The Brahma Vihara is a practice, the ultimate practice to move out of the cave. Is the emotion from Latin ex motus, that which moves you from to, from a state of containment, of limitation, you are locked into your resentment, your anger, your hatred, your fear. Toward what? First, the Buddha say love, mm. kindness, mm. Mm. mercy, forgiveness, compassion, mm. peace, mm-hmm. joy. And <laughs> this is the core teaching that he gave to his son. Now, not many people understand that. But the very core teaching of this practice was actually a practice of emotion. Uh-huh. Because practicing the Brahma Viharas to enter into the abode of the Creator, to enter into the abode of creation, is not just an analytical reflection on love and compassion, is to cultivate this emotion until it bubbles up inside, ex motus, and it transports you out of the cave. A lot of people, they ask me, is superhuman doing all these magical feats? And I keep telling no. Superhuman is understanding the steps that every person can take. And only when you go through all the steps, it's like a chemical formula and you have the result at the end. If you put all the elements in the right order, in the right sequence, then they combine and there is a reaction and that is the bodhicitta. It's the result of practicing these emotions and that result is the definition of superhuman. By the way, sister of ours, and we saw this earlier, we just didn't mention it, but the house has been secured, and so has the Senate, and I, I believe. Uh, but, uh, yes, the Senate at this, this was up oh, a couple of hours ago, but yes, Democratic control, and it's the Nevada uh, incumbent. Her name is Catherine Cortez Masto. And she got 48.7%. And Adam Laxalt, uh, the Republican, he got 48.2%. So there's going to be something to deal with here because that's a mere 0.5%. Difference, but she is the incumbent, so we shall see. That's pretty amazing that that that's happened. And again, Senator, I mean, uh, yeah, 
uh, the Senate in Georgia, Senator Raphael Warnock, wasn't he the one that, when John Lewis passed over, right? Senator Warnock took that seat, right? Oh, and, uh, and, uh, he has four, 49.4% and this Herschel Walker that's walking around like a zombie. Uh, Rama heard some things like he's on cocaine. Oh dear. Mm-hmm. Oh dear. Anyway, he got 48.5%. Time for people to pay attention and go deeper, but the energies are actually, um, triggering that. So we stay in the spirit and as drama was playing that song from the uh the story of uh the 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 tree spirits oh lord of the rings from lord of the rings the ants the ants the last march of the ants as they went up to save the save their little Corner of Paradise. <laughs> that was all filmed for six years. They all hung out together New in New Zealand. They they lived <coughs> together for six years. Oh, so much. All right. Well, we must go on. This one's called Portals and Disappearances in Alaska. This is real. This has been going on. A lot of people have disappeared in Alaska, just like in the Bermuda Triangle, and. They have not found the people, and I don't, I don't know where to go with the story. <laughs> <laughs> it's a real true story. Yeah. There's a lot of um, interdimensional, multidimensional worlds in mm. the, uh, you might say, the outback of Alaska. Yeah. I just had this one story real quick that my friend uh, Georgia told me a long time ago. It just came back to mind, but uh, she knew this person, and this person took a helicopter to the outback, remote, like nobody else human around. And um, he got dropped off, and he spent two years there with the Bear Kingdom. And uh, he actually got very late at night, and he fell into this, like, um, he fell into, like, a... A bear's den. A bear's den, that's right. And the night moon, you know, was there, but he was so exhausted, he just fell asleep and went to sleep in the bear's den. And the bear came by, and he could see there was somebody in his his yeah. little place where he would be sleeping. So he, the bear, politely just sat down on the edge of the uh, of the uh, of the earth, where you know this uh, this gentleman had rolled down into the little sleeping place, and he waited patiently until. I guess till morning time, and then uh, he uh, he woke up, and and he, the bear was just patiently sitting there, 
and then uh, the the man woke up and he climbed out of his den and and the bear was very polite and then the bear got in there and went to sleep. <laughs> this is what I see this remembering all this stuff that there's a change a common people get ready. Right? Come on board. Alright, so again, portals and disappearances in Alaska. Over 16,000 people have gone missing in Alaska since 1988. Why? According to author Mike Ricksecker, these bizarre disappearances could be due to portals or vortices. Ricksecker's research demonstrates how telluric currents from the earth may create shifts in both space and time, distorting the fabric of reality. The Alaskan Triangle, much more like counterpart in Bermuda, remains an enigmatic location, host to strange phenomena including missing airplanes, ghost ships, ET encounters, and connections to lost civilizations. And George Nury is the host, and Mark Ricksecker is the guest. So here we go. This is uh, 39 minutes. about the Alaska Triangle. What is it? Where is it? This is about 180,000 square miles of really strange and abnormal activity. Some people call it Alaska's Bermuda Triangle. There are these different areas around the world that have missing airplanes, ships, people go missing, UFOs, paranormal activity. I believe it's the electromagnetism of that, that triangle. Yes, absolutely. 16,000 people have gone missing in Alaska. 16,000? Wow. <laughs> Welcome to Beyond Belief. Mike Ricksecker is back with us, a paranormal researcher, historian, and author. His 12th book is about Alaska's mysterious triangle. Mike, welcome to the program. George, thanks so much for having me today. I really appreciate it. Twelve books? That's yes. fantastic. A few, yes. Good for you. How Thank long? You. How did you get into this? Well, writing, that aspect has always been a part of my life. Ever since I was seven years old, I, I started off writing you know, little mystery stories. I really liked the Encyclopedia Brown books when I was a kid sure. and, and tried to mimic those. And I also wrote like some paranormal ghost stories, things like that as well. But the esoteric research that I'm doing these days was really inspired around 1993 time frame when the Robert Schock and John Anthony West presentation came out with Charlton Heston Absolutely. on the mysteries of the Sphinx. That was absolutely fascinating to me, and that became a whole rabbit hole that I started diving down into. Captured your attention. Absolutely. Now, tell me about the Alaska Triangle. What is it? Where is it? Yeah, the Alaska Triangle in Alaska, specifically uh, from Juneau to Anchorage up to Yukiavik, which formerly known as Barrow, they renamed sure. it to the original Inuit. And this is about 180,000 square miles of land that has really strange and abnormal activity. That's a lot of land. It really is. It's a huge area. 
you know, we relate it to like the Bermuda Triangle. Some people call it Alaska's okay. Bermuda Triangle. Uh, but there are these different areas around the world that have this strange activity, missing airplanes, ships, people go missing, UFOs, paranormal activity. And there's the Dragon Triangle out in Japan. There's Bridgewater in Massachusetts, there's like Michigan Triangle. So really all over the world, Alaska is a really anomalous one and very, very large. How did you become aware of this? Well, I spent three years in Alaska when I was a member of the U.S. Air Force, my first duty station. Thank you for serving. Thank you. appreciate that. Uh, 1992 and 1995. And I really wasn't aware of this unusual activity when I you know, first went up there. I was a young airman and uh, was just getting my feet wet. Who would expect you to? Right? right, exactly. But when I first stepped off the plane, it was just a whole other world. This was November 1st, 1992. And there's already snow on the ground, but also mixed in there was ash falling from the sky from a recent volcano eruption, uh-huh. Mount Spur across the Cook Inlet. Sure. A couple months later, there's a pretty large earthquake, 6.8 on the Richter scales. Okay, this is very volatile land. And then that April, there was a plane taking off from the Anchorage airport in which the engine just fell right off the plane into a supermarket parking lot. That doesn't happen often. No, no, not at all. It, fortunately, nobody was hurt, if you can believe that. You're kidding me. No, it fell into the backside of the parking lot. Shrapnel rained down into apartments that were nearby. People were walking into their bedrooms finding shrapnel on the floor. Nobody was hurt. It just disintegrated. Not. Yeah. What caused that? Well, I believe it's the electromagnetism of that, of that area. Triangle. Yes, absolutely. When we talk about vortex energy and these different portals that are spawned off, this is magnetic energy that's welling up from the Earth's core. And as it passes through different uh, metals and minerals, it has it creates different reaction, creates different magnetic fields. And this is a study by the uh, U.S. Department of the Interior, 1965, in which just covering about 100,000 square miles of Alaska, and this is Alaska was over 600,000 square miles, so they weren't able to get to it all. But just in this sixth of the state that they studied, they found what they called five distinct magnetic characters, and some of these they called magnetic anomalies. And people report strange compass readings, they have problems with navigation and guidance. It was a very volatile area. Anomalies everywhere. Absolutely. Has anybody tried to research this area besides someone like you? I mean, has science tried to do anything about this? Yeah, you know, aside from those magnetic uh, readings that the Department of the Interior made, and this is back in the 60s, almost 50 years ago, there really hasn't been that type of research up there. And I really wish somebody would go ahead and do so, so we can put more science behind what we are experiencing up there. One of our guests, Freddie Silva, was on Open Minds, one of our fine Gaia shows, and he spoke of what we call energetic hotspots and how they generate strange activity. Aruntala uh, is one of the original navels of the earth and it's in Tamil culture uh, in, in all of their sacred texts and they describe it as a place of the first occasion in Indian terms where uh, just before the major catastrophe happened when India did lose a huge amount of its landmass and this is validated um, the uh, god Siva addresses the people uh, in the temple and says uh, we need to take the knowledge we need to hide it in the hill of Arunachala where a uh, lingam would represent my effulgent power. Yes. And of course, there is there today a lingam yes. stone, a very phallic stone, which marks the navel of the earth yes. where the actual repository. And in the temple down below, same and thing in ceremonies below. each day. Yes. And that's where the effulgent energy of the god Siva, the creator uh, god, 
actually resides. And it's from there, if you take some very highly sensitive equipment that you will find, it's highly magnetized. Mm -hmm. There's something about the location of all of these standing stones, these navels of the earth, where the laws of physics are slightly different from the landscape around you. Yes. And we now know that those slight differences are those that interfere with your brainwave patterns. Right. Which is why you start getting to these shamanic states. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's and where you get your knowledge from. Do you, do you agree with him? Absolutely. I, I love Freddie's work on this subject, and I've had a chance to talk to him a couple of times. He's a genius. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, his his book, The Divine Blueprint, highly recommended. And, uh, you know, what he's talking about there are, you know, the telluric currents of the earth, what people commonly refer to as ley lines. And where they cross, you have the conductivity discontinuities, and that's where you have, like, these really happening spots and more things uh, like you know, portals or missing airplanes and things like that are happening more in these areas and the ancients knew to build like these the stone circles the pyramids things like this on these locations the interesting thing about alaska is that it's so far up north and so remote that you really don't find those types of temples and things like that up there unless they're buried under the ice which is totally possible but it still has a very similar type of activity in the native alaskan shamans the inuit elders will talk about this type of activity they just don't have the standing stones and things like that strange activity indeed out there absolutely do you think this is paranormal or natural well it's an interesting question because um i i believe in the school of thought that you know we use the term supernatural but it's all actually very natural it's just something we don't experience as often, which is, you know, why we use the term paranormal. There is certainly paranormal activity uh, that happens in this area, and it may be um, quite more active up there. We've got a couple of photographs I'd like you to look at. Sure. And uh, tell us what we're seeing here. Well, what is this? This is Flattop Mountain. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was in this area doing some research for another television show. And you know, we were up there with some electromagnetic field meters. We sure. had dowsing rods. You had it all. Absolutely. And we did find possibly one of these telluric currents using the dowsing rods, basically pointing from the top of Flattop Mountain all the way down into the Anchorage area. It does not look unusual. It doesn't look like any of these strange occurrences could happen on something like yeah. this. It, yes, it, it looks very innocent. People go hiking through this area all the time, yet you hear these stories of people just on a hiking trail like this suddenly going missing. Where did they go? Where did they go? Let's look at our next still here. Pretty view. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And this is the view down to Anchorage from that location at Flattop Mountain, drawing that line straight down into the city. And this is one of the points of the Alaska Triangle. Now, when you're out there, do you have special reading gauges or anything like that? And and are they going nuts? Yeah, we'll have electromagnetic field meters. We'll have tri-field meters, these sorts of things. And the old school methods like the dowsing rods or maybe a pendulum or something like that. Um, some people will go out there with uh, different magnetometers. So there's a lot of equipment that you can, of course, bring to these locations and get these significant readings. What other experiments have you performed out there? Um, I mean, those were the ones that I performed. We only had a very limited time. But uh, again, very, very significant that I was able to to take those rods, cross over this line. I'm going back and forth. You know, you're attempting to do this several occasions, and you establish this is a spot. Now can I go up and down the mountain, taking the rods? And sure enough, I'm able to draw this perfect line. Are there reports of people who go into this area and never come out? 
David Politis, for example, writes a lot of things about missing people in our park systems. You might be walking with somebody, you turn around and they're gone. Nobody knows where they are. No scream, nothing. Does that happen out here? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Alaska is one of the more famous locations for this type of activity. 16,000 people have gone missing in Alaska. 16,000? Since 1988. Poof, gone. Just gone. Just gone. You know, you, you give the percentage because Alaska is a very sparsely populated state. It has about the population of San Francisco in an entire state. Sure. So 16,000 is a very large percentage of people to go missing. And they do disappear mm-hmm. right in front of people. 2012 Mount Marathon race. Michael Lemater, he's a member of the race, a uh, mile and a half up the mountain, you know, right in public view goes missing, never comes back down off the mountain in the middle of a race. Of these 16,000, Mike, do they ever find any of them dead? Well, you know, I mean, there are some natural causes for some of these. Sure, people go out in the woods oh, absolutely. And, and they go missing in the woods. There are kidnappings, things like this. But there are several that are just never seen or heard from again, and nobody knows what happened. Do they ever come back alive? Not usually, no. Every once in a while you hear a case of somebody who, you know, they just, they're with a friend, they stepped off the path, because they heard a noise or whatever it was. And all of a sudden they find themselves deep in the woods, have no idea how they got there, can't find their way back to the path. And it might be a couple of weeks later that they're finally found. And their story is, I have no idea how I got there. But you don't have anybody who has come back and they say, oh, my God, I walked into another dimension. I couldn't get back. But I found a hole and came in. You don't you don't get that? Well, there is a story of a young boy a few years back that was uh, found by some uh, some hunters. They had some snowmobiles and they were out there on their way to a location that they were going to go hunt at. And they saw this boy just stand there amongst these bushes. There's no tracks leading up to this boy. And they take him in because he's cold and he's shivering. And the story that he tells after they bring him in is that he had been taken into the nearby mountain by these small people. And while he was there, he met this young girl who was, who had been there for 40 years, but didn't age. So time was very elusive in this area. For whatever reason, they decided to let him go. And he just emerged in this location where the hunters found him. That's unbelievable. Yeah. And planes disappeared too. There are quite a few uh, different stories about missing airplanes. The most famous would be the 1972 airplane that went missing, a uh, small Cessna plane carrying the House Majority Leader, Hale Boggs, yeah, Congressman uh, Nick Baggage. I know Nick Baggage's yeah. uh, son, yeah. Nick Baggage Jr. Junior, right. And the, he talks about that incredible story. And they never found. They like, never found a thing. No, not at all. And uh, you know, other planes have gone gone down in that area, and they keep a lookout. You know, are we ever going to find that plane? It was the biggest search and rescue uh, mission Yeah, by the United States to that point in time. They had spy planes out there looking for them. Not a thing ever found. Completely disappeared. How could you not find a plane unless something happened where it just disappeared? Yeah, and that's where I think they're disappearing into some of these these portals that are spawned up. Another famous one, 1950, a Douglas Skymaster, huge airplane uh, carrying 44 military personnel. It was in January, so it's a little chilly. And as they were crossing over Alaska into the Yukon Territory of uh, of Canada, near the Snag area, they just completely disappeared. Not a thing heard from them again. A couple of weeks later, there was a smaller plane that went down in that area. They were able to find that one just perfectly fine. But this huge Douglas Skymaster, which, again, they had uh, thousands of people out there looking for you know, some sort of wreckage that may have gone down. Nothing at all. Nothing. It's It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's, it's 
it, it is very surprising that you could not ever find one piece of evidence. And there are people, you know, trying to, you know, give reports of, well, you know, we heard this over here and uh, we, we thought we heard an explosion. And they go out and investigate, and there's nothing there. Is there ever any UFO activity out there, Wayne? Well, you know, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, with that Douglas Skymaster story, a couple of days beforehand, around the uh, Kodiak area, just south of, of Anchorage, there was a rather significant UFO sighting, which involved the uh, U.S. Navy. Uh, there were some bright lights that were seen in the sky by a Navy patrol pilot. Yeah. And then a couple of hours later, the uh, USS Tillamook, which is you know Navy vessel, there were several witnesses aboard uh, that ship that, again, saw strange lights that uh, one described it as it looked like a red glowing exhaust. Other described it as like an orange ball of fire. Uh, and this went on for several hours. And this was just days before that uh, Douglas Skymaster went missing. Amazing. Now, what about the activity of the sun? Does that have a bearing on any of this? Uh, it does. You know, I think that's something that uh, people kind of forget and don't really consider. But, uh, you know, the Earth's magnetic shield uh, around our poles is thinner. And so when the solar flares coming from the sun smack into the Earth's atmosphere, that's where we get these you know, beautiful auroras. I saw several up there when I, when I lived that's up there. Gorgeous. Oh, it's, it's very, very beautiful. Love it. But that creates higher electromagnetic field. And so, you know, we hear about the uh, mass coronal ejections mm-hmm. that, you know, hit the earth and they can knock out entire power oh, grids. Absolutely. Yeah. We've been a champion trying to get the grid protected because if an X flare hits us, we're toast. Yeah, absolutely. So Alaska is really like this interesting cocktail of energy because you, know, you have the solar flares, you have the volcanic and seismic activity, uh, then you have, of course, the magnetic activity that's coming up out of the ground, too. So you have all of these factors playing into this triangle area. We have a clip from you about the disappearance phenomena, which is happening in the Alaska Triangle. The Alaska Triangle is an area of Alaska from Juneau to Anchorage to Barrow, which is known for strange disappearances, anomalies, and supernatural activity. In any given year, 500 to 2,000 people go missing in Alaska, and a total of 16,000 since 1988. Like the Bermuda Triangle, the Alaska Triangle seems to harness the Earth's energy grid to create a vortex of mystery and a possible portal into another dimension, affecting planes, boats, people, and more. I've appeared on a handful of episodes of the Alaska Triangle, and the show covered a number of strange occurrences and disappearances, including missing airplanes and ships, UFO sightings, paranormal activity, and cryptid sightings. The missing Douglas story is particularly interesting. This was a Douglas C-54D airplane, which took off from Ellendorf Air Force Base in January 1950 and disappeared without a trace. The weather called for mostly clear skies, and there was no reason to suspect anything was wrong with its final radio contact at 1.09 p.m. However, at the very edge of the Alaska Triangle near Snag in Yukon Territory, Canada, it disappeared. No wreckage or survivors were ever found. During the search operation, cryptic radio messages were received, but it was difficult to discern the message they were trying to convey. Many believe these messages were from the crew of the missing Douglas C-54D. Yet, just as quickly as the transmission started, they stopped. If the plane had slipped into a portal into another dimension, could those messages have been transmitting back through the portal since sound travels on a different wavelength and frequency than light? Even when I lived in Alaska during the early to mid-1990s, crazy activity happened when an engine fell off an airplane taking off from the Anchorage airport. 
Fortunately, no one was hurt, but local citizens were shocked when the engine crashed into the parking lot of a local supermarket and the shrapnel fell into people's homes. And then back over here in the back, fortunately in the back of the parking lot, nobody was hurt. That's where the engine fell. Of course, the most notorious Alaska Triangle disappearance is that of the airplane carrying U.S. House Majority Leader Hale Boggs, Alaska Congressman Nick Begich, aide Russell Brown, and pilot Don Johns in 1972. In an effort that's been an area of 325,000 square miles and more than 3,600 hours of search time, nothing was ever found. This is one of the most incredible stories, Mike, I've ever heard. It's truly remarkable. Yeah, it's uh, it's absolutely fascinating. You know, sad because you know these people are never heard from again. They're, the families are traumatized, and people want answers. Of course, they they're entitled to the answers, and I believe so. so. Can you imagine the horror? Assuming for a moment that these people have fallen into a portal and can't get back, I mean, my God, what what do you think's going through their minds? Well, I mean, the, the people that go through the portals, I mean, absolutely shocking. Uh, I've looked at it from, you know, from another perspective. When they go through these portals, where, where are they arriving at? Is it another dimension? Is it another point or in time? Or are they dead? Or, or, or are they dead? Yeah, that's another, that's another question too. Do they, do they end up just dying? Um, I'd like to look at the possibility of them maybe going to another point in time. Do they, let's say that missing Douglas Skymaster went back 500 years in time. That's where the portal spit him out. Uh, Cause we've seen that with like Bruce Gurnan down in the, or into the future. Yeah. Into the future. Bruce Gurnan went into the future a couple of hours. So if the Douglas Skymaster went back, say 500 years into the past and the native Inuit up there, see this massive, airplane in the sky, well, they have no context of no, an airplane at all. So what are they related to? A giant bird, very thunderous sure. in nature. So is this where some of these Thunderbird legends are coming from? You know, these airplanes going through a portal back in time and the Inuit are seeing it and coming up with their legends. How comparable is the Alaska Triangle to the Bermuda Triangle? It's right on par, I believe, uh, you know, between the different disappearances be- with airplanes you have uh, a lot of strange things that happen with ships. Uh, of course, the uh, UFO activity within these areas as well. So it's very comparable. Is the activities out there scary at all? Well, I mean, you have quite a bit of paranormal activity up there as well. People uh, reporting you know, hauntings, ghosts, spirits, these sorts of things. Is that unusual? No, it's not unusual at all. Um, you know, I experienced some things up there in the uh, the Alaska Command Building that people would probably uh, you know, call shadow beings because that's what we were seeing. We were seeing these shadows in the uh, the communication center of the Alaska Command Building, which was in the basement of this uh, huge building. And it's a secure facility, but in the back offices area, and sometimes out on the uh, out on the, the floor, but usually in the back offices, we would see these shadows moving about. And you would feel like a very heavy energy at that point in time. So something would kind of like... You know, you get like that sensation of, you know, goosebumps on your back. Like, okay, what's going on here? And then all of a sudden you would see this shadow dart between the cubicles or into the back corner or something like that. And so kind of trying to discern or, or figure out, okay, what's going on here? Now there are legends about the, the building, you know, perhaps once being a historic hospital before it was used for command. Sure. I did some historic research on that. It was, it was never a hospital. I kept saying, trying to say, you know, we were in the morgue. Uh, but I think that's just the uh, you know, people trying to really figure out, determine what is going on here. It doesn't make sense. And we couldn't talk about it 
you know, too vocally. Otherwise, you find yourself down at mental health. Uh, so this legend uh, was formulated. But when I did my research into the building from my, you know, my book, Alaska's Mysterious Triangle, I discovered, no, this was only ever used for commands. So, so what's happening here? Why are we seeing these shadows? And so I believe you know, time is all concurrent, past, present, future. Sure. Now, there are moments that the energy of an area can somehow sync up two of those moments of time to be on the same frequency, and we're able to, for a moment, see those things happening. So right now uh, could be syncing up with a moment from the past, and therefore we see what we might think is a ghost, but that ghost could be looking at us as if we're the ghost we or maybe a shadow person. We've got a couple of stills I want you to look sure. at and react for us, Mike. Let's look at our first one, which is a building. Mm-hmm. What is this? Yeah, this is the Alaska Command building where uh, I spent yeah, spent two of my three years in Alaska there. And it was in the basement of this building where we were seeing that, that shadow activity. Okay. Yeah, you know, we kind of talk about it in whispers. Hey, did you see that? And I believe that there are actually time slips that we may have been seeing personnel from the past or even from the future. It could have been ourselves down there. Just hanging around there. Huh? Mm-hmm. Next still, let's see what we have here. Yeah, this is a young version of me. <laughs> How old um, were you? Gosh, I was 19. Just a kid. Air yeah. Force? Air Force, yes. I was just Good a kid. For you. And uh, so this is on the floor of the uh, communications center. And you can barely see it on the other side, but there's a doorway back there, which uh, many times we'd see those shadows darting into that room back there. These shadow entities, what's your gut tell you? What are they? Yeah, you know, there are a lot of different theories as to, you know, what these things are, who they could be. You know, some people will try to say they're the you know, dark as the dark and the, you know, very evil. Some of them are. Some of them are, you know, up to no good. Others are, are benevolent. Most are just standing, watching, and observing. So we have some that are human spirits that just can't fully manifest as an apparition or some sort of ghost. I think a true uh, shadow person is some sort of interdimensional being that's from uh, crossing over from some other plane of existence. Some are extraterrestrials. Some may even be astral projections and things like this. So they are a variety of different things. In your docu-series called The Shadow Dimension, you talk about these inter- interdimensional beings. Spirit communication in encounters with, with aliens, there's these abrupt and sudden appearances. There's oftentimes accompanied by flashes of light um, and also a rapid disappearance. And this would tend to indicate coming from one location in a different dimension, doing a quantum leap, if you will, that would account for the flash of light, the electromagnetic energy, and then the rapid disappearance. So we very well may be dealing with several different entities, several different species using a similar energetic modality in order for them to communicate or to visit what we call Earth. I believe a true shadow person is an interdimensional being, and that's what this research is coming down to. How can we interact with other dimensions and beings from other dimensions. We're going to be going to locations that are known for portal activity that have that 
welling of the Earth's magnetic core to create that vortex energy that creates these portals and other supernatural activity in highly concentrated areas like this. This is why the ancients would create these sites of power like Stonehenge and Karnak, the pyramids, because they knew that this was a highly energetic spot to be able to tap into the Earth's magnetic field. I tend to think that these were interdimensional beings. I've heard people talk about ghosts and spirits, apparitions, and what their encounters are like. And I've even seen sort of a ghostly figure before when I stayed in castles in Europe. I've, I've you know, seen things out of the corner of my eyes. These beings, I would describe the encounter as much different. There, there's something about them that it was like, what is this? Who are they? I, I tend to think they're from another dimensional space. They might all be right. The remarkable researcher Heidi Hollis coined the phrase shadow people many, many years ago. And these beings, whatever they may be, could be everywhere. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, there is another dimension. There's another world around Something us that we cannot see with our own eyes. because it's, it's in a different light spectrum, but it's all around us. And there are those moments, again, in which the, the situation is just right and... Those two moments are vibrating at the same frequency. I mean, we're, we're all vibrating. We're all energy resonance. And those moments are just right in the frequency that's being produced, and we get a glimpse of it. I believe many of these interdimensional beings have figured out how to harness that energy, how to get themselves on the same wavelength, the right frequency, to be able to enter into our dimension and watch and observe humanity. What could be another reason, Mike? that these disappearances occur, the planes, the people, could they be keeping them for some reason, these entities? Well, and that happens, you know, with a lot of people. Um, we hear stories of, you know, extraterrestrial abductions. They could be interdimensional beings that are abducting people, you know, for scientific research uh, in their own realm. You know, they probably curious about humanity. I mean, we would do such a thing if, if we went to another planet, you know, we're going to study the life that's on that planet. So that may be what's happening to us. Now, you talked earlier about other areas on this planet that could be similar to the Alaska Triangle, the Bermuda Triangle. How many are there? There are. That we know of. Yeah, there, there are a lot. Um, in, in some of the uh, films that I've put together, I, I cover a good half a dozen, uh, several of them here in the United States, Nevada, uh, Lake Michigan, uh, the Bridgewater All Triangle. similar? Things, Similar things activity, happen. yeah. Um, you, know, you had the famous Northwest flight that went missing over Lake Michigan, but also people disappearing right off of, of boats, uh, ships going down without any rhyme or reason. Uh, so you have a lot of strange activity there at, at Lake Michigan as well, but similar to what you find in Bermuda and Alaska. Do you have any strange anomalies of creatures and animals out there, like two-headed two rabbits or anything <laughs> like that? Well, there are a number of you know, what people call cryptid sightings. So, you know, Bigfoot sightings, things like this. There's uh, Alaska has the famous uh, Kushtika, which is half man, right. half otter, and those type of stories are uh, seem very related to like something uh, like the Wendigo around the Great Lakes area, in which uh, people are lured out into the um, into the woods for you know, with cries of help and this sort of thing, and they're either attacked by the Kushtika or they are turned into a Kushtika themselves. We talked earlier about the possibility of UFO activity. Mm -hmm. Is that still pretty prevalent? 
Oh, yeah, there are, there are certainly uh, many UFO sightings out there today. Also, USOs, the uh, sub- submerged objects, yeah. Um, we don't really think about this with, with Alaska, but there are over 3 million lakes up there uh, that are over 20 acres large. So a lot of places for these sorts of things to be able to hide. Tell me about Mount Hayes. Mount Hayes. So this is uh, it's one of the largest peaks in Alaska, very, very remote, right really in the middle of the Alaska Triangle. And this became uh, rather famous and noted for possible extraterrestrial activity up there uh, through remote viewing. The, the famous remote viewer, Pat Price, back in the early 1970s, he had one day on, uh, on Hal Putoff's desk put down a folder and said, I think you're going to find this interesting. On his own, he had done some remote viewing of different areas around the world, one of them being Mount Hayes. And, you know, some of his findings at first seemed to be rather innocuous. Okay, there's human activity going on. Some of the equipment that he describes first, computers, oscilloscopes, mm-hmm. some equipment for weather detection, that seemed fine. But when he looked inside the mountain, he discovered an open area where humans likely military, were working with these superhuman-type people that may have been extraterrestrials. Are there hidden ET bases there? Uh, A lot of people believe so. This is certainly one of them. What might they look like, if you had to speculate? Some of them, at least from Pat Price's description, uh, many of these seem to be larger in nature. Like Like I said, he described them as more superhuman in nature. So they had... You know, some, some added strength, larger, uh, in stature, you know, a little bit different than what we think of what, you know, some of the gray aliens. You know, we've talked about ancient aliens before on this program a lot. Is there a connection between ancient civilizations and this triangle? I believe so. We hear stories about like the Black Pyramid up there. Now, this is another location that we have anecdotal stories for. It was actually just before I was stationed up there in 1992. There was a news story that ran. Uh, China was doing some nuclear testing. We knew the seismic waves were going to hit the area from that. And so geologists you know, had primed their instruments to be able to detect this. From their readings, they discovered that there was this pyramidal structure under under the mountains there near Mount Denali. And what's very, very strange about this, there was a... Uh, uh, young individual in the army at the time stationed at uh, Fort Richardson, uh, Doug Munchler, who went down to the station because he was trying to get you know, family to to tune into an, another broadcast of this story, and nobody could seem to to find this uh, second broadcast. So we went down to the station, and they denied uh, any any knowledge of this report that he had actually seen on television. They knew about it. They knew about it. As he was walking out of the building, very disappointed, there was a young aide that pulled him aside and said, you know, a few hours ago, just before you showed up, there were some men that came and confiscated the tapes. Wow. Yeah. So it's something... We hear this all the time. Yeah. Yeah, like the men in black type stories. Right. On Gaia's Open Lines, Linda Moulton Howe, great reporter, talks about the discovery of the Alaskan Pyramid. Yes. Now, what did the father tell the son that I've interviewed that he learned from that pilot about what in the world was there under that kind of security? It is a pyramid made out of stone, thousands of years old. The maker is unknown and that we know, meaning our government, the U.S. government has learned 
that it can give off enough energy to power the nation of Canada. Mm-hmm. Now, the father tells his wife and the son about this and says, I promised the pilot I would never, ever talk to anybody, so don't talk. That was in 1978. So now we have 59 to 61, a Western Electric Bell with a military background, electrical engineer who is working at the base of a, a pyramid and tells his son all about it. Then you jump from 5961 to 1978, Unicolite out to where? Mm-hmm. Very near Mount McKinley and this drama and this being thousands of years old. No one knows who made it, but the government knows that it will give off enough energy to power Canada. Mm-hmm. Jump to 1994, November. 40 men working in the United States Army, counterintelligence. The warrant officer, Doug Mutchler, watches. It was in-house. It was in Fort Richardson. That's what we are still trying to figure out. Was this something that was not broadcast to the greater Anchorage population? Was this a test for some reason inside of Fort Richardson? And it tells about this huge pyramid underground and how scientists found it with the Chinese one megaton test, which is how I came to learn about it. There is so much going on on this planet, Mike. I mean, my gosh, even that example alone. Where is this happening? It's happening all over. You know, these these are things that that are with us. And it's just a matter of paying attention and in observing People you know, tend to go about their daily lives. We have a lot of things going on. We're very, very busy people. If we stop and listen and watch and observe, we'll find a lot of these things happening around us everywhere. In the South Pole, there's a supposed pyramid down there. Let's look at this. Yeah, That's it's weird. Isn't it, it? it is. It, it looks like an aerial photo of the Great Pyramid of Giza with snow all around it. But this is in the Ellsworth Range. Now, the mainstream will tell you that this is just a geological feature. It's just a mountain. But that sure looks like a pyramid to me. Unfortunately, there's not really a way to get out to it. It's very, very remote, and this is just a satellite photo. Uh, but you know, we're seeing here connections all over the world. Here's, here's a pyramidal structure in Antarctica, which we know is very ancient. It's not always been where it was. You know, when they drilled down to the ice, they found jungle there. Could that be a natural formation? I, there is a possibility that it could be. You know, we can't rule that out, but, you know, I think we would want some verification of that. You know, can we send a team out there to go verify whether that is a natural It looks pretty desolate, doesn't it, Mike? Oh, absolutely. How do you even get to it? <laughs> right now you don't. How high up is that? I mean, it's several thousand feet. I, That's off huge. the top of my head, I do not recall, uh, but, but it's huge. Everything in Antarctica seems to be The St. Louis Arch, you've seen pictures of that. Yeah, I've been here. It's 600 feet Mm -hmm. tall. So this thing is at least two or three times taller than the arch. At least, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, and you think about this with Antarctica. There are miles of ice there. So how much farther down does that go? I mean, truly, you could see it looks like a perfect uh, pyramid. Yes. Look at it. Yeah, it's it's a perfect pyramid. How How is something like that natural? So is this connected to the pyramids of Giza? Is it connected to the Black Pyramid in Alaska? This is where I think that we have forgotten history, that over the course of millennia, you know, ancient cultures, 
whether it was, uh, you know, some maybe wars broke out and they were annihilated and they forgot their knowledge. We, of course, know the stories of Atlantis. Is this tied into those ancient cultures like that? It's possible. Were you ever scared being out in that region? In Alaska? Yes. Uh, there were some, probably the scariest moment that I had was the drive out. I actually drove out of Alaska uh, November 1995. Now, why was the drive scary? Um, there were points in time where the road, the Alaska Canadian Highway at that time, there's some areas that were not paved and you're on a dirt road out in the middle of nowhere, all the snow around. And you're wondering, am I still on the road? It is very, very remote and desolate in some of those areas. And I think that's what becomes very scary is when you're all alone and you know that for anything hundreds of miles, there's nothing. Anything could happen. How do people get a hold of you, Mike? Uh, you can find me my my website, MikeRickSecker.com. Spell that out for us. Yeah, M-I-K-E-R-I-C-K-S-E-C-K-E-R.com. Mike, thanks for being on the program. Thank you so much, George. I really appreciate it. This anomaly in Alaska could be all over the planet, but in Alaska, it's very unusual. Thanks for watching Beyond Belief. Goodness. Yeah. 16,000. Yeah. Uh, I know there's a multi interdimensional portals. Mm, you can walk, that can happen. And that's yeah. happened to, like I said, like you said, since 1988, 16,000. Um, here we go. This is. Mm. Um, hybridization. No, let's wait for that one. Oh, okay. uh, do you want to do this hybridization program? Lake Titicaca. Want to do Lake? Uh, Insider Secrets of the Knights Templar. Oh, okay. How about that one? Okay, now this one is um. Uh, Into the Vortex with Jimmy Church. Mm. You know who this person is? No. No? Well, I know who Jimmy Church is. That's what I was asking. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll all know in a minute here. Yeah. Could there be more than one Ark of the Covenant? Yes, we learned something about nine Arks of the Covenant, but we'll see what this one says. Yeah. Um, uh, all, all of them in and around the African continent or the Mesopotamian area. Yeah, I think. Current grand, grand master of the Knights Templar, Timothy Hogan, joins host Jimmy Church in this special series opener to explore the mysteries of mana, a physical substance related to ancient alchemical technologies, revealing how the Knights Templar are in a possession of mana and multiple arcs. Hogan fills in the gaps of esoteric history from Egypt to the Bible and today. Okay, here we go. Jimmy Church is the host. Jimmy Timothy Hogan is the guest. This is 39 minutes. Mm. 
radio and television host, Jimmy Church, and I'm here to uncover the truth about some of life's biggest mysteries. If this is revealed, everything has to be rewritten. My guest today is Timothy Hogan, Grandmaster of the Knights Templar and an expert on the esoteric history of humankind. He was probably broadcasting this energy all around the planet. Technical assistant Josh. Josh, can you pull up the map? Yeah. Also joins us to help set the scenes. Join us as we deep dive to get to the bottom of some of the most intriguing questions of our time. Have you seen the Ark of the Covenant? Welcome to Into the Vortex. I'm your host, Jimmy Church. And today, we're going to jump into one of the most controversial subjects for this community, which is the Knights Templar. And our guest today is Timothy Hogan, Grandmaster of the Knights Templar. And being able to go directly to the source for this information is not only important for the community, but it's very important to me. And I'm pretty excited about this. Josh, you ready to get this going? Oh, I'm excited. I'm fascinated with the Knights Templar, and I'm excited to continue my education. You're the right man for the job. Great. <laughs> well, welcome, Timothy. And we need to really just jump straight into this. And the most important question to, to start this off is, what are, what, what is the true origins of the Knights Templar? You know, most most historians will say the Knights Templar were founded in 1118. Actually, the order was started as early as 1096. And uh, it took a while before they got involved in Jerusalem. Uh, and, you know, they were doing stuff prior to the Roman Catholic patronage, which, you know, existed for a while um, until it was removed in 1307. Well, we have the historical side that we're all taught and the dogma that has been established uh, since then that they were there to escort the Crusades and to defend the Crusades and and have a military presence uh, there in Jerusalem. But then we have the other story, which is they were digging, they were searching, they were looking for artifacts and text and, and some things may have been spirited out of Jerusalem. How can we address that from a historical perspective? Were they were they searching for things? They were definitely searching th- for things. And uh, not only that, but they there was a belief, uh, a, a definite belief that there was a primordial tradition that that had existed uh, prior to a deluge, uh, you know, which we would refer to as Atlantis. And that when it collapsed, there were pockets that had spread out to different parts in the world. So they were trying to seek out these different pockets to uh, obtain what these pockets were preserving. Uh, and then also to, to dig in areas that they absolutely knew there were, there were things to be found. Let me stop you right there, if I may. Yeah. You use the A word. Mm-hmm. You just said Atlantis, yes. and most haven't connected uh, the Templars with Atlantis. And when you say something like that, what are you actually trying to say? I mean, they started out looking at, uh, you know, the Torah and the Old Testament, and the uh, the stories of Noah. I mean, here's this story of there was this cataclysm that occurred where there was this massive flood, 
And uh, they had connections with groups in the Middle East, particularly uh, groups like the Druze and the Sabaeans and others, who were preserving and translating texts uh, that alluded to these earlier civilizations, and, and uh, including Greek and Roman texts. So they, they had exposure to the works of Plato and, and others, which talked about this pre-civilization. So they wanted to find out, okay, where's the technology from this pre-civilization? Where's the philosophy from this pre-civilization? You know, what was their religious beliefs? What was... Uh, what has been preserved from it so that they could bring it back into Europe and get Europe out of the Dark Ages. Did they understand what they were discovering and, and how did they translate that knowledge into something that not only that could be applied to their mission and what they were doing, but how do you understand a high technology culture, you know, from Atlantis to their period? There were allusions to technology within the Bible itself, and that's what they were primarily looking at at the time. There weren't a whole lot of books around, you know, and so they, you know, there were allusions, particularly uh, within the Torah, talking about the Ark of the Covenant, which was this device that could do all these crazy things, and if people touched it, they would be electrocuted to death, basically. And they were working with people like Rashi of Troyes, uh, in France, who uh, was a good friend of uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who wrote the rule for the Templars. Uh, and they were passing on a knowledge and a history of, hey, here, you know, there are these artifacts and they are buried in certain areas. And this is where you can find them. Um, so go down and get them. What did they find? So... In their archaeological digging, they found a number of things. Uh, they did find uh, a series of boxes or arcs, which had also been incorporated on the Egyptian temple walls. They discovered substances of, uh, you know, strange, mysterious substances, is, is how they described it, that uh, which we would call mana. Mana from heaven? Like mana from heaven, yeah. Right. Uh, but it was a substance that they learned that they could m manufacture alchemically. Uh, they also just, so they, they discovered these lost arts and sciences. They also discovered tombs of a number of holy people that uh, they discovered their bones and uh, they collected them and, and brought them back. And, and some of this was a real problem because it was, Contrary to the narrative that the church was perpetuating at the time, but it was completely in line with their own beliefs. They tended to be more of a Gnostic persuasion, you know, which was uh, they believed that anybody through their own uh, efforts could attain a direct knowledge of the divine. They didn't need a priest to do it. So uh, let me let me jump in right there, Josh. Um uh, pull up the cartouche because people ask about evidence. You know, okay, yep. these are extraordinary claims, but, sure. but how can you back this up? Yep. And I want you to look at this. This is from Egypt and this, I call this a cartouche, but this appears to be a, a cartouche with an arc represented there. Is this what I'm looking at? Yeah, that's right. It's an arc box. 
and it's levitating off the ground. It should be pointed out. And in that cartouche thing that you're talking about is actually a field. It's like an electric field that's around it that's attached to a, uh, you know, it's like a rope that the that the uh, pharaoh on the left is holding to, to control it. This is an example of one of these boxes, and you can find them. All over the place. This was this particular one was at Edfu, where there's the Edfu building texts that also talk about probably the most historic, important text on on planet Earth, right there in Edfu. For sure. Um, here, the reason why I bring up the cartouche symbology is the Egyptians, when they represented something inside of this shape, the cartouche shape, it, it suggests nobility. Uh, it's, it's, it's related to the Pharaoh. It's extremely important. Yeah. And so to have something like an ark, uh, represented here, it's, uh, it, it's huge to them. Yeah. It is my understanding. It's my belief and certainly the belief of others that, that what they were talking, they, they discovered these boxes were basically like capacitors. They could build up large amounts of electricity, uh, that would, discharge and if you didn't handle them properly they would you know they could shock you to death do you think this is the ark the ark of the covenant well according to our templar tradition there were actually multiple arcs okay josh yes this next image that that josh has i think is extraordinary because this i think represents exactly what you're talking about yeah because here it, it looks like we've got four yeah, this is at Dendera. Uh, yeah, there's four four arcs there, and you can see they're issuing forth the electricity uh, out of the the tops of them. There were multiple arcs, I think, that were being used around Egypt. Uh, certainly, one of them uh, ended up becoming the ark within the Hebrew tradition. Uh, some have even speculated that maybe the reason why the Pharaoh was even chasing Moses was because he had stolen one of these arcs out of Egypt. And and that's what he was really trying to get. So um, it, it's a, you know, but we find them on the temple walls all over the place. And usually associated with this arc, you also find these depictions of these, these conical white cakes or these mounds of what would be mana, described as mana in the Bible. I, I'm going to swing back to that. Yeah. Is it is it possible that these these arcs or one of them made it out of Egypt and Jerusalem and back into Europe by the Knights Templar? Yeah, according to our records, uh, we actually recovered six arcs that we brought back into Europe uh, via through Portugal, well, through Lebanon. Uh, there's a site called uh, the Tomb of Hiram, which you can find in Lebanon, and it's actually not a tomb at all. It was just a vault where these things were held. It was there for a while before it would move to Portugal, and then from there up to uh, Scotland, and then from Scotland, they were brought over here to the New World. To, to the United States. So yeah. there's a what possibility. to become the United States, yeah. Josh. If we found an Ark of the Covenant here in the United States, what would you say? 
my mind would be blown and I wouldn't be able to stop talking about it for a long time. The fact that it's four arcs is the first time I've ever heard that. And the fact that it could be around the world is super compelling and fascinating to me. Well, this would truly rewrite history. Yeah, for sure. Let's, uh, I want your reaction to this too as well. Um, here you brought up mana. Mm-hmm. So here is a mana jar. Yeah. And now when we, when we see something like this, again, I always go back to the evidence and the science that supports some of these discussions. Yeah. And what is going on here? Well, we have here at the bottom of this jar is this white, uh, powder. That's, that's mana. It's, it's the traditional mana. And you can see it's, it's, it kind of, when it forms, it, it, it forms as like this conical shape, this mound at the bottom of the jar. And this substance, uh, beyond being something that's healing, it, it's also superconductive. So you can imagine if you consider the, the stories of the ark, the ark was actually created to hold the mana. And then Solomon's temple was created to hold the ark. So the entire purpose for Solomon's temple was to hold this mana. You know, the, the, the mana went in the ark, the ark went in the temple. And this mana being a superconductive substance, when it was put inside the ark, and the ark was basically like a capacitor. An energy source. An energy source. It just issued a tremendous amount of electricity. And this is the reason why nobody could touch it without dying. And this is a manufacturing process. And this is how this yes, works. Yes, and this is it. Yeah. Okay, so again, it's back to the evidence in, into deep history. Yeah. And when we mention uh, the manufacturing of this, uh, of the mana in the jar, there's, uh, there's a cone shape at the bottom. But I think it's represented, uh, Josh, if you could. Yes. I'll pull up this image here. Is that what we're seeing here, Tim? Yes, that's exactly what you're seeing. So as you see, uh, the figure who represents Osiris is holding this cone-shaped bread, and he's handing it to uh, the guy that has the heaven plumes of almond on his head, and he's offering it to him. And the reason why it's that cone-shaped is because that's how it forms when you when you go to make it. And there's a lot of excitement in that image uh, too, as well. <laughs> He's very excited. <laughs> what, what is what is inside of the ark? We 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 you mentioned that possibly the mana manufacturing yeah. process is happening there, but it's like the biggest mystery in history. What what is inside of the well, ark? Well, traditionally they said that the you know the the tablets the the what we would now know as the tablets of the commandments were put inside the ark, as well as a pot of mana is, is how it's described. It should be pointed out that Moses had both the Ten Commandments and then he also had these tablets of testimony. And according to alchemical traditions, this tablet of testimony was actually this emerald tablet. Uh, and But these things were put inside of the ark. Um, from a power standpoint, that mana is really a superconductive substance. So when you put a superconductive substance inside a capacitor like the arc, it just causes it to produce an immense amount of electricity that it just broadcasts out. I've got a couple of other images here that, mm-hmm. to me, represent a vessel. Mm-hmm. I see a vessel here, and we just looked at a mana jar, and I see the connection. 
Is is that what's happening? Yeah. So what we have here. So this is uh, this is at Amiens Cathedral. So one of the things that the Templars did when they came back to Europe is they were responsible for building the first cathedrals of France. And inside these cathedrals, they put all kinds of imagery. Most people think of just biblical scenes, but they also depicted alchemical processes uh, for manufacturing this mana. And this is one example of that. You see the figure holding, it's called an Athenor oven. It's an alchemical oven, and they're pulling a salamander out of the bottom of it. And what they're really depicting is in the, the language, the alchemical language, a salamander, they didn't actually believe that lizards lived in ovens. But they knew that like you could break down the word salamander into the word sal and mandra, which meant sal meant salt and mandra meant stable. So what they were saying is you could extract the stable salts out of the oven after you've calcinated down all the other materials. And but, uh, so this is what in, they're trying to depict. In this next image, uh, where apparently we're seeing the exact same thing. Yep. And if somebody's walking past this cathedral yeah. and they see this, they would, would, they would not make these connections, but it the would. symbolism is right there. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. This, and this, this is another one. This is at, at, uh, Amboise. Uh, but it's, yeah, they're depicting the exact same thing. And, and this, these secret salts, these stable salts that they are extracting out is the mana. This is the mana that, that, you know, they have to calcinate down the, the vegetable matter. In fact, for that matter, this is the whole reason why Moses witnessed God as a burning bush. Cause you have to calcinate down the material, uh, and then you can extract the mana out of it. And this is what's being depicted. So if I'm understanding correctly, so let's back up. We have this representation now in Europe mm -hmm. that was brought to Europe, the alchemical traditions yep. from Jerusalem by the Knights Templar. Correct. Who discovered this in Jerusalem. And this is evidence of these uh, alchemical and high-tech traditions that go back to Atlantis. Correct, yeah. And that they were also being preserved in Egypt after the collapse of Atlantis. You know, the, the story is that Egypt was one of the centers of preservation. Well, okay, so you brought up Edfu. Yeah. So in the Edfu text, and, and that history certainly points back to the origins coming from Atlantis. Yeah. The same catastrophe is yeah. represented there in Edfu, yes. and that is a direct Atlantean connection, which again goes back to Jerusalem, to the Knights Templar, back to Europe, and possibly to the United States. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly how it goes. <laughs> so, is there stuff here in the United States? There is. Uh, there are there are vaults here in the United States that had been brought over as early as the 1200s, is when. Uh, the Templars, they, they would leave their port in La Rochelle in France and in Portugal and they would bring this stuff, you know, over here to the New Land. They, they had the entire North America mapped by the, uh, 1350s and, uh, but they had been coming over here since the 1200s. And why North America? Uh, to keep things safe, I would think. Yeah, they were trying to create a new Jerusalem 
they recognized that Europe was completely controlled and dominated by uh, between the Roman Church and the monarchies. Uh, they were controlling everything, and people had no freedoms, no freedom of thought, no freedom of religion, no freedom of assembly. All the things that we take for granted now as Americans, they didn't have those things. So they came to the New World, they established connections with the natives here, and they uh, brought these artifacts over, and then they set up a new system so that these things could be preserved. Will this eventually be revealed? Yes. And the reason why I ask that is history, the way that it exists today, um, nobody wants to change that. And the reveal of the Knights Templar, understanding, occupying, mapping, and and spiriting artifacts and important relics into the United States and stashing them yeah. in these vaults. If this is revealed, everything has to be rewritten. That's true. Yeah, but it's the it's the history. I mean, uh you know, there were things and, and especially uh, I know you've you've talked with Scott Walter before, you know, but his work with the Kensington runestone, that that Runestone was a land claim for North America that was created and it was placed right in the center of North America because they had already mapped the entire continent. And the connection with the natives that were here, uh, there are still certain tribes that continue to preserve and protect these vaults, uh, here in the United States. Now, you're the grandmaster of the Knights Templar. Yes. Uh, that's a pretty important position, mm-hmm. right? The traditions today inside of the Knights Templar, are they the same traditions uh, from the 1300s? They are. We don't pay any allegiance to the Roman Church anymore. We started out independent of the Roman Church. We had a, had a, a brief period of time of patronage with the Roman Church. Uh, and then the Roman Church, with along with the King of France, suppressed the Templar Order in 1307. Uh, and that didn't go too well. For for seven years, there was a lot of torture and, and burning at the stakes. Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th, that was the origin of that. At the core of, of, of what we are, we've always been dedicated to preserving this tradition. And... Uh, you know, we've had to adapt to the, the cultures and the habits of, of the different countries that we've lived and their, and their religious philosophies of the different countries that we uh, have done work in. But ultimately, yeah, it's the same work. And, and ultimately, we're also committed to this idea that everybody has a spark of the divine in them. Everybody. And through their own efforts, they can attain a direct knowledge of the divine, and they don't need a priest to do it. These vaults that you referred to earlier, mm-hmm. do you know where they are? Yes. Would you tell me now? I can't tell you right now. <laughs> the importance of that, because when somebody hears that, they go, okay, well, this would change things. Why not, why not speak about this now? And let's, let's take a film crew in and, and see what's going on. I think we're building up to that. We had to make people aware of, of some of the origins of some of this stuff first. And one of the biggest challenges we're going to face once we do reveal it is, you know, 
you're going to have a number of different countries that are going to try to claim these things for themselves. And we got to get to the point where we're past all that. I mean, these, these relics, these, these treasures are a gift to all humanity. They belong to all of humanity. They don't belong to any one particular power structure. Even though we're protecting them, we didn't feel like they belonged to us. We're just kind of preserving them for the future. So You could tell Josh. He won't tell me. <laughs> he can keep the secrets. But here's the thing. Are, are these relics that would not only change history, but change the way that the Bible has been represented to us and 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 Jesus and God and Mary and Joseph, is this something that could potentially just tip things over? Completely, yeah. I think it'll a lot of things will have to be rewritten or or understood in new light. It's not that what the Bible says is wrong per se. Uh, it's just that how it's being interpreted now is different than how it actually is, and so it's going to force people to have to look at these things. A little bit differently, and and that's a real threat to certain church power structures at the time. You know, so, currently, let, let's back up if we can. Did the Knights Templar at that time understand? You know, in 1300 in Jerusalem, when you're discovering these things, you know possibly that they are important. You may not know what they represent. Certainly, when it comes to the alchemical traditions, yeah. But do you think that they understood enough? that it had to be kept secret and that later another generation would understand the importance of this. I think so. Uh, I mean, as evidence of the fact that, uh, you know, when the order was suppressed, it was pretty brutal. And uh, it's, it's there was a reason for that. And it was because the, you know, the church and the monarchy at the time, they both had a vested interest in keeping things the way they were. And all of this threatened that and it still does uh, to a certain degree i mean we're talking about technologies first of all that are pre-cataclysm technologies that have been preserved well that that you know you have to have people accepting that okay there may have been a, a previous advanced civilization to begin with uh, so that's the first thing the second thing you're talking about is personal salvation through your own efforts that has nothing to do with the power structure getting you into heaven. So that's a change right. of thoughts for people. You know, another thing, too, that was right along with this is uh, Templars have always sought to preserve the rights of individuals to have the freedom to explore these things. In fact, um, one of the earliest medieval texts was a book called uh, Parsifal by Wolfram von Eschenbach, which is a, the, the, one of the first grail stories, and it was written in the 1200s. In it, it says the Templars are in charge of guarding the grail. And it also says, when the grail appears in the text, it says, if any Templar should become a ruler of a foreign people, let him ensure that they are given their God-given rights. Well, this is the first time in history it's ever suggested that people have God-given rights and that, that you know, because prior to this, people thought your rights came from the church or from the king. And this is saying, no, your church comes from a divinity that transcends all that. And, uh, you know, this is something we still stand for. And, you know, if you're a power structure trying to control people, that's a problem. 
Can, can before, before you move on quickly, I just have to, I need an example of a pre-cataclysmic technology. That was a fascinating line. Yeah, so, well, well, these arcs were pre-cataclysmic technologies. I mean, ultimately, I think their purpose is to broadcast electricity, much like the works of uh, Nikola Tesla when he was, when he created his Wardenclyffe Tower, where to, to, to broadcast electricity around the planet. This is what these arcs do. They broadcast electromagnetic lines of force around the planet to these sacred areas. And, you know, that's a problem, too, if you're trying to put a meter on having people pay for electricity. So when we talk about the arc and what may be inside of it, it's the dimensions of the arc, too, that I'm very curious about. And there, I think there are some pretty successful research into it may fit exactly into the box, some call it a sarcophagus, uh, the box inside of the king's chamber, yes. inside of the Great Pyramid. Coincidence? I think that is absolutely 100% right on. I mean, the, the, the Great Pyramid itself is, is generates static electricity. If you were to stand on top of the, the Great Pyramid with a bottle, with a, a glass bottle with a wet rag on it and hold it up, sparks would start shooting off of the, the bottle from the uh just from the natural you know conductivity of how the electricity builds up from the desert so if you then stuck an arc in the center of it in that king's chamber uh with a superconductive substance in it it's just going to broadcast a tremendous amount of electricity within the area and i think that's exactly what they were doing with all of this energy, the the depictions of what is created with the Ark of the Covenant, you have to wear body armor to carry it. Yeah, you yeah. can't look at it directly. Your life is going to change if you do. Uh, with the concentration of this kind of energy inside of the Great Pyramid, uh, it could have done a multitude of things. It's, it wasn't just one specific thing, was it? No, I, I think it was used for a lot of different things, but... It was definitely broadcasting electricity out, and I think this electricity was being harnessed at the different temples in the region. In fact, if you look at most of these temples, they have uh, stones with what are known as butterfly clips around the periphery of them. And these butterfly clips, we know, that used to have metal in them. And so they were just basically like receivers for this electricity, so you could just kind of plug your things, whatever you had, into these things to, to run it. And I think this is one of the secrets of the ancient world that, you know, it, it, it probably got established originally by the Atlanteans. This, at least that's what history suggests, uh, or myth, you could say. Uh, and then, you know, as things declined, uh, it just kind of fell apart and then people started stealing the butterfly clips for the metal or whatever. And staying on this, because the the bronze, the copper, whatever metal they were using uh, to uh, bind these stones together, certainly suggested a, a large megalithic circuit board, mm -hmm. if you will. But if you have multiple arcs, clearly represented by the Egyptians, yeah. uh, were these power sources for these different temple complexes and possibly other pyramids throughout Egypt? I think so, and if we also consider that the Great Pyramid itself is in the exact center of the uh, land masses of the world, right? 
it was probably broadcasting this energy all around the planet, uh, which is a distinct real possibility. So when these boxes were removed, it's like it shut off the power for the entire planet, which is a real problem, you know, <laughs> if, if you're using that for your, your, your little power base, your control. All of that is great. Have you seen the Ark of the Covenant? Yeah, I've seen one of the arcs. We we currently within the Templars we have six arcs in our possession. Uh, we are aware of potentially four other ones, That's ten total. Uh, but we we're still trying to get to them at this time. Can you tell us where you saw that arc? <laughs> yeah, I saw it here in the United States. Really? Yeah. Did you wear body armor? No, because it wasn't activated. Right. Uh, were you worried about that though? Well, so part of the, part of what came with the ark was these rods. It is actually referred to as Aaron's rod in the Bible. But, but what these are is grounding rods. You can put, you can take the, the, the rod, stick it in the ground and drop it against the ark and it'll ground all the electricity into the ground so you can handle it. We, we need to circle back though. Yeah. You, you mentioned the Holy Grail. Yes. And the, the way that Parsifal represented it, I, it, I think that it was more of an open book where we could interpret yep. what the Grail actually was. Did the Grail make it to the United States? Did it make it over to the Americas? And what is the Grail? It did. Uh, the Grail has been represented as many things. I mean, it's been, it's been popular in recent years to associate it with uh, some sort of bloodline from Jesus and Mary Magdalene. And, and while that may be true, you know, there were other depictions of the grail as well. I mean, it was described as a stone that can burn the uh, phoenix to ashes after which it comes back renewed. Well, this was a, this was an alchemical metaphor. That's right. It was also described as an emerald that, that fell out of the crown of Lucifer after this war in heaven, and it was brought to earth by these neutral angels. Well, this emerald was really a, um, it was a metaphor for what was known as the emerald tablet, which is a, a, a tablet of alchemical instruction. And even beyond that, uh, what it really is, is it's a, it's a substance that looks like an emerald. It's not even really an emerald. It's a, it's, it's a, if you want to get down to it, it's a copper acetate that is crystallized copper that ends up looking like an emerald. And you can extract from this, these monoatomic mana atoms that, uh, that, uh, are extracted alchemically. Well, back to, uh, uh Josh's, a question earlier where this technology is older than we think and the alchemical traditions go back, you know, if we go back to the A word, right? Atlantis, we're pushing this back 10, 20, 30,000 years. Yes. Yeah. Let me give you an example of how it has shown up in other ancient civilizations, the same technology. So, so we refer to it as mana, that's the that's what we we encounter in the the Torah you know, the Old Testament. It's referred to as mana, but we find the same word and the same substance being described in other ancient civilizations. For example, in ancient Sumer, the name of the alchemical science was known as graal, G R A A L, graal, graal, 
grail. Mm -hmm. So that was literally the name of the alchemical science. And they used it to create something known as shimana. And shimana uh, was, was used to help with the flying craft of the gods, the Anunnaki. We find the same word in the Vedic texts it, as being called vimana. So we have mana, shimana, vimana, and the, these vimanas were also flying crafts of the gods from pre-cataclysmic times. In the Polynesian cultures, we find it being referred to as mana. Same thing, though. It's this force of nature that they're able to extract. Uh, within the Gnostic traditions, like in um, the Albigensians of southern France, of which the Templars largely came out of, they used to practice a, a ceremony known as the Mani Sola ceremony, and it and it was a it was like a communion rite with this substance that they referred to as Mani. Well, this Mani is the same thing as the Mana, uh, which is the same thing as the Shimana and the Vimana. And uh, we also find it in, um, you know, a number of other places. So it's it's all these ancient traditions were preserving the same thing, the same science from ancient times. And it tied in directly to these arcs. And uh, and this is one of the things that the Knights Templar got hold of. How ultimately, Tim, would this change history and... If it did, and it should, for those out there that don't want this history change, mm -hmm. what kind of fight would, you know, there's going to be some oppression, uh, you know, from the other side. Um, mm -hmm. How do you move this forward? Uh, again, fundamental to this belief structure is that everybody has this source of the divine within them. So uh, there's no one group that are the only chosen ones at the exclusion of everybody else. We're all in this together. Can, can the world handle it? I think so. I think we're getting to the point, um, with our, with our modern technologies, you know, with our, our internet and our, and our global community. Uh, we now are associating with each other more, recognizing our commonalities. Um, we have to work together now as a world to solve problems and to um, do things that are for the best for the planet and for ourselves and for the other inhabitants of the planet. And ultimately, I think uh, we have a destiny beyond this planet that we're getting to. And I think all of this ancient technology that we're sitting on and these ancient philosophies are all geared towards helping us go that direction. Does this conversation today, uh, do I earn a pin? I will definitely give you a pin after we're done. <laughs> Thank you so much. I look forward uh, to everything that is about to be revealed. And these are exciting times, and I I think we're ready for it. You ready for it, John? I'm ready. I'm ready. This is Into the Vortex. I'm your host, Jimmy Church, Timothy Hogan. Incredible conversation today, and we'll catch you next time. Nothing but stout that you can't hear and them talking at all all of a sudden. Okay, one moment. Okay. Yeah, is anybody uh there? Oh yes. 
anybody in the back? Is anybody doing anything? Because I haven't heard anything in like an hour. What? Hello? Don? Hello? Can you hear us? Uh, Yeah, I'm I'm just trying to get a hold of them. Yeah, is anybody there? Yes, can you hear us? We, I finally can, yes. No, we've been playing something this whole time. Okay, good. Inside, inside Secrets of the Knights Templar. Yeah, but nobody's heard anything for a while because you were so light. And I've had I've had callers call in. Not, you were just so light. I'm just telling you, you were... You do that so regularly now that I I take a, uh, an extra half hour just to update your sound volumes every time, every day, every time I have to deal with your shows now. Because you guys get so far in the background, nobody ever hears you. Um, uh, that must be the, there must be something, because it was plenty loud, I could hear everything yeah. plenty loud, I don't understand. Yeah. I mean, are you having trouble hearing me now? No, I'm not now, but uh, before you just... There's no sound after Jimmy Church, okay? Oh. Um, we've been playing something completely different for quite a long time. Huh. Well, then you've been, you've been off for quite a long time. Oh, uh... uh how did that happen? How did that happen? We've been sitting here listening. I don't know. Like, like I, like, like I keep telling you, there are times when you guys just you're like so light you can know what it is. Just a little bit sound like that. See, you can't even hear me, but I'm talking. Uh, I haven't done anything. I don't understand. Yeah. If you can hear me, and well, we you can, can hear, hear you now. You're live. There you go. <laughs> okay. I don't know where we left off, but, um, oh, dear. Okay, well, let's do this next one. We're just going to go to the next one. Um, this will be called the Pre-Diluvian Architects of Palenque. Could the secrets of Palenque lead to pre- uh, And, Doug, if you don't hear me, just break in instantaneously because we're completely unaware of what we were doing, what that was going on. Uh, Could the secrets of Palenque lead to pre-Diluvian architects within the mysterious lands of the Mayan Empire? Exploring the illustrious architecture, megalithic foundations, and potential connections to Atlantis and Mu. Experts sift through the ruins of Palenque to understand the meaning of the site's astronomical alignments. Little is known about Olmec and Mayan influences, but our understanding of what happened before the flood continues to evolve as we uncover more of our ancient past. Okay, this is the whole team here. Greg Bay, Graded, Greg Braden, Billy Carson, Kadrick Olson, Willie, William Henry, Andrew Collins, uh, Hugh Newman, Freddie Silva, Maria Wheatley, and Michael Cremo. All right, here we go. 
Uh, this is uh, 30 minutes. I hope you can hear by, hear this. Thank you for calling in, whoever did that. Roughly 500 miles southeast of Mexico City lies the ancient ruins known as Palenque. The English translation for Palenque is Platform Arena. And this powerful site is known to house some of the finest architecture, sculpture, and carvings that the Maya civilization ever produced. Although mainstream has dated these ruins to be around 226 BC, alternative researchers point to the clues that lie in the foundations under this sophisticated Maya arena that point to a pre-Diluvian civilization in this region of Mexico 10,000 years before the Maya ever found it. The ancient complex of Palenque is one of the most mysterious archaeological sites in all of the Yucatan of Mexico. It stands apart from other Mayan sites geographically. It's very, very different on a different location from Chichen Itza and Tulum and other sites like that. Set by itself in a higher elevation in a dense, dense jungle. And of the many sites on the complex, Perhaps the most mysterious is the temple. It's called the Temple of the Inscriptions. In this particular temple, it is the the site that has the longest contiguous record of a glyphic nature, of hieroglyphs, uh, covering 180 years of Mayan history, over 600 glyphs covering 180 years of, of Mayan history. There is a collection of three main temples at Palenque. The Temple of the Sun, the Cross, and the Foliated Cross. Several notable buildings are the Temple of the Jaguar, the Palace, and the Temple of the Inscriptions, which holds some interesting information. It consists of an eight-stepped pyramid with a total of nine levels. The five entrances in the front are surrounded by Mayan inscriptions for which the temple is named. When we look at Palenque, we see a city that was built in three stages or three levels. You have the early, middle, and late classic periods. And during each one of these periods, cities were built. Now, in the early period, which is very, very ancient, they used megalithic technology to build this city. And in the middle period, people came and built directly on top of that again. What you see as you look into these ancient cultures, they like to build directly on top of what the ancients built on because they knew that the ancients picked the right spot. They knew they had the right magnetic frequency, the right resonance, the right location. It took a lot of the thinking out of building. What it shows us though, is that the people there had really significantly inherited. It was a very highly populated area, most densely populated by the Mayans, but the Mayans truly didn't build any of these structures going all the way back to the early period. 
This is some real super deep antiquity beings that came here and built that area up. And then what happened was we had people come and build right on top of it. The Mayans literally inherited what was already there. So the Olmecs were a civilization that predated the Mayans. They may have been more advanced. No one is really sure where they came from. But their religion and their beliefs of their culture are embedded throughout their structures, throughout their culture, throughout the things they left behind. Palenque was built in three tiers. The Olmecs really loved to build according to the contours of the land. They were really into having their ball courts. And when we look at the structures of Palenque and how Palenque is built, we see absolutely that the temples and all the plazas were built around the contours of the land. And a lot of this centered around a big ball court, which is a central feature of their culture. All of these kind of things would have been influenced from the previous Olmec culture. So what this seems to suggest to me is that the Olmecs way predate the Mayans and that the Mayans built on and were influenced by what the Olmecs had left behind for them. Mayan architecture is a repository of ancient astronomical knowledge possessed by the Mayan archaeoastronomers. Researchers or archaeologists refer to this as astronomical hierophonies. And what this means is that these Mayan archaeoastronomers were trying to draw down powers into their temples. And in so doing, they were then able to enter into the energy or frequency of those star systems. We find this, for example, at El Castillo, where twice a year, the sun would cast the shadow on the pyramid and we would see the image of a serpent winding its way down the pyramid. This symbolized Kukulkan, the feathered serpent, descending from the heavens to the earth plane. And therefore, El Castillo became a conduit or a portal between earth and the heavens. So what these archaeoastronomers are doing, again, is, is linking earth with the heavens and drawing down the power of the stars and creating essentially a mirror effect, as above, so below. Part of what we see in the complex of Palenque is that much of it was dedicated to astronomical observations. So once again, as we find in other places throughout the Yucatan as well as into the Inca civilization, the studies of Orion, the studies of Sirius, Venus, the studies of the sun, and the studies of the moon are all key in the hieroglyphs and in the observatories that we see in Palenque itself. So when we're looking at this kind of knowledge, we have to ask, where did the knowledge come from? Where did the knowledge to build these complex pyramids and structures come from? The people that live there today say that the Mayans did not build these structures. They say that they were there when the Mayans arrived. The Mayans certainly made use of them and added on to them. Just as we see in Machu Picchu and other places, they were built in phases. So when we look at the site of Palenque, rather than thinking of one complex and one moment of time, we may very possibly be seeing a contiguous record of a history that goes back much, much further. We've been led to believe through traditional history and the quality of the architecture, the depth of the cosmological and mathematic knowledge are contemporary with those that we see in sites much, much older. According to mainstream scholars, 
the Maya civilization began around 250 and lasted roughly until the year 900. Long known for their Tolkien calendar, which mysteriously stops at the year 2012, their celestial tracking technology baffles the minds of alternative researchers and points them to look deeper into the origins of the Maya and their quest to connect with the cosmos. As far as the complex is concerned, it would seem to have been the central focus of various astronomical alignments of great significance that give us a powerful understanding about what the Maya believed. And in particular there are two temples. One is known as the Temple of the Cross and the other is known as the Temple of the Foliated Cross. They gain their name from beautiful carvings inside them of the cosmic tree of the Maya. It's actually not a tree, it's actually the maize plant, but it looks like a tree in design. And this is actually an astronomical symbol and two horizontal branches that come out from the the cosmic tree represent the path that the sun crosses the Milky Way, which is known as the path of the ecliptic. And this very clearly is symbolising the contact between the earthly domain and what is known in Mayan tradition as Zilbalba. And Zilbalba, we interpret it as underworld, which, to be honest, is probably not quite right, really. I mean, it, it's more other, the other world or the place of the dead. And Zilbalba was reached through a journey along the Milky Way from the point where this cross on the cosmic tree is found. And that is in the area of the constellation of Sagittarius. If you continue up the tree, in astronomical terms, there is what's known as the Great Rift, which is a dark patch that goes down the central line of the Milky Way. And right at that spot is the constellation we know today as the Northern Cross, or Cygnus the Celestial Bird. And this is represented in Maya tradition by a bird that sits on the top of the tree, known as Seven Macau. And this connection with the constellation of Cygnus is found at Palenque in the alignment of the Temple of the Foliated Cross, because that's aligned perfectly onto the setting of the bright star Deneb in the constellation of Cygnus. So these two crosses, the Northern Cross and the Southern Cross, were the extreme limits of where the soul would go to in Maya tradition. And in other words, the Milky Way was like a road or river into the different parts of the afterlife. And we find this all over the world. At Palenque and actually many other ancient sites around the world, winter solstice and summer solstice are very important. And the reason why is because our ancient peoples taught humans about planetary alignments and solar alignments. Now, if you're operating stargates, for example, 
and you have a solstice, you have a particular alignment that happens twice a year, all of a sudden you have something that NASA calls X points opening up. At these particular alignments, these X points open up and create portals and gateways that lead out into space. And I really do think that the ancient cultures that came here from another planet knew about this and just how they built their Stargate technology and that the people who were basically being ruled over or worshiping these gods, they learned about these alignments and to them, it became part of their rituals. As with several other pre-Diluvian sites, the planets and stars have played a major role for ancient Earth inhabitants to choose these sacred lands to build massive ceremonial sites. But a closer look at the Temple of the Inscriptions uncovers a deeper mystery to this sacred site. It's in 1952 that an archaeologist who was working at the site, they knew about the inscriptions and they knew how significant the site was. He happened to look at the floor in a different way. And on this particular day, he looked at a tile on the floor that had evenly spaced holes, two rows of holes. And he recognized that those holes were designed to reach into the tile and lift the tile away from the floor. And when he did that, what was revealed was a staircase down to an even deeper level. It took two seasons, two archaeological digging seasons, to remove all of the rubble, all of the debris that had been intentionally placed in this staircase to protect whatever it was that was at the bottom. Well, when they reached the bottom, what they found was the tomb of Pakal intact. It had never been opened, and it existed in a way that surprised even the archaeologists because what they discovered was that the tomb was a sarcophagus. The body of the sarcophagus was carved from a single piece of limestone that in and of itself weighed 15 tons. The lid was another seven tons, and it is this lid that has the mysterious markings that have been the subject of some speculation because it shows Bacall as if he were at the control panel of a device or a ship, a traveling ship of some kind. Many people have speculated this may have been uh, a ship to travel beyond this planet. We don't know for sure because the records don't speak specifically to what Bacall is doing. This sarcophagus is so massive that it would not fit through any of the openings that exist today in the Temple of the Inscriptions, which suggests that the tomb and the sarcophagus were built and they were placed first, and then the entire temple was built around this burial for Pakal. Pakal's tomb is entered from the top of the Temple of Inscriptions, and as you go down, through the staircase, it actually takes you to the surface of the earth and then below the earth's surface to where the tomb actually exists. This is a very humid area, a lot of rain, very moist, it's dense jungle. When we get down to lower chambers, originally archaeologists felt as if they were in a cave because of the stalactites and the stalagmites that had formed from the water percolating down through the limestone to create these these structures. Unfortunately, today, those stalactites and those stalagmites no longer exist. Some of them were broken away, 
by the archae- uh, early archaeologists. Some of them have been broken away uh, more in recent times. And the reason this is unfortunate is because it could have helped us with the dating. Now, what we know, typically, it takes a long time to form the stalactites and the stalagmites. The way they're formed, however, varies from location to location. And all of this evidence suggests that the site of Palenque, based upon the stalactites, stalagmites, and based upon the people themselves, say that it is much older than the textbooks lead us to believe. We're able to carbonate Pakal's body, and it is uh, in the current era. But the site itself may have been built or the beginning of that site much longer before Pakal actually began to build his tomb as it is today. Most scholars agree that a traditional burial sarcophagus is typically made of some form of wood or stone that is soft enough to be carved and transported. But the 15-ton, 7 feet by 12 feet limestone sarcophagus that Pakal was buried in was not designed to ever move and can be compared to the famous sarcophagus in the King's Chamber of the Great Pyramid in Giza. As several researchers throughout history have speculated, the stone sarcophagus in the Great Pyramid could not have been carried in or out and was not designed to be a place for burial, but to be a highly energized resonation chamber for extremely powerful spiritual experiences. Could this sarcophagus found in Palenque have been part of a pre-Diluvian path of spiritual initiation long before the Maya claimed it as their own? The sheer size and sophistication of the stones used for Pakal's tomb, the cover stone, and the stairs leading to this otherworldly chamber bear a strong resemblance to the foundation stones found at Machu Picchu and other ancient megalithic sites. This foundation is what the proto-Maya people built their own structures upon, suggesting that the foundations of Palenque and subterranean chambers beneath them were created by a pre-Diluvian civilization. Now, this is quite unique in all of Mexico. We don't find these kinds of tombs very often. In fact, many of the pyramids there aren't even tombs like the same we find in ancient Egypt. And so when this was found back in the mid-1900s, this caused a sensation because they found this gigantic stone sarcophagus with this huge lid on it, which had all these precision carvings, 3D relief carvings all over it, with what looked like Pakal in some kind of space vehicle being shot up into the sky. Now, that's kind of ancient astronaut idea, but there's actually different theory that this, he was actually descending on some kind of spiritual technology into the underworld, where really this tomb is located in the Palenque site. Let's take a step back from the tomb of Pakal and look at it very objectively. It's right there in front of you. You have a man seated in this fetal position. He's very open. And he's sitting in front of a big tree. And you can tell it's a tree trunk that comes out of him. You see the leaves, you see the fruit. And the fruit essentially is a a, a metaphor for the wisdom, like the apple in the biblical tradition. You, you, You ingest the fruit, you eat the fruit, and you take on the knowledge of the gods. And you keep following the tree through Palenque's navel, and you get to the top of the tree, and there's a quetzal bird. 
So the bird essentially is the metaphor for the symbol of the soul, for the rejuvenated spirit of the individual. And the other symbol that we know why this happened is that if you look carefully on the perimeter of Pakal's tomb, you have all the different points of Venus and how it conforms to its uh, particular cycle in the scheme of things. And Venus, when it rose before the sunrise and the spring equinox, which is again detailed on Pakal's tomb, was the mark of the risen initiate. There was a phrase that came out of this. It was called the initiate who is risen from the dead. Although thousands of miles apart, ancient cultures throughout Central America and Egypt have worshipped a feathered serpent. In Egyptian mythology, the feathered serpent is most often associated with rulers, kings or queens, usually as protectors or guardians. The mythological figure of the feathered or plumed serpent is depicted throughout South America as Kukulkan to the Maya, and Quetzalcoatl to the Aztecs. With evidence mounting that this sarcophagus may have been placed long before the temple of the inscriptions was built, the question becomes, how long before the temple was built? If Palenque seems to represent this serpent imagery and belief system, could there be another connection between the two civilizations? When we look at Mayan symbolism and look for correspondences around the world, we find a very important one to ancient Egypt. The link is Lord Pakal's sarcophagus lid, which is the ancient Mayans' most prized artifact. In fact, it's one of the greatest archaeological discoveries in the world. What is important about this is that when Lord Pakal is shown in his tomb, he has a green jade mask. He becomes the maize god. He's effectively becoming the green man. He is, to the ancient Egyptians, Osiris. And his lid portrays him on the tree of life, which is identical in symbolism to a device that we find at Abydos that I call the Osiris device. So what we're seeing here is, in fact, Lord Pakal in the act of resurrection That correspondence can't be by chance. And the idea that they're both in the act of regenerating or renewing or resurrecting themselves affirms this connection. Central America was one of the main territories that Atlantean civilization was taking care of because of the portals that you have there, mainly because of the telluric energy that is moving there from all the middle part of Mexico. Every one of the portals, every one of the gates was controlled by someone called a blue one. The Atlanteans were normal people, but ruled or guided by the blue ones. And those blue ones were like the leaders of each one of the nodes. So as Krishna, for example, is a blue one in Asia, Osiris, a blue one in Egypt, Bakal was a blue one for Mexico. So they were kind of the leaders of the territory, the guides of the families. So they were the keepers of the portals and taking care that everything was accordingly to what the main civilization was saying. Northwest of Palenque, in the sacred Olmec site known as La Venta, Massive stone heads, which are carved from nearly impenetrable basalt, along with green jade masks that share similar features with the mask found in Palenque, 
connect Lord Pakal to a possible Olmec bloodline. But when were they in this region? A defining pre-Diluvian link is found in the ancient Olmec carving, labeled Stila 19, which contains the serpent depiction of Kukulkan, and an ancient handbag, nearly identical to the handbags depicted in the Assyrian Tree of Life. If Mayan, Hindu, Egyptian, Sumerian, and Olmec symbolism are similar, could that mean that they all shared the same ancestors? The local tradition talks about how a group of gods called the Its originally came from a sunken land in the middle of the Great Ocean in the east called Athol, from where we get the word Atlantic. And they arrive in the Yucatan Peninsula in 9600 BC. Now, that's a very definite moment in time. And it happens to be within a hundred years of the known time of when the flood subsided. So it's a historical moment where the survivors from this place in the middle of the Atlantic arrive in Yucatan and slowly they made their way south towards Palenque and they set up the original temples. Now, over time, because the way that the temple is aligned to the specific stars, the stars begin to move. Now, to make the temple do what it does, it has to be always perfectly aligned to the background of the stars. So Palenque keeps growing and growing and growing. There are pyramids within pyramids within pyramids. So what we see in the classic time of Palenque, and especially the uh, the main building, which is the Temple of Inscriptions, if you look at the alignment of that building relative to the horizon, it matches the position of the constellation of Draco, which is the celestial dragon, the celestial serpent, exactly on the winter solstice of 3110 BC. Ironically, the same day that the first king in Egypt, Mena, the first pharaoh, and I quote, of a purely human bloodline takes the throne. Now, what are those two overlapping, I wonder? And secondly, because the people who originally built uh, Palenque, who were the Its, they were called the Arkanu, and it literally means the people of the serpent. So, in all manner of speaking, Palenque is a place where the people of the serpent set up shop, and it was a place where the knowledge of the gods was instigated and also played out and taught to the local people over many thousands of years. And the people and the person who came to embody that wisdom in the historical period was Pakal, from whom we know so much. When we look at the Temple of Inscriptions, we think of it being dedicated to the Lord Pakal. That's how history tells us. But many, many researchers say it's thousands of years older. And it's a point where you have earth energies that converge there and emerge there. And it creates like a spider web of energetic field. And it's feeding into it and releasing it outwards. So if you imagine energy coming in, and energy going out, energy coming in, energy going out. It is highly, highly energetic and far more than just a tomb. And because it's a convergence and emergence point, this can, for very short amounts of time, be very healing if you enter that energy field. So I don't think it's about death, that temple. I think it's about the living. And I think that's what the ancients had the purpose for originally. Could this sacred site have been a powerful healing place along the ancient Atlantean initiatic path in pre-Diluvian times? What other connections can we find that may link this sacred land to the stars? 
the separation between the Caribbean plateau with the North American plateau and then the Antilles Islands. All this territory creates so much energy. The main line of energy that divides Central America from North America is actually in the territory that where Palenque was built. So it was built as a, as a city of connection, as a city where the people from the south and the people from the north would gather there and have the meetings to 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 talk about the future, about the things that are happening and so on. So the wise people would go to this territory that we call Palenque today to have these meetings and these great ceremonies that were kind of something to say we are still together, we are working for this together to connect the whole planet. So this place was the main gate for union, for unity. And in the skies, that constellation of unity, of wealth, of being fine, is the Taurus constellation with its heart, which is Pleiades. Could the secrets of Palenque lead us to a much older, pre-Diluvian existence here in the mysterious land of the Mayan Empire? Was this a place of healing and connection, teaching the ancients how to unite with the stars and harness their true power? As the torrential storms and flooding destroyed some of the evidence, the heroes of humanity were guided back to this sacred land possibly several times, to reconnect with the stars and eventually build this sacred arena for us to discover. There are few answers explaining what happened to the Mayan Empire. But questions remain about their leader, Lord Pakal, and his connection to the ancient knowledge of how to connect with the power of this area of the planet. As with all ancient cultures, the question remains, who inspired them, and what was happening around these sacred lands before the end of the world. Okay. Um, I must have been in another dimension or something here. Um, but uh, this brings me to the Emerald Serpent Feathered One here. Uh, we got a half an hour of this uh, being. And I remember Rainbird uh, uh, passes talking stick to you, but I do remember the. Uh, we were visiting your friend Robin, and uh, we played a whole long thing about the Olmecs. Are you there, Mr. Rainbird? Here comes this talking stick. I'm here. I'm here. I'll take that talking stick. And I don't remember that place you're referring to, so... <laughs> and oh, oh, I just... Wasn't your friend's name? Was it... What, uh, what's her name? Um, R. And Leela. Oh, Rita. 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 Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yes. And we were we were doing our show from her house in the uh, room. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, I okay. will. 
But this copy's to come back to you. Yes, that second Saturday one is perfect for right now. It, absolutely. And I would like to say that I didn't, didn't miss much of the show from any, any technical problems. I was maybe five minutes towards oh. the end of the Templar piece. Templar piece. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. Just, just a little feedback on that. And it's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful evening. Thank you so much for everything that you brought forward. It's really good stuff, and, and I'm very excited about hearing the update on the House and the Senate. <laughs> making it, making it like it did. That's pretty much of a miracle. Um, and let's just keep having miracles as we go along and get through this. Working with these portals, energy is pretty exciting and busy and <laughs> everything else. So, thank you. And I pass this talking stick over to you, Lama. Here it comes. Okay. Um, this is about seven nice minutes. Nice and This is about seven, eight minutes. Helen Watts, The Power of Releasing Control. Here we go. Oh, my goodness. You're not really loud. Turn it up if you can. Okay. Can you hear us now? Yeah, that's better. Thank you. Okay. It's called The Power of Releasing Control. All right. Here we go. I'm just wondering if this speaker is acting silly. Here we go. Drama. You gotta be louder. It's coming. <laughs> yes, Tigger. Just a moment. But then you see, you 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 do the flip. <laughs> In giving away the control, you got it. You got the kind of control you wanted. That's to say, where you had a loving relationship to the world, but you didn't have to make up your mind what it should do. You let it decide. Now, do you see that's how your bodies work? You don't have to make up your mind what your nerve cells are going to do. You've delegated all that authority. If the President of the United States has to lay awake at nights thinking what every official under his command is going to do, he can't be President. He's got to make an act of trust in all those subordinates to be responsible and carry on their things in just the same way as you make an act of trust to all your subordinate organs to carry on their functions without you having to tell them what to do. And this is the secret of what we will call organic power as distinct from political power. Lao Tzu puts it in this way, the great Tao flows everywhere, both to the left and to the right. It loves and nourishes all things, but does not lord it over them. And when merits are accomplished, it lays no claim to them. 
The more, therefore, you relinquish power, trust others, the more powerful you become. But in such a way that instead of having to lie awake nights controlling everything, you do it beautifully by trusting the job to everyone else. They carry it on for you. So you can go to sleep at night and trust your nervous system to wake you up in the morning. You can even tell it, I want to wake up at six o'clock and it will wake you up just like an alarm clock. This seems a sort of paradox to say this, but the principle of unity, of coming to a sense of, of oneness with the whole of the rest of the universe, is not to try to be, obtain power over the rest of the universe. That will only disturb it and uh, antagonize it and make it seem less one with you than ever. The way to become one with the universe is to trust it as another, as you would, another, and say, let's see what you're going to do. But in doing that, you see, in saying that to everything else that you have been taught to think is not you, you are also saying it to yourself. Because finally, as I pointed out, you do not know where your decisions come from. They pop up like hiccups. And when you make a decision, people have a great deal of anxiety about making decisions. There's this guy who was a farmer who ordered a help man to come in and uh, found he was an extraordinarily efficient worker. Because the first day, he put him on sawing logs. And he sawed more logs than anybody had ever sawed. It was fantastic. But they were all done in one day. So the next day, he put him, on, put him on to mending fences. And there were all kinds of broken fences around the farm. And in one day, he had the whole thing done. So he thought, what am I going to do with this guy? So he took him down into a basement and said, look, here are all, our, uh, all the potatoes that have come in from this harvest. And I want you to sort them into three groups those that we sell, those that we use for seeding, and those that we throw away. So, he left him at that. At the end of the day, the laborer came back and said, well, that's enough, mister. I quit. Hmm. Oh, he said, you can't quit. I've never had such an excellent worker. I'll raise your salary. I'll do anything to keep you around me. Ah, I said, no. It's all right mending fences and chopping wood, but this potato business is decision after decision after decision after decision. <laughs> so when we decide, we're always worrying, did I think this over long enough? Did I take enough data into consideration? And if you think it through, you find you never could take enough data into consideration. The data for a decision in any given situation is infinite. So what you do is, you go through the motions of thinking out what you will do about this. And then when the time comes to act, you make a snap judgment. <laughs> I mean, I'm speaking a little extremely, 
making some fun of it and uh, so on because after all uh, we, we do occasionally get the vague outlines of things and make a right decision on rational grounds but we fortunately forget the variables that could have interfered with this coming out right it's amazing how often it works but warriors are people who think of all the variables beyond their control and what might happen so then when you make a decision and it works out all right I think very little of it has much to do with your conscious intent and control. But somehow or other, you are able to decide and control things more harmoniously if you delegate authority. That's why very great businessmen are those who can delegate authority. Trust others to work for them. Because those are people developing businesses on the same basic structure that is fundamental to a living organism. Delegation of authority. It loves and nourishes all things but does not lord it over them. And you see, then, what is happening is this. The more you let go of it and trust it, as if it were quite other than you, the more you realize the inseparable identity of self and other. To go back, if you try to find the identity of self and other by subjecting other to self, no go. If on the other hand, you, you find it through giving self, that is control, over to other, and trusting that. And then it ended just like that. Yeah. Okay, well, all is good. It's time to go. We were saying good night. Did, did you have a song that's going to be a little... Mm. How long is the song? Mm. Three minute song? Go for it. Three minutes. Almost four. <laughs> oh, come on. Let's do it. Okay. Wakanda, huh, Mama? Avatar. Oh, Avatar, that's right, Avatar. We are all avatars now. So we'll see you in your dreams. Time to go. And, um,. Maybe a quick, quick, I'll give you the number for tomorrow and Monday for Cheryl to come and join us and uh, uh, 
do a meditation, do a look into uh, consciousness at a higher level. That's 425-436-6260. And the pin code is 9467441-POUND. All right. See you in your dreams, inshallah. Sat nam. Dot nam D. Aho, mitakuyasin. Namaste. Namaste.